The following is a conversation with Ayla, a sex researcher who does some of the largest human sexuality survey studies in the world on everything from fetishes to relationships. She is fearless in pursuing her curiosity on these topics by asking challenging and fascinating questions and looking for answers in a rigorous data-driven way and writing about it on her blog, knowingless.com. She's also a sex worker, including OnlyFans and escorting, and is an exceptionally prolific creator of thought-provoking Twitter polls. Ayla and I disagree on a bunch of things, but that just made this conversation even more interesting. I like interesting people in the full range of the meaning that the word interesting implies. I'm currently reading On the Road by Jack Kerouac and uh, would be remiss if I didn't mention one of my favorite quotes from that book that feels relevant here. The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. And in the middle, you see the blue centerlight pop and everybody goes, ah. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Ayla. I feel like this conversation can go anywhere. Mm. Is that exciting or terrifying to you? I think it's more exciting. The uncertainty exciting to you? Yes. In conversations in general or just this one? I think conversations in general. Like, is anybody like, oh, the certainty is really exciting? Maybe if the certainty is something new. I mean, novelty always comes with uncertainty, right? Almost always. I started trying to think of a counterexample. <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. You're uncomfortable with generalizations of that kind. Like, always is always a really bold word to use. But if it's truly novel, that means you don't really understand it. It's outside your distribution. So therefore, it's going to have a bunch of uncertainty. But you don't think of it as uncertainty. You think about it as something new, but it actually also attracts you because there's a lot of uncertainty surrounded, it, probably. Like, what is this new thing? Yeah, like annihilating the mystery, like that drive. Yeah. What about the danger of it? It's like part, I was just thinking of on the drive over, because I was like, I'm like a little nervous about doing this podcast. And then an I was like feeling into the unpleasantness of it, like the like the fear of what if something goes terribly wrong. And then I was also feeling into like how much that feels like part of why it's exciting. Like if I knew that it was going to go great, I don't know. Did you actually imagine all the possible ways it can go wrong? Not like all of them, but I was like, what if I say something really dumb? Or like you ask me a question and I answer it in a way that makes me sound like a lot less capable than I am. I'm like really afraid of being perceived as stupid or something. I was also thinking about this on the way over. Like I'm kind of risk averse in some ways. Like I don't driving fa like driving fast in cars because I was driving very carefully here because the roads are bad. Yeah. And then I was thinking, but I'm very like pro risk in other ways. Like being really exposed to like a wide variety of people who might hate you. And uh, I think like from the outside that might look fine, but I think the monkey brain is really sensitive to lots of people yelling at you for whatever problems that you seem to have. That so that's think. the big risk you're taking is putting yourself out there as an intellectual, like through your writing, and then a lot of people yelling at you. Is that is that the yeah. worst embarrassment you can it's experience? It's pretty bad, yeah. I think I think the worst embarrassment is if I put something out there that I failed to like be properly skeptical of in myself, and then people are like, oh, we caught this thing that you didn't catch. I think that's the biggest terror. Yeah, from looking at your reading and listening to your interviews, you seem to be very defensive 
and worried about being a good scientist. Yeah, definitely. About your like methodology. Yes. <laughs> and funny enough, you get attacked on that methodology, even though, you know, I've, I'm a fan of psychology, of like, of like academic psychology, and it's, it's kind of disappointing often how non-rigorous mm. their work is, how small the sample size and so on, and, and how big and ambitious, over-ambitious the, the proclamations about results is, mm. especially when the news reports on it. Now you're both the researcher, the scientist, and the reporter, mm -hmm. right? So like that's what you have with the blog. Your sample size is often gigantic. The methodology is right there. The data is right there. You provide the data, mm -hmm. and then you're like raw and honest with your interpretation of the data. Like there's an honesty, authenticity to it. So I don't. It's actually really refreshing. I don't know why people criticize it. I think this is what pe this is what psychologists are probably terrified about being transparent and transparent in that way is because they'll get attacked for their methodology. So they wanna cloak it mm. in a um, in a sort of layer of authority. Like I'm from this institution, it was peer reviewed, there's kind of all these layers and I'm also not gonna share the data with you and I'm also gonna pretend like most psychology studies are not replicable. I'm just going to pretend yeah. there's authority to it. I think it works on a lot of people. Like from the outside, you're like, ah, the scientists with the white lab coats with credentials, those are the people who are like doing science. And like doing science is, you know, you have like fancy terms that other people are not, don't really understand. And to be fair, like I, I have a lot to learn. I'm still like, I'm self-teaching. I'm like learning through people, learning as I go. I'm definitely not super knowledgeable about this stuff. Um, but a lot of what those people are doing in science is not that hard. Um and a lot of people like don't try to learn it because it seems so like elevated. And this is one thing that really bothers me. I think like everybody can do science. Like if you just have this aspect of curiosity and like you just really want to figure something out, you can go and start, you know, asking people questions, doing surveys, like writing down the answers. And then you can go learn how to look at that data in a way that gives you more information about the world. Like it's very simple and straightforward if you just approach it humbly and earnestly and you're like, please, let's like let's figure this out together. But people like are I think self-crippled in this because uh they view this as like relegated to the domain of the experts and you know the fancy scientists and i think that makes me feel really sad you're almost attracted to the questions you're not supposed to ask oh yeah also yes <laughs> which but might contribute to the controversy not exclusively probably oh, no. but you're just not uh, limited by like part of your curiosity is asking questions that seem common sense like what some of the most controversial questions are like around sex mm -hmm. it's like Everybody thinks and talks and does sex. I mean, it's it's the driver of human civilization, and yet there's so little like rigorous discussion about the like the philosophical and the scientific questions around it. Mm -hmm. and it's like it gets really weird to, to be able to discuss them. It's, it becomes tricky to discuss them. Yeah, it's super charged, super because everybody has a really strong opinion, like whether or not you know pornography is damaging to society, or like how sex corresponds to gender, or like what kind of sexuality is acceptable. Like, do can you have sexual preferences that in the in themselves are immoral? Uh, people get very angry about it. Well, the sad part is they're not just opinionated, but most of us, our relationship with sex is, uh, I think, I guess, I want to say, not rigorous. I think it's very difficult to be rigorous about sex. Like, it, I, I would consider uh, sexual urges to be kind of elusive to introspection in a way that's a little bit disproportionate to a lot of other things. Sure. Like, you could, like, you know, introspect about, you know, how I want other people to like me and 
um, how where my insecurities lie. But sex is one of those black box things. A really common thing is for people to, if you have a fetish, you sort of check back in your childhood to see an event that corresponds to that fetish. And then you like develop a narrative like, ah, this event in my childhood must have caused this fetish. And so I think this causes people to be biased towards like a like a concrete, coherent, causative way that events happen or there's, that sexual fetishes happen. Um, this is just like one example of like why I think it's really hard to be rigorous with introspection because we can't avoid, you, you just want to tend towards making like coherent narratives, which I think is not always the correct way to explain it. The narratives that are connected to childhood and so and so on, yeah. how they originate. Yeah. You have, uh, I mean, we'll talk about fetishes because you have a lot of really interesting writing on that. Just actually zooming out, I, I, I should mention you tweeted, I wrote this down. You tweeted, I do not understand how to have normal conversations with people in person if I'm not on drugs. So I guess uh, let's both agree to not have a normal conversation, I guess, assuming you're not on drugs now. Or uh, if you are, you could, don't have to tell. I feel like a very small amount of fun of it, okay. which is a nootropic. I don't know if that counts. Is that a drug? Well, I guess I'm on caffeine. Mm, yeah. yeah. So we're both... Drugged up. We, we, good Let's enough go. to have a normal conversation. <laughs> uh, we don't have to. What is normal anyway? Uh, what do you think is the primary driver of human civilization? Is it the desire for sex, love, power, or immortality? Like avoiding uh, the fear of death, constructing illusions that make us forget about our terror over mortality. So sex, love, power, death. Is this is a Twitter poll. It's, it's <laughs> four a, options. This is reality. Not everything <laughs> maps funny. perfectly into a Twitter poll, but in this case, because there's four options and it is a small number of characters, it does. But I, I'd like to think... I'm more interested. You know what? I think your Twitter polls are fundamentally interesting. There's something about the the brevity of a poll limiting to a set of choices and having an existential crisis and searching for the answer. That's beautiful. <laughs> that combination. Well, this one's the... a big one. Like, what do you think is behind it? Do you believe that there is one primary driver? Like, do you think that it can be understood in the terms of primary drivers? Yeah, I think, well, maybe it's any engineering perspective, like trying to re reverse engineer the brain. I don't think we're equipped or understand enough about the mind to get there. Yeah, like what's the primary driver of a tree? Yeah, well then it gets to the question of what is life? What is a living organism? Like to self-replicate probably. That's a very clean simplification, but I think life is more interesting that, than just self-replication. Yeah, but it sounds like you, there's a curiosity in you that you're trying to like poke at, and I, and I don't understand exactly what that curiosity is. So if I, if I had to dedicate a thousand years mm -hmm. to understand one of these topics, which one would be the most fruitful, I guess, is the indirect thing I'm asking. Fun? No, f well, fun. Every, to me, everything is fun. But <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm with David Foster Wallace. The key to life is... Uh, to make sure that everything is unborable or to be unborable or every, nothing is boring. Everything is fun. Every, like everything. I could just literally sit. I honestly, because I, I don't think, I don't know where you got that glass, but that glass exists and I forgot it exists. And it was really fun to me to know that it now is there. What about the really unpleasant things? Like if you're in, in like a deep agony. Yeah, that's fun. Okay. That's fun. Because it's like, I mean, that, yeah, heartbreak. It's like knowing that I'm capable of that. It, it, it like, from, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're all living in the gutter, but some of us are, are looking up at the stars. So when you're in that gutter, for some reason, the stars look brighter, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so like whenever 
you're going through a difficult time or whenever you see maybe other people being shitty to each other, it makes you like really appreciate when they're not. Mm. The contrast makes life kind of amazing. I'm reading a bunch of books. One of them is Brave New World, where they remove, you know, where they remove the ups and downs of life, um, partially through drugs, but over over sexualization and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like you need that contrast. You need the ups and downs of life, uh, the dark. You know, you need the dark to have happiness, to have like a deeply intense feeling of affection towards another thing or a human being. Yeah. Yeah, so everything's fun. But fun is also a weird word to define because fun, I think for a lot of people, it, like I, that's why I talk about love a lot. I, I think I think love is a better word than fun because fun is like lighthearted. Love is more intense. Hmm. Like I love that glass and the water that's in it because it's freaking awesome. Like somebody made that glass, right? Like mm-hmm. they, and like not have many mistakes. And like there's, a, and the way bends light in interesting ways and the way water bends light in interesting ways. Like I can see part of your arm through that water. That's freaking amazing. Everything is amazing. <laughs> I'm with the Lego movie. Anyway, <laughs> um, if, but if like from a scientific perspective, if I were to investigate sex, I don't know why I put love in there. Let's, just, let's just narrow it down the Twitter poll. Let's focus on the basics here. Sex, power, or death, immortality. If I were to try to, like from a neuroscience, neurobiology perspective, or reverse engineer through building AI systems that focus on these kinds of dynamics, exploring the game theoretic aspects of it, uh, exploring the sort of cognitive modeling aspects of it, which one would get me to a deeper understanding of the human condition? That's the question. Sex, okay, Nietzsche is the will to power. Um, Freud and and, and the bunch is all about sex. Mm -hmm. And then um, death, Uh, Liv just, uh, Liv Burley, brilliant previous guest on this podcast, she just released a video where on her bedside was the book Denial of Death. Uh, by Ernest Becker, which of course she would have on her bedside, but that the his whole work is that everything is motivated by our trying to escape the the cold, harsh reality that we're going to die and we're terrified of it. One of the gifts and burdens for human beings is that we are cognizant of our own death, and that terrifies us. That's the theory. And because of that, we do everything we can. We build, we build empires to escape the fact that we're mortal. Wouldn't this change quite a bit for religious people then, who don't believe that they're going to die? Well, they created religion. The, the idea there is to create myths, religions. You can create religions of all kinds. Like, yeah, but if this is like one of the defining things that defines civilization, then we should expect to see like massive differences between people who believe we're going to die and people who don't. Good, I love it. You think it like a like a scientifically here, but uh, and they have actually answers. Like, there's a whole t- terror management theory where they do type write psychology type papers and they do actual experiments. I can mention how their methodology is interesting. Um, they prime with the discussion of death. Like, they take one s- certain set of people, they have a conversation with them, and another set of people they mention death to them before the conversation and see how that affects their um, the the nature of the conversation. It's really interesting because death fundamentally alters the nature of the conversation, just even priming, the con- like reminding you that you're going to die briefly, 
changes changes a lot of things. These kinds of priming papers usually not replicated. I, I just have like I feel like I've yeah. heard a bunch of priming ones that. I think you have PTSD over psychology papers and not <laughs> replicated. I just did one. I just did a priming experiment on my own and found it didn't have any effect. But again, can't you just give me okay. <laughs> a careless statement summarizing an entire scientific discipline of terror management theory? I don't know. Uh, people should like I haven't rigorously looked at how good of it is psychologically. I think okay. it is interesting philosophically the way Freud talked about the, the subconscious mind. Philosophically, it's an interesting discussion. Then, then you have to get rigorous with it for sure. Uh, but the, the, uh, the idea is that like it's not that religious people get rid of the terror of death. This is just one of the popular ways they create an illusion on top of it. That's that idea, like a, a myth that allows, that makes it easier for them to forget, to escape that terror. But everybody else does different different methods. Like you feel your days with, like capitalism has a whole, has a whole religion of itself, like the rat race for getting more and more material possessions and so on. I mean, couldn't you argue it in the opposite direction? Like, let's say, assume that we're Christians here and we're like, ah, oh, the atheists, you know, everybody has terror of hell and the atheists invent this mythology where, you know, actually evolution is true in order to escape their terror of hell. Mm-hmm. So that it, it doesn't feel like a persuasive argument to me. But I used to be very, very Christian and I did not have a terror of death. And then I lost my faith and then I had a deep terror of death set in for a few years. And it felt very different to me. So for denial of death... I don't know if he says that it's actually possible without really a lot of work to get to the actual terror. Like, mm. I think his claim is that in early, early, early childhood development, that's when the terror is real. And then we come aggressively construct systems around it of, of social interaction to, to, um, to, to sort of construct illusions on top of it. I'm, I'm doing a half-assed description of this philosophy, but there is, like it is interesting to simplify the human mind into underlying mechanisms that drive it. Yeah, I was gonna say your thinking seems kind of poetic. Like the way that you're sort of handling these, yeah, these concepts feel like more like aesthetically driven. I think so- this theme is going to continue throughout this conversation as we talk about <laughs> relationships and sex. Yes, for sure, I think so. And, and I think your thinking seems to be very driven by how can I construct an experiment to test this hypothesis. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but aren't, there's some things, especially that have to do with the human mind, that are really messy, really difficult to understand. There's so many uncertainties and mysteries around that we don't yet have the tools to collect the data. Like one of your favorite tools is the survey, is asking people questions. And then figuring out different ways to indirectly get the, at the truth, because there's flaws to the survey. You you kind of learn about those flaws, and you get better and better at asking the right questions and so on. But that's not that's indirect access to the human mind. But do you think like poetic narratives are? I'm not like saying poetic narratives are bad. Like I think it's like a cool way of like handling concepts. But I'm not sure that they are more rigorous. No, no, no. Okay. No, but like they might be the more correct, like philosophy might be the right way to discuss things that we're really far from understanding. Yeah, I mean, they might be more useful shorthand. Yeah. Like morality, like I don't think morality makes any sense, but it's really useful shorthand to use when handling concepts in a lot of the time. Right, like ethics and morality. You could construct studies that ask different questions. Like, uh, you know, just having worked with autonomous vehicles a lot, 
the uh, the trolley problem mm-hmm. gets brought up. And I don't know, you can construct all kinds of interesting surveys about the trolley problem, but does that really get at some deep moral calculus that humans do? It's sexy because people like write clickbait articles about it, but does it really get to like what you value more? Five grandmas or like three children? <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> like they construct these <laughs> arguments of like, if you could steer a train, if you could steer an autonomous car, which do you choose? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible with some of those to, to construct. Like sometimes the fuzzy area, there's some topics that are fuzzy and will forever be fuzzy given our limited cognitive capabilities. I don't know. There's a way of looking at things where it's like, for example, the childhood fetish thing that I was yeah. talking about, like where do your fetishes come from? Like you can develop a narrative where it's like, you know, I think like this kind of thing is, you know, when you're surrounded by feet when you're a child, this causes foot fetishes. Um, and this is like kind of a cool narrative. Uh, and I think a lot of people's ideas about philosophy follow the same sort of thing. Like what is the narrative that is cool? And I think this is useful for meaning making. Like I'm very pro meaning making. Like when you're talking about everything is uh, fun because, you know, you, the, the contrast or whatever. I've, I very much ascribe to that. I really enjoy that that philosophy. I also find everything to be very delightful. Uh, but And this isn't like a question of truth, right? We're not like, where is the true delight that we're objectively measuring? Like, this is a frame, a poetic frame that you're using to like sort of change the way the light hits the world around you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's super useful because it like makes you happier or something. Yeah, but also gets to the truth or something. Yeah, I guess what is truth? Yet <laughs> um, another question, what is truth? You've, uh, actually to jump back, you don't believe, you believe that free will is an illusion. Mm. So uh, why does it feel like I'm free to make any decision I want? It's a cool illusion. I think it's probably like where our sense of identity <laughs> it's comes from. It's a fun illusion. Oh. Like when you when you really meditate on your sense of identity, for at least for me, it seems like it comes down to the sense of choice. Like, oh, I am doing the thinking. Like, what does it mean to do with thinking? It's like, ah, something in me has exerted agency over having this thought or not having this thought. Like the sense of self really comes down to choice. And so when I say that like free will is an illusion, I also mean there's something like the self is an illusion. Identity is a trick of the light. But it's a really fun one. Yeah. You think a lot about your identity. I have occasionally. Yeah. Like you really struggle with it. You're proud of it. I, I do too. It's not, we have different journeys, but mm-hmm. so. I really take a lot of delight in it. I used to be very into like deconstructing it. Like you probably, maybe, you know, I did a bunch of like way too much LSD for a while. And at that point, very, no, no ego. And now I'm like very ego. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy having a lot of ego. I actually happen to know like everything about you. Really? Yeah, like more than you do. It's interesting. That's fascinating. Wait, could you, can you solve my problems? Yes, all of them. I've did thorough research. Okay, Um, what is consciousness then? I actually wrote that as a question. What is consciousness? (laughs) (laughs) To remind myself. So like, uh, how does that tie in together with free will and identity and all of that? <laughs> what is consciousness is like one of the biggest questions ever. I think I I do think that people often get confused when talking about consciousness because I think people are referring to two separate concepts and often like combining them into one thing. Like we ask the question, you know, is AI going to be conscious? Um, and I think this is kind of the wrong question. Like, uh, like like we can identify signs of consciousness. Like ah, they seem to refer to themselves, uh, but this is not necessarily proof of consciousness in the same way that like dream characters 
acting exactly the way normal human do, people do in your dream is not evidence that they themselves are conscious. Uh, so like science of consciousness are not proof of consciousness, but there is something that we definitely know, which is like, I currently am conscious. I can tell because, right. Like, like I'm like just directly observing my experience. Yeah. Uh, and so like, there's one kind of consciousness, which is I am directly observing my experience and that you cannot replicate it. Like there, I cannot observe two experiences. Uh, it is necessarily singular and it is necessarily certain. Like you can make all the arguments you want. Like I'm still directly observing. It's not a thing that's subject to reason. Whereas our other thing is conscious. This is something that's replicable. Like, like it, you can apply it to multiple people. Um, it's something that's not certain, uh, like almost definitionally not certain. Like we don't actually know if there is, you know, an internal experience. So my argument is that like when people are talking about other things having experience, they're using a different concept than the thing that they're actually looking at when they look at their own experience. I think they're two different things. Definitionally not possible no, if you understand the mechanism of consciousness, you'll be able to measure it probably, right? Yeah, but what are you measuring? Like, I think this is like a, a subtle difference. Like when you're asking the question, is this other thing conscious? Yeah, the easy thing to measure is like a survey. Does this thing appear conscious? Yeah. And then the hard thing is you understand the actual mechanism of uh, how consciousness arises in the physics yeah, but of the human brain. You do that brain. in a dream, presumably. Like if you had a very good dream or a very good simulation. Yeah. But we could then have somebody in a simulation or a dream where they go through and they fully understand, you know, they do all the tests and the tests come back exactly the way you'd expect them to. Yeah. Uh, but from the outside, we're like, well, this is misleading. They're not actually conscious. Like your dream characters aren't conscious, right? Probably. I don't know. Are you asking? Are you telling? I'm like appealing to an intuition. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you're driving towards the narrative. I don't, you, you did a poll about men and women and dreams. Yeah. There was some kind of difference. I couldn't tell what the difference was, except that more men than women. Quite a lot more women dream vividly than men. Oh. Which I actually found my chaos survey. So I, I did a survey, maybe you know, that I just had a, a I people. I know everything. Do you remember? You, you know, yes, I'm sorry. So as you clearly know. I'll try not to talk down to you through this conversation. because <laughs> I'm I've known, And I not only know everything, I know how your future looks like. Really? And every, how everything ends, yeah. So you could probably win all the prediction markets on my life. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we should also mention that you have like prediction markets. Uh, you have, you have like votes that you what what's the site called again? Manifold. Manifold. And one of them was, will I be on the Lex Friedman podcast? Yeah. And I voted. I invested everything I own <laughs> into the yes. Is, the, is there such thing as insider trading on there? Is that goes against the terms of the? No, of the... I th I think insider trading is part of the information, so it's oh, supposed to be. And then I realized it's actually public information that I voted because like. I think yeah. my face shows up there's like, damn it. It's gonna influence significant. You could make the fake account. Or I could be lying, right? Yeah. I that's could true. be and then dump the stock I, or whatever. You know, I try to manipulate somebody made a market like, is Ayla going to post a poll spelled P O L E on her Twitter, like mm -hmm. a photo? And I was like, I'm gonna manipulate this market. So I like fucked around with it and I voted no. And then I accidentally posted a photo photo of a poll without Ooh. thinking. It's oh, like but that's like self sabotage. I yeah, I accidentally yeah. Fucked up my own market. <laughs> that doesn't. That's like the reverse of insider training. Yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? Oh, the women and the men and the difference, the vivid dreams, and the markets. I forget what the market. Oh, because I can I can perfectly predict your future. Yeah. But then it's not fun. I, I like the romance of un unpredictability, and so I I like to even though I know everything, I like to forget everything. Yeah. Very very Buddhist of you. Yeah. The river. 
no no man in the river once, whatever, the footsteps, however that's, that goes. That's one of my uh, favorite questions is like, if you could press a button and then have all of your wants fulfilled, anything that you want. So it's like such a rapid degree that you don't really experience the want. Like as the want arises, it then is like completed as immediately so that you are completely without want. Like, would you, would you press that button? 100% not. No. Yeah. I didn't think you would. No, 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 <laughs> no. Because immediately everything stops being fun. The first, it's yeah. only fun the first time. But if you I mean, want it to be fun. But like, what would be my source of fun? I feel like I would have, like on day four, just to get off, I would need to like do like nuclear war. <laughs> Cause it'll escalate quickly. <laughs> I feel like if everything is possible, I assume you mean like something that like, is not just normal human things. Yeah, but magical like, world. Magical world. Mm -hmm. Then you start escalating really quickly. Like, I wonder, I'll probably do like, I want everybody to just, fly into the air and hover in the air. Mm -hmm. That'd be cool. Everybody. And then you're like, oh, life is meaningless. Like why does, like you, you go, I feel like you get, uh, no, I actually, that'd be a really interesting experiment. Like what are the limits? Like, are we all capable of becoming psychopaths essentially? Like, I'd like to believe not. Uh, there's a very hard limits on that. Like in our own mind, like of basic compassion. Because I love being compassionate towards other human beings. Mm. And it's one of the things I think about if you give me power, like a lot of power, like absolute power. And I think that's this, the power you mentioned is the scariest kind of power. Because it's like, it's not even power in this normal world. It's like magical power mm. where you lose. It's like dream world power where you, like video game power. You don't even think of it as reality. You could just mess with the world. And I feel like that's terrifying. Yeah, you basically I, be God. God, yeah. But without like, I feel like the idea of God wants to like kind of keep things like functioning properly. And then you'd probably, would, if you wanted to keep them functioning properly, yeah. then it yeah. would rapidly, like you would never experience a time where you're like, oh no, that was a mistake. Because as soon as you, like before you even experienced that, the world would shift to, to match it. Oh, interesting. No, I think I would actually, I, I take it back. I think I would regret the first time I hurt somebody See, in, in my visualization, it was like a video game where everybody's like NPC, really dumb. Mm. No, I think the first time I, I witness pain from anybody, that's when I would stop. And I would probably run into that very quickly. Mm. Like, like even just the hovering, make a person hover, and they're gonna be probably really upset with the hovering, right? And so I'm gonna be like, no, don't do that anymore. <laughs> and then I'll probably go to, honestly, I'll just return back to my normal life. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that's see, that's kind of what I feel like. Like, if I had the power to do anything, I think I would probably want to have a life very similar to where I am now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's it's like with Uber, like it'd be probably more convenient to do certain things. But even then, like the struggle, like I got a flat tire, so I have to fix that. I kind of the the flat tire makes makes everything more beautiful. It's like cool. I could do like a normal manual thing. Uh, but also it makes you like appreciate your car, appreciate transportation, appreciate the convenience of transportation, all of it. I, I, know, I know some people who would like call this a bunch of copium, like you're just sort of making do with what you have. Like yeah. we wouldn't go back to Amish times or like pre-technology because to like in order to make ourselves appreciate sure. things more. And so this seems like a hindsight reasoning, uh, which like I can appreciate that argument, but I don't know. I, I'm like... I Anyone kind of, who uses, sorry to interrupt the word copium in their um, 
in their argumentation. Mm. Um, uh, I think is sus. Is sus. Say. Yeah. Is sus my entire argument is now? No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted rudely the flow of thought. Uh, but you, you, so you, you don't think so? In, in part, you disagree with that kind of argument. Um, yeah, because I, I, I think people have this idea that if you, uh, like, come to accept or like find meaning in what you have now, this is sort of at odds with trying to improve it. And right. I don't find this to be the case. I find like the attempt to improve it to also be part of it. Yes. Like I enjoy the fact that there's something like problematic going on because now I get the experience of like striving to make it go away. Mm -hmm. And like that in itself is where the meaning lies. It's not just that things are bad. It's that there's things are bad and we're trying to stop it. And also. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, there's. If you combine that with a sense of optimism that the future can be better. Yeah. That mm -hmm. feeds, feeds into this productive effort of making things better. And it somehow makes the vision of the things that are better more intense, having experienced shitty things. Yeah. So we talked about free will and consciousness and what drives human civilization. Question left unanswered. Uh, it's a homework problem for the reader. Okay. <laughs> Let's. I get like a scoreboard at the end, the amount of questions. The, way, the answer? Successfully versus not. Like polls. Yeah. Can we talk about some practical things? Sure. Uh, so one of the many amazing things, I think of you as a researcher, uh, but you've also been uh, doing research in the field. <laughs> yeah, field work. <laughs> field work. <laughs> the Jane Goodall of sex work. How did you get, uh, what's the the short and the long story of how you got into sex work? How did I get into sex work? Well, the, I mean, there's a whole like childhood thing where I was conservatively homeschooled. Uh, Do you want to actually talk about your childhood? I think it's interesting because you also worked at a factory. So like your childhood yeah. is really fascinating uh, and difficult, uh, traumatic. So, um, and you've written about it. There's a lot of ways we can talk about it, but maybe what are the things you remember, the good and the bad of your childhood, of your maybe interaction with your father? Yeah, my dad probably has narcissistic personality disorder. And so uh, it, it was very centered on very controlling childhood, uh, immensely so. Um, we were homeschooled and pretty isolated from the outside world. Like we didn't know anybody else who wasn't homeschooled. We went through a program called Growing Kids God's Way, um, which was very, it was like the kind of program where you're not supposed to pick up babies when they cry to train them that they can't manipulate the parents. Because like baby crying was viewed as like, uh, you're just teaching them from an early age that they're allowed to make the parents do what the kids want. Yeah. And we're very against this philosophy. So, you know, that combined with a narcissistic personality disorder, dad was pretty rough. Uh, so controlling. Super controlling, yeah. And developing and feeding the self-critical aspect of your brain. Yeah, very much. It was, you know, I was like lazy, but I was never going to accomplish anything in life. I was going to move out of the house and realize how good I had it at home, you know, the classic stuff. Uh, he was very like logical and smart though. And so he'd also like teach us logic stuff. I remember some of my earliest memories are him like giving me basic logic puzzles. Like the dog has three legs, you know, how many dogs have four legs? And I, I, I would mess up and, uh, but he was, he was a evangelist, basically a Christian evangelist. So we did like Bible study five nights a week. I memorized, I think 800 verses of the Bible by the time before I became an adult, um, yeah, it was, and it was very patriarchal also. So I was expected to grow up and become a housewife 
basically. They're like, oh, you can go to college to meet a man and also to get a little bit of education so that you can homeschool your own kids. Like we were explicitly told that women were subordinate to men um, in regards to like making decisions when you're married. Our pastor's daughter was not allowed to leave home because she would be outside of the authority of a man. So when she got married, she was allowed to leave because she was never allowed to live in a house where she was not uh, under a hierarchy. So this is like the kind of culture that, that we live in. So there's in. a hierarchy and uh, there's a gender aspect to the hierarchy. There's men at, men at the top of that hierarchy. Men at the top. Okay, but your own psychology, your own mind. Um, so m most of that self-critical brain is bad, right? It was confusing because he told me I, that I was smart, but also that I would fail. Uh, right. But I, I, but think, not smart enough, right? Or like smart, but not smart enough. Smart, that... but like not virtuous or something. Okay, there's, so there's okay, right? There's always a a, a flaw. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's always a flaw. I think a lot of it was uh, a lot of the the fucked upness of my brain came from feeling like I didn't have the authority to think because it was so like carefully like suppressed. Like the my ability to like express or have any sort of power was just absolutely annihilated. Like systemically, like psychologically, they would do like psychological torture mechanisms to make sure that like I wasn't actually thinking on my own so or like being able to deviate from anything anybody ever told me to the degree that it's still ingrained in me. Like I once was with a friend we were traveling and he wanted me to hop a turnstile. It was like very late at night. The train was here and I could not physically force myself to do it. Like he was like yelling at me like, come on, do it. Like, like no, but I was trying so hard to make my body cross the line. And it was just, it's like embedded in my physical being to like be unable to do stuff like that, which is really annoying. So you're not free to take action in this world? Yeah, some of them. So it's that that was I think the the most annoying part of the my upbringing. Would you classify it as like suffering? At the time, yeah, definitely. Well, it's it's confusing because like when when I was a child, it was it was just painful in the sense that like things suck, but it was placed in a meaning framework, right? Like it is good, it is virtuous to submit to your parents and do what they want. If they tell you to say goodbye to your best friend forever and never talk to them again, you go do that without complaining. And so, like, I would go do something like that, and I would, like, it would suck. It really was, like, mm -hmm. concretely painful, but it was also placed in this narrative where I was, like, fulfilling some sort of greater purpose. True. Uh, and so, so it's very confusing to refer to it as suffering, because there's so many painful things we do today that are placed in the narrative of a greater purpose that, like, I think I would agree with. Like, I go get a medical procedure done, and that sucks, but I'm like, ah, this is helping me. Mm -hmm in the long run. But like, say if I got abducted to an alien planet and they're like, by the way, all of those medical procedures you got done, like you didn't have to get them done. Those are totally unnecessary. Then I might get really upset about it. Yeah, I wouldn't trust those aliens though, because they probably <laughs> want to do different medical procedures. This is true. I, did, I, saw, I, saw some, uh, I saw a thumbnail uh, for a video that I'm proud of myself for not clicking on about a man who has claimed that he had sex with aliens. And I was like, oh, for not clicking on that? Because I was wondering, because because I, I would pro probably watch it for like twenty minutes, and then I should be doing work. Oh, I see. So like I, and I, I and I'm actually happy because I get to imagine what is the, all the different possibilities that could have been for that man who had. Did you have like a really high like resting happiness state? Yes. Yeah. That's probably cool. like a mushroom state. Yeah. Wow. Do you do mushrooms? I've done mushrooms before. It was very awesome, cool. but like more intensely awesome. But but like like because I was just looking at nature, it makes nature even more beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think, but it's already it's already pretty beautiful. I haven't done MDMA. Um, mm. People say that I, I should. It's very nice. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, um, but I, I'm already, yeah. Rest, what did you call it? Resting happiness state? I, yeah. High resting happiness. happiness. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's a good, that's a good way to describe it. But it's not like some of it is genetic that you're able to notice the beauty in the world. And some of it is practiced where you realize focusing on the negative things in life, like unproductively is, uh, it's, it just doesn't help your mind flourish. Mm. So like you just notice that and it's like, I mean, I, I think people with like depression uh, learn that or like pr probably with trauma too is like there's certain triggers. Like if you're, if you suffer from depression, you have to kind of consciously know there's going to be triggers that will spiral, like force you to spiral down. And so just avoid those triggers. Some people have that with diet, with food and so on. And so I just don't like, whenever there's uh, shitty things happening or shitty people, Unless I can help, unless unless I can somehow help, like why why focus on it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, back to your up upbringing. What uh, what was the journey of escaping that? Um, I well, I left home like kind of early um, because my my dad and I were not getting along by the time I was a teenager. Um, but I was still Christian for a while. And I lost my faith after I think I moved it away and I started having friends that weren't religious or like weren't raised in this super conservative env environment that I came from. And I think uh, I this was not conscious at the time. This is my hindsight story. But I believe that like being exposed to a culture in which I had the capacity to believe like allowed my brain to actually seriously consider the thought that maybe all of this stuff was untrue that I'd been taught like 6,000 year old earth and evolution is a lie, you know, macro evolution and all of this stuff. Uh, because like when you're, when you're in, immersed in an environment like that, I don't think you actually have a choice. Like your brain has to believe these things because this is a survival thing. Like if you believe this, you'll be like, if you believe the wrong thing, you'll be totally cast out. Even if they're not going to cast you out, you're going to be cast out in like communion with others because we were always told that you can't like trust non-believers really they don't have a moral compass they're gonna screw you over and so i'm like oh i can't be that like everybody's gonna outcast me internally yeah so anyway i wasn't i don't think i actually had the capacity to seriously question my faith even though i thought that i was questioning it quite hard until i got into an environment where it was safe to do so and once i started being able to make friends who were not religious i'm like oh if i lose my faith i'm still gonna have some sort of community um and then at that time i, I went through some questioning and then i lost my faith and so in that, given your friends, given your situation, you have you you now have the freedom to think essentially, mm -hmm. so or at like, least the ability to think of something that was acceptable in the new culture. Yeah. Without, I mean, is there a danger of like adopting the beliefs of the new culture? So like, there's some aspect of just being able to think freely, which you weren't able to do when you were growing up, mm -hmm. just to think, like look at the world and wonder how it works, that kind of thing. I mean, you were, but within certain boundaries, like it, there are certain basic assumptions. And as long as you were following those basic assumptions, which is to be fair, is like kind of what we're doing now. Like we have, I have I gone and done the personal research that like evolution is the thing that's going on? Have I looked at like the age of the stones? No, I haven't. I'm trusting other people. Yeah. Uh, which I think is like a fair choice to make given where I'm at right now. But you're also assuming like there's causality in the universe. Time is real. Yeah. That... Like that, first of all, the thing that your senses are perceiving is real. You're assuming a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I think like it's better just to become aware of the assumptions you're making, like as opposed to not making those assumptions at all. Mm -hmm. Like you have to assume something. And I did, it's very suspicious, right? That I went out of this 
very conservative culture. And now, I, well, I guess I don't believe things that are super in line with the current culture. I think this is why I, th- I feel a little bit safer right now, because like when I was Christian, I believe generally Christian things. But now I believe a bunch of things that like people really hate. Like I get canceled online all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is a sign that maybe you're thinking independently if you're like able to think things that are completely at odds with the people around you. And and to be fair, this is a le- little bit easier to do when it's like general culture, but it's, it's much harder to do with your peer group. Like the people that you trust, your friends, the people whose opinions you respect, like disagreeing with those people is very difficult and I'm not very good at it. Yeah. I do think that if you establish yourself as a person who can be trusted and is a good human being, you have a lot more freedom to then explore ideas that are different from your peer group. So like those those seem like if you separate the space of ideas versus some kind of like deeper sense of what this person is, like that that this, they're an mm. interesting and trustworthy and good human being. Well, like is there somebody that you respect who you consider significantly smarter than you? And can you imagine believing an idea that you've heard them talk really disdainfully about? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. how would you feel coming yes. to me? Like, I believe this thing that you find to be. Yeah, I do all the time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Maybe braver than me. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, I support doing this. Like, I try to do this. But I think, like, con- like subconsciously, I notice oh. that I'm, I don't do it as much. And so I'm suspicious of myself. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I'm hiding to myself like actual curiosity about things that might deviate from my peer group because I notice that I'm not actually deviating with them as much as I do with the outside world. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like, because I do see most people I interact with as smarter than me, but I also have this intuitive feeling that uh, dumb people, which I consider myself being, have wisdom. (laughs) So like in the disagreement, actually, I also believe in the power of conversation and in the tension Mm -hmm. of disagreement. So I think even just disagreeing from a place from a good place, from, from from a place of like love and respect for each other. I think I just believe in that. So it's not like individuals you're disagreeing, you're like working towards arriving at some deeper truth together, right? Even if the other person is is uh, is smarter. Maybe that's, maybe that's how I justify it for myself. I just, I'm also a fan of conversations because like I've seen just uh, listening to conversations, it seems like a great conversation more emerges from it than the, the sum of its parts, right? Like somehow two people together can do, like that dance of ideas can somehow create um, create a cool thing. By the way, I enjoyed, uh, I saw a video of you dancing at a bar drunk. <laughs> it wasn't the bar drunk, it didn't look drunk, but just the dancing. Uh, it was like ballroom dancing type of thing. I was yeah, like, yeah. Something like that. I've uh, been doing a bit of tango dancing, I like really? it. Argentine? Mm-hmm. Nice. I like stuff with the body in general, like uh, like wrestling or combat. Like usually, when there's a tension, you have to understand the mechanics of, of how two bodies move when they're in conflict. And dancing is similar. <laughs> like you have to do like rapid thinking, mm-hmm. also like rapid intuitive physical thinking, and that's my favorite kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of exercise is really boring to me because you you can just do it while your brain's off. But something like ballroom dancing or fusion dancing, like you have to constantly be like figuring out, like it's a rapid puzzle. And that's What's so fusion? wonderful. What's fusion dancing? Uh, that's the video. It's, uh, fusion dancing is like, if you have any sort of dance background, you can come and you just kind of mix those together. Oh, just so you can have like improvise. people doing ballet with people doing cool. ballroom with that's people fun. doing blues. Cool. And then there's an interesting dynamic because there's, I don't know, maybe you can correct me, but there's, uh, uh, that's very meta. There's usually a lead and a follow. Mm-hmm. I guess most dancers have that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, but both have a different, like you both have to be quite sensitive to the other human being, but 
but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, so I like both that there is that definitive role, mm-hmm. but also like it's not somehow that one is better than the other. There's an interesting tension between the two. Yeah. yeah. It's good because it's like a basic rule set that allows for a ton of expression. I've recently started to experiment experiment with like reverse leading. It's not like back leading. It's like, I don't know. Like sometimes I'll like. So you can lead, lead as a follow. Oh, you can lead. When like, I'm, when I'm typically following, I'll like occasionally throw in a little lead here and there. But don't is, you, but don't you kind of always, oh, I see. But the, Don't you hit, hint at a lead when you're following like can't, don't you just by the, the dynamics of your movement you're not perfectly following i mean because it is like the lead is listening to your body right yeah so like you're kind of both figuring out what you do next that's true I, i'm a very good follow though okay so i'm oh, like i'm, sure. I'm like i'm an invisible follow you do a move it's like a Oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm not like good at technique. I didn't know those existed. Like a perfect follow. Oh, yeah, so perfect. you could perfect follow. I really ideal. I'm I'm not great at technique and sometimes I'll fall over, but like with the following part, I'm very good at it. Do you enjoy following? Yeah, yeah. It's really nice. It's the, again like it's a very fast physical puzzle you have to solve. It's like typing. I really like typing. That's why I was inquiring about your keyboard earlier. Why do you like typing? Because it's like the very fast, like the really rapid response was the reaction time. I like things that like have very fast reaction times. Mm-hmm. Like games like that. But typing is not a reaction. Or is it the brain generating words? And then you're like, how's typing a reaction? Well, okay, the sensation that I get when I am typing is the kind of thing that I'm trying to point at. So maybe maybe reaction time isn't the quite, I don't know what the term is, but whatever that thing is. Like the thing where you have to like look at a word and then communicate it into your fingers. Yeah. It feels like dancing. Like you're responding. You're responding to your brain. Your fingers are doing the responding to the brain that generated the words. Yeah. Making your body do what your brain wants it to do, but like, Fast and precisely. Well, then you might not like this Kinesis keyboard because it makes the it makes it easier to do that. You probably like the struggle, right? No, you, well, I mean it, that it looks hard because you have it looks like it's high depression on the keys. No, it's well. Oh, I see. Yes, l- more than more than like a laptop keyboard, but yeah. like that you don't have to. One of the the main things is you don't have to move your fingers at all. So like, um, mm. so like for example, a lot of people that I think they have a backspace up in the top right corner. Yeah. And so if you have to make mistakes, which is like, I mean, that's like so metaphorical. Like every mistake you have to like really hurt yourself for. <laughs> you have to like stretch for the backspace. <laughs> so there's that poetic narrative again. It's it's, it's it like it emanates it like a lot of the, your perspective. Everything. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. And I see it as a, as a, as, a, as a good thing. It's a good, uh, like yeah. a a romantic element permeates my interpretation of the world. Yes, but you uh, you left home early. Mm-hmm. How did you end up working at a factory? Well, I tried to go to college, but failed. Couldn't afford it. Did um, you like it? I remember it just being really slow. I remember being shocked that the teachers didn't care. Like I was used to homeschooling. Yeah, and. And the, where, I don't know, like educate, it just like it meant something. It felt like the people around me that were teaching me, because we had like a mom's group also, like directly cared about what I was learning. And I would be able to ask questions and they would like really respond. What's a mom's group? Um, it was like a homeschooling group. So where a bunch of moms who are homeschooling their kids get together and then teach each other's kids. Oh, cool. Yeah. And they have different like interests and capabilities and so on. And they kind of. And sometimes if some of the kids are really good at something, you have like the older kids teaching the other ones too. 
So it's very like everybody kind of figures out what they can good at and they sh share that skill set with everybody else, which I think was a pretty great setup. Honestly, I think my childhood kind of sucked in a lot of ways, but homeschooling was excellent for me, mainly because it just had so much free time. Like I was just did like two to three hours of school and then did whatever the fuck I wanted for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And I got to actually pursue skills that are still useful for me to this day. So even in that constrained environment. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wrote, I read fantasy books and I wrote so much. And now I'm now I'm writing a lot on my blog. So what kind of fantasy books? Like sci-fi sci type stuff? Um, like classic. Like I read, um, like Mercedes Lackey and uh, the E. E. Knight and um, Ursula Le Guin and. I don't know any of this. What is this? What what is it? Is it like a romantic thing? Or is it like is it romance? Just, just all the fantasy books, like dragons and oh, dragons. Spells. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. You didn't mention Tolkien for the fantasy. I read. I read Tolkien. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it's, it's beautiful. So you you uh, through all the dragons. Uh, how did you end up in the fact? Did you try school? Yeah, yeah. Try school. Okay, had to drop off a couple months, and then I was like, well, I'm poor, and uh, I was I was ready to take any job. I was like applying for sewer jobs, and then. I got a factory. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Because my parents know no financial help at all. They're like, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know. So anyway, I went to work at a factory and that sucked ass. Do not recommend. We had to work up, wake up like 4 a.m., you know, work on weekends too. Fluorescent lights. It was terrible. And so I, I did that for about a year. And I was like, this is, I was trying to grip my teeth and be like, this is my life, right? But I didn't have high expectations for my life. I was just like, I thought like if you get a job where you don't have to be on your feet all the time, that's, that you're living mm -hmm. a good life. But, and then I got another job briefly as a photographer and then they fired me. I think I was 19 at the time. Um, fired you for like, I was just, I was just too young the, and really, really bad at interacting with people in the outside world. Like I was pretty well socialized as a homeschooler with other homeschoolers, but in the outside world, especially with all of the like hierarchy submission stuff beaten into me, like literally beaten into me, it was very difficult for me to interact with other people who were like older than me or had any sort of confidence at all. Uh, so they hired me to do like photography for people. And then I was rapidly <laughs> turned out that I was bad at this. And so they fired me. But at that point I'd left my factory job. I'm like, I can't go back to the factory. So I tried, I had some savings and I slept on friends' couches and I tried various self-employment stuff i'm like oh maybe i can do product photography or something but no, it's idaho you know nothing is and if you're like a 19 year old with no experience in the outside world at all it was really difficult and so i had a friend recommend that i try becoming a cam girl so that's how it started what's what what is uh what is camming what is being a cam girl what's that camming about? is like you talk to the camera live on the computer like you live stream it's kind of like twitch and then people are typing in the chat like, hi, do this stuff. And then the people can tip you money mm -hmm. and then you can do things in response. Like, oh, if you tip me a hundred tokens, you know, I'll take my shirt off or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, what's the, what site were you using at that time? My free cams. My free cams? Yeah. Is that a popular site? Yeah, it's pretty popular. Okay. And how did, um, what were the next steps? Like, did you enjoy it? Oh, well, it was the first time I had actual control over my life. Mm -hmm. and I made like actual real money. And so I just exploded into it. I thought about it nonstop. I was streaming all the time. I was like coming up with like new creative things. And the thing is like, I don't know, I, there's something about public school that I, I ended up living in a house of cam girls full of other girls who had gone to public school. And I don't know if how much of it's genetic or like just because I'm weird or is it because of our upbringing, but I felt like I was much more fearless and much more weird and creative online mm -hmm. than other people were. Not because they weren't awesome people, but because I think like public school, I got the impression based on them talking about it, that it sort of like beats out any sort of deviance from you. Like- it More so than your, cause I, I, I got the- Oh yeah, we had moral deviance was beaten out, but like 
you could do whatever. Creative deviance. Creative deviance wasn't so much. Like, I didn't have other kids making fun of me ever. I didn't, I don't think I'd ever heard an insult about my physical appearance as a child or teenager once. So your father was basically saying you're not good enough was intellectual. Oh, no, that was like moral failing. Moral, moral failing. Yeah, like I was not, not virtuous. Not oh, virtuous. wow. Like in various okay. ways, like, you know, like you're lazy and sure. mostly the <laughs> lazy part. <laughs> I, have like, I have like ADHD or something. Uh, yeah. And it was, I was not good at it as a kid either. I would totally forget all the time. And Is there some sexual repression aspect to that? Like, uh, you know how they say that there's... Um, it's, it's it's not just homeschooling, but just like Catholic girls and so on. Just because like there's moral, you're forbidden to do certain things. Like there's a kind of liberating feeling of saying, like basically rediscovering yourself, rediscovering your freedom by doing, just uh, diving head in, head first into sexuality, into your own sexuality. Is yeah. there some aspect of that? Yeah, ab absolutely to some degree. I think that like people kind of model it slightly wrong. Like I think there's a, a truth to it, but- when I first got out of the house, for me, freedom was like going outside at 2 a.m. Yeah. Or like eating chocolate, yeah. you know, on days that I previously wasn't allowed to eat chocolate. Like that was like a really intense expression of rebellion for me. Yeah. And I think people like don't think of this. Like like I got out a lot of my like intense rebellion through things that people don't typically consider to be rebellious at all. Sure. Like I wore a bikini. Yeah. Insane. Uh, and just like walked around in it and like, <laughs> I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so like this was most of that emotional processing for me. Um and I took me a couple years from leaving home and all of that conservative culture into doing sex work. In in the meantime I was I did try having sex with a lot of people, but this was mainly because I didn't know what the norms were. I didn't really understand. I was just like okay, take things logically, take things one step at a time. And I'm like okay, if the whole previous set about like how I'm not supposed to kiss somebody until the altar of marriage if that's not the way that things are supposed to go, then what is the way things are supposed to go? And I was like, well, if I am aroused, I should go have sex with someone, right? Is there any reason not to? No. So I went, I just, I would go around asking random people to have sex with me. Did you have any peer pressure saying like, that's not good or that is good? Or like any, did you feel any currents of society in any direction? Is probably, or, or, or were you independently just thinking like for, for first principles? I think, I, I mean, I, like, I'm not saying it was a totally a clean thing. I'm sure that I was experiencing society telling me this is bad. But you have to know, like, I wasn't watching normal movies when I was a teen. Like, we watched Christian movies. We, our, our, the stuff that we watched was filtered. Like, I watched the Titanic, and I had no idea that Jack and Rose had sex because it was put through a filtered— Wait, did they? Yeah, they went and—you know, he painted her naked. And yeah, yeah. There was a scene in a car on the, the ship. car? Oh, on the ship. Yeah, on the sh they had, like, storage, cars in storage, and these, there's a hand. I, I watched it again later. And I was like, I don't oh remember my the God. sex scene. It's well, maybe were you also put through a, a no, filtered maybe version? I, <laughs> maybe it's the filter I see. Like, did the couple in the notebook also have sex? Because maybe for romantic I movies, I focus on the romance. Mm -hmm. Maybe, right? And the sex scenes are always like weirdly filmed in these. Yeah. Because it's never, I mean, it doesn't, it feels more like romance than sex. I guess that's the main focus of this, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so they had sex. It's good to know. They, now. they did. I'll go back and and watch. Now <laughs> you have your own fact personal filter on your brain. And once you realize that there, are some um, like the foundation of your beliefs were wrong, then everything might be wrong, and you kind of just doing from yeah, first like principles. From first principles, basically. And again, like not totally separate from culture, but also I think in general I also have a predisposition to just be like, you know, fuck what culture tells you. Just figure out what's right for you and do it. And so that mixed with, you know, the figuring things out from first principles. I did eventually figure out that I didn't like having casual sex with just anybody. 
quite as much. So I stopped that, but it took me a while to figure that out. What's the negative of casual sex? It's just like not good. I mean, if you like figure out the chemistry you have with someone better, then that then it can be a lot nicer. But I wasn't doing that. I was just like somebody I met and I'm like, you seem kind of cute. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't bother to try and develop this, any chemistry. I mean, I didn't Chemistry know. even outside of sex, just chemistry, like human chemistry. Yeah, like just basic. Conversation. Yeah. Okay. I would, I would, I'm, it's like kind of cringy, but I would like, I would like walk up to guys or send them messages. Like, would you like to have coitus? Is what I would say. You would say coitus. I said that. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of cute in a way. It's I just, mean, you, you, it's a girl asking you to get laid, so they probably didn't care that much. <laughs> but anyway, I'm saying that like, I had a lot of rebellion out of my system by the time I started sex work. Yeah. Um, so like for me, I'm like maybe I'm sure it was somehow related because we were extremely sexually repressed growing up. I remember the day I learned I had a vagina, which was absolutely horrifying. Uh, do not recommend figuring out you have another orifice in your body. Um, but like, do you want to share the process of you figuring out that you had a vagina? Just or they that... told me I had a vagina. <laughs> oh, like intellectually, like there was somebody said you have, you have a, a vagina, vagina, yeah, and that was horrifying to you. Yeah, I didn't know I had. Because you weren't supposed to ever like touch or look at yourself ever. So I never did. It was was really disgusting. And so I had no idea that what was going on in my genital region. And so one day my mom sat me down. I think it was like nine or 10. And she was like, you have a, (laughs) there's another. What? (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to bleed out of it is what Uh, she told me. Well, You're going to bleed out of it for a while. And I was like, what the fuck, mom? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know Uh, the word fuck was, but. I would have said that if I had known. When did you first learn the word fuck? Oh, I think I learned it when I was at a playground and it was written somewhere mm-hmm. and I read it out loud and then a kid next to me started giggling. Mm-hmm. Did you ever, did you say fuck again no. for a while? No, I think the next time I said, I, I swore the first time when I was 18. Like intentionally said a swear word when I was 18. Did it feel good? I was like really nervous. I was like nervous. What's your favorite swear word? I mean, fuck's pretty good. Yeah, fuck's pretty good. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so that's camming. I mean, what are the the pros and cons of camming, and how does OnlyFans map into this? Did you switch to OnlyFans at some point? I did, yeah. I came for like five or six years, and I burned out eventually. What are the good aspects? What are the bad aspects of camming? Well, the good aspects were that it was just your own terms. You get to decide. Everything about it is under your control, which I loved at the mm-hmm. time. I was like, I can work when I want, how I want, any sort of expression. I experimented, and I was very successful. I was making around two hundred dollars an hour, which for that website at the time was like pretty good. Um, I had elaborate routines. I was a mime. I would do like su- dress up as a mime and then dress up a chair and I would seduce the chair. Oh, cool. Yeah. Or like. So it was, almost, it was, was there an artistic element to it almost? Yeah, very much. I Did had like gnomes. Did you talk to the chair? Uh, you had gnomes? No, I was a mime. You don't. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, get it straight, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Said, you know what I really appreciate about you is I'm asking some really dumb questions and you're answering it in a very intelligent way. So I appreciate that. All right. Uh, did you ask the chair questions? I was a mime, you fucking idiot. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But there's gnomes on the, yeah, like big gnomes. gnomes or small gnomes? Like lawn gnomes. Lawn gnomes? Lawn. And you seduce the lawn gnome on the chair, the gnome is sitting on the chair? There were some, yeah, gnomes on the chair. I, I did a photo set, which I submitted to Reddit, where I got abducted. I was like stripping, uh, taking my clothes off, and then slowly the gnomes surrounded me in the background and then dragged me off. And I oh. did this as a photo set. And I, Consensually? I, I mean, I mean, I didn't feel consensual in the photos, but. Okay. <laughs> but it was the, the 11th not top post with of the gnomes. The, uh, it was very successful on Reddit, basically. 
is the top post in Gone Wild and the 11th top post of all time. So, oh, that, which I think will probably just means it's like, it's it's artistic, it's interesting, it's yeah. edgy, it's funny, so it's really, really well done. But it was really shocking to me that nobody else was doing anything creative with sex yeah. work. Like for me, it was it was like breathing. Like you're just doing sex and you're bored. I'm like, what do you do? I don't know, let's try something funny. Like it's just the natural progression. Mm-hmm. And it felt to me like there was almost no competition. Like I would just be really creative and like immediately it was the top not safe for work post on Reddit. I'm like, well, I didn't even try that hard. And mm-hmm. so it's really, it's really shocking to me that, that other women who are doing this sort of thing. Is that uh, still a little bit of the case? Like uh, that, that yeah. there's not as much like, because I, from my sort of outsider perspective, that seems to be still the case. Like there's not, like as you describe it, that's kind of cool. That's like almost like f- playing, like having fun with sexuality almost. Yeah. That's, and yeah, but that does require kind of thinking through it's almost like a creative project, like a like a photography project or something like that. Almost like a little skit yeah. movie. It's interesting. It's, it's this vibe of like how can you like bring like vibrant novelty to whatever yeah. you're doing, anything you're doing. Yeah. And I really like doing this with surveys too. Like I've been doing a lot of standard surveys, but I'm also like experimenting with novel, creative, artistic yeah. surveys. I'm like, how do you ask a question in a way that's like beautiful and unusual yeah. and like a thing that's completely groundbreaking? Like nobody's ever like you, you always make everything so poetic and romantic is disgusting. No. <laughs> Uh, but yes, the, I think you ju- have that engine in your head, I guess, of creativity. Like, yeah, the way you ask questions, which is not trivial to do, like for, uh, it's, it's actually very difficult to do, like good survey questions. Mm. And I mean, we're joking, but like, yeah, almost like poetic because you have to ask a question in a way that doesn't lead to the answer. Yes. Like you have to, you have to kind of inspire them to think and then indirectly get at the truth. It's, right. it's just very, it's a, it's an art form, uh, honestly. Yeah, and also in a way where they don't misinterpret the question because you, it's amazing how you, any question you think, oh, this is the clearest question possible. No, you're wrong. It has to be even clearer. Right, willingly or unwillingly. Cause like you, you also have to defend against that question being criticized later when you publish about it. Mm. All of that, you have to think about yeah. it all. I, I think this might be my greatest strength. So I'm not very good at statistics. I'm not like great at presenting data, but I think probably my greatest strength is in fact survey design and like question phrasing. Because I've I've I have tweeted so many thousands of polls, and every single one I get people telling me like the way that they misinterpreted the poll. So it's like it's like You've become gone through fire. <laughs> and then again, I I'm testing the phrasings all the time. Like what happens if you slightly shift phrasings? And so I'll do the same question test over time to see how it changes and like, the way the the framing affects the results. So the the good and the bad of the camming. So you said good the what was it? I forgot. I mean, you said freedom. the freedom. Yeah. The freedom to be also be to be creative. Yeah. And the bad is just it was exhausting. The the site that I was on, the way that it's structured is that you're ranking on the site and thus the amount of people that see you and thus the amount of money you are on, you earn, is affected by the amount of money that you earn on average over the last 60 days. So if you're streaming and nobody's tipping you, this means that you're going to be dropping down in the rankings, which is going to make it harder in the future. Oh, okay, so the rich get richer in that site? Yeah, so it's, it's very high pressure. Like if you're on, you need to be making money as fast as you can. If yeah. you want to continue to make money. Uh, so that was really stressful. It was very mentally taxing. I would do it for a couple hours and just log off and be completely exhausted because you're just like on as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. And this is why I have a little PTSD around uh, streaming. Like I've considered Twitch streaming and I try a little bit and and I'm, I'm like, I haven't fully integrated mm-hmm. the fact that you don't have to be like maximally entertaining every single second mm-hmm. yet. You can actually just chill out and take it slow and nothing bad happens. Yeah. Yeah. You can just enjoy silence. Yeah. Did you feel lonely doing it? I mean, even just streamers feel lonely. I moved like, into a house of cam girls. 
does that make it better or worse? <laughs> better. They're great. I'm still friends with them to this day. Oh, so it was like a team, almost like we're in this kind of together? Yeah. So we would like work together and, you know, stream together and swap our clothes and stuff. It was great. Swap ideas too? Swap like. ideas, yeah. And uh, actually on a small tangent, maybe a big tangent, what do you think is it's the recent controversy of Andrew Tate and that he, I think in the past, ran a camming business mm -hmm. and he's being accused of sex trafficking. What do you think, like from your own experience, what do you understand about Andrew Tate? Is he a good person? Is he a bad person? Is there something shady about his practices or not? I, I wish I could answer, but I don't know. I haven't looked into it at all. At I've all. heard people talking about it. I just haven't bothered to go into it. Okay. It is well known that, like, when I was doing it back in the day, that Eastern European models had something different going on, though. It was like a trope about, you know, there's the Eastern European models, and then there's everybody else. That they're what? It's like darker or something like, like that? Like, they do studios, and they're l lower quality. Which means what? Like, studios are, uh, you go into like a warehouse and then they have set up a little, like things that replicate bedrooms, yeah. but they're just like stalls. And then you give, you rent out or you pay the studio percentage of your income. And yeah. you can tell when something looks like a studio, it's like a type of background. Yeah. That if you're like watching enough, it kind of starts to you notice the patterns. So like the standards are lower there and the ethical boundaries are a little looser. Yeah. How people are treated. It's we didn't, I never heard anything about the ethical side, I just knew that it was like lower quality. Like mm -hmm. the girls seemed like they were less into it and like cared sure. less. How does this all interplay with like sex trafficking? So consensual versus not consensual. I would be shocked if there were never any non-consensual camming. Um, I mean, I guess it's like if it were going to happen, I wouldn't be surprised if it were in fact Eastern European models. Based on, this is outdated. This is, I'm just thinking of my stereotypes back when I cammed a lot. Sure. So some of that is stereotypes versus like collecting good data, right? Uh, yeah, I haven't done data on cam girl. It's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's even hard to get that data, right? Um, yeah. But obviously I, a really important problem. There's a method that I'm trying that I really like. I designed a survey type, which is like asking people who you know. Yeah. Like, who do you who do you know who's done this? And you tell me like, oh, do you know anybody who's a doctor? Do you know anybody who, you know, has had cancer or like smokes or... Personally, you mean? Yeah, personally. Just yeah. do you know anybody? Yeah. Um, and then if you ask a whole, about a whole bunch of things, you can calibrate the responses. So like... That's really interesting. If, you're, if your population, you know, 20% of them know doctors, and then you know the actual amount of doctors, then you can tell like how this is corresponding. Like, what is the visibility of doctors? So you can reconstruct the graph... Basically, yeah. And and we can do this with sex trafficking. And of course, people are going to be like, well, sex trafficking is not visible. People, you don't know those. I'm like, well, then we can ask about other non-visible things that other people don't know that we do have data for. Mm -hmm. Like homelessness or being in jail or like uh, if you have been like sexually assaulted. A lot of people don't like talking about if they've been sexually assaulted. So you can do a whole bunch of things that are like similarly suppressed in knowledge in some way that we do actually have rates for. Mm -hmm. And then compare that to the graph when we ask people, do you know anybody who's in sex trafficked? Yeah. So again, this is not perfect. I'm not saying this is ideal. But you can but like, infer things. You can infer things about that right. graph. But I'm saying we don't have good ways of measuring sex trafficking right now. Anyway, I did a big deep dive into the research that we have on sex trafficking in the Western world. And the actual, like I read the studies and like reports about the studies and it's really pitiful. We have terrible data. It's like, there's just like vague estimations made from one guy in a basement in the 80s. That's like the basis for like one big study that like a lot of people report on. It is, and so I'm like, okay, so the, the method I'm proposing, obviously it's not perfect, but like the bar is so low at this point. Well, I wonder also if there's a ways to design a survey that gets at the um, at the victims of sex trafficking also, which is they presumably have public access to the internet. Mm. And 
I wonder how many of them are distinctly aware that they're victims. Like it's asking the question it, when you're inside of a toxic relationship, are you inside of a toxic re relationship? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if the toxic relationship is truly toxic, sometimes your, your, your mind is fucked with, right? You're not, you don't even know what's true. Yeah. And so it's interesting if you can design surveys For that people who break, are actively sex trafficked. Uh, yeah, who break through that. Mm -hmm. So basically get data on how many people are getting sex trafficked directly. Oh yeah, like if you don't frame it, like if you don't say the word sex trafficking, yeah. you're like, are you just in a situation where you'd... And maybe through the survey, I mean, that's very meta, but through the survey, help them. You know, I did this, this is what started my relationship surveys. So I've done a series of relationship surveys and that was because I knew somebody in a terrible relationship. And I was like, I bet if she took a survey where she answered questions about her relationship and at the end got a score that compared her to everybody else, mm -hmm. she'd be like, oh wait, <laughs> everybody else has much better relationships than I do. So that's why I started making the relationship surveys was exactly for that reason. Yeah, that's really, really, really powerful to know that like you're not, you're not crazy for thinking this is a bad relationship. Right. Or I think like the actual question is like, could you do better if you broke up? And I think uh, that the thing that keeps most people in their relationships is like, this is the best that I can do. Right. And like, this is normal. And if if it were normal, I would say that they are right. Like if you live in a culture where everybody is abusing their, their people in their relationships, then yeah, you I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? Break up and then just be alone for the rest of your life? Most people don't want to do that. But now comparing yourself to the, to, to the average is good. To know, yeah. to know. Know your options are. Or at least understand it because, you know, being normal is not always, like this conversation is not always great. Um, meaning this this conversation is anything but normal. Okay, <laughs> and uh, that was a tangent on a tangent about a mm. niche passion, which is really fascinating that you're playing with those kinds of ideas of uh, survey design. Uh, but back to camming, so... Um, what were the cons? What were the negatives of camming? Oh, like the exhaustion of just like live, like the high pressure thing. Yeah. That was probably the worst thing. So not, was there, what about the interaction with different people? Like the dynamics of the interaction with the with, with the fans, I guess. I had a pretty great time. I mean, it obviously wasn't perfect because it's the internet, but I don't know. There's, I, there's a, this is the thing that confuses me a lot because a lot of women that I know complain about being harassed by men quite a lot. They're like, you know, men are always, you know, groping and harassed, you know, you, you have to be paranoid in the club. People are like, they're always huffing on you and you're just like, Jesus Christ, get away, man. And I do not have this experience. Or like, maybe I do, but I'm interpreting it differently. I don't know. But the thing is, I don't know what causes me to have such a different experience from these women that are like really, feel really uh, hostile towards men. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that there's some sort of like very subtle signaling that we're accidentally doing. We're like, no fault of our own. I'm not saying this is a virtue. I'm saying like, maybe it's just genetic or the fact that I'm The tall. women are doing? Yeah, that the women are doing, yeah. Okay. Like that, and th it might be just something I'm completely accidentally, through no intention, like happening to signal the thing that is causing men to not view me as like a desirable target or like a target at all. Well, what about the flip side? Maybe you're not sensitive to the 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 creepy stare. Yeah, that also might be true. The dude who's like, uh, like as undressing you with his eyes, that like in 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 a creepy way that you're just yeah. not, you don't like worry about it. You're or you're not touch like that the fear of that the anxiety of that the 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 unpleasantness of that just doesn't hit you i think that's also at least part of it maybe all of it yeah yeah i think there's there's some evidence for it i think often like guys will do a thing to me and i'm just like that's a thing cool i, I don't have any negative response whatsoever <laughs> that's 
call back to the tire. It's a thing. This is nice. This, <laughs> yeah. that, that happened. Well, it was good to know that can happen. Like, I once had like a homeless guy like ask me to come back to my place, baby. And I was like, this is fun. Yeah. Like, I'm like, do you want me to? I love asking men, like, are you trying to get me to have sex with you? Just yeah. like saying it out front. And they'll be like, well, <laughs> a little bit. usually they stop for a minute. They're like, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I would like to have sex. And they'll be like, thanks for asking, but I'm not interested in having sex with you. How do you have a good day? And then I walk away. <laughs> and that's great. I don't know. I have no issues with that interaction. But yeah. like maybe this is the kind of thing that other women would find to be really offensive. So you have that conversation and it doesn't turn into a, like a threatening feel. No. Like with a homeless guy. No. Not, I've never had that happen though. But I think there's just something. I think I'm doing something. Like again, this is kind of accidental. Like I just am like this always. And I think I just happen to be like this at people and they don't expect it. Yeah. Like they don't expect me to be like really nice while explicitly asking them what their intentions are. Like directly putting my finger on the thing that like, oh, you're trying to have sex with me. And then also not judging them for it. Yeah. Um, I think this like throws people off a little bit so they don't get aggressive. They're like, so, oh, you're autistic or something. Even the cloak of anonymity on the internet, you weren't getting Yeah, I, I just think I'm just not reactive and or maybe I'm giving off. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's both maybe it's a feedback loop so i just i had a pretty good experience i know not everybody did definitely people reported having antagonistic experiences but when i was camming i generally really liked people were really nice to me had a great time made friends so you also did uh, only fans as you mentioned and uh i read on a website so this is very investigative reporting that uh on some months you've made uh over a hundred thousand dollars on only fans mm -hmm. how did that feel great <laughs> really great <laughs> i mean like uh well actually because so much of your upbringing you didn't have money you had to struggle with the factory job and so on um maybe a good person to ask can uh money buy happiness uh well i mean i think you get like a resting set point of happiness regardless of how much money you have but money can buy being less stressed i would say is there a lot of variation in the um in the basic rest happiness for humans in general? Like, is that is that a good thing to so. think about? I mean, they've done some studies, but again, like, again, I'm not sure. I haven't actually read the study, so maybe they didn't replicate, where, like, they measured people bef before and after winning a bunch of money to see if their happiness was higher. Yeah. I think, like, it's by some measures it was, and by some it wasn't. No, I mean, like, basically almost genetically, so nature, nurture, but is there, let's say, after you're 18, is there, like, some stable level of happiness that all the environmental genetic factors combine to create so that everything that life throws at you uh, has to face that happiness. Like you mentioned earlier that I seem to be happy with a lot of stuff. So maybe I have a certain le level. Do other people have a lower level? Some people have higher level? Yeah, definitely. Like is there is that a useful or is, is that a useful model of human beings or is it all ups and downs? Like is it all like, well, I don't, like I mean, there's no like stable. combo, right? Like I don't know. Some people just are happier than others in general, and other people aren't. But then you also have ups and downs. Like, I'm sure you've experienced sadness sometimes and happiness the other times. Like, if I actually were to integrate, so have an integral under the, <laughs> the area under the, uh, under the curve, I don't know if I'm different than other people. Maybe I'm just, like, really focused on the happy moments and maybe feel the down moments most intensely. And maybe that, like, on average, it's all the same. Is that possible? I mean... Maybe I, I just I, I don't know. Like I remember when I was a kid, my mom would call me Pollyanna all the time because I was like finding the good in everything. Well, yeah, I'd be like something bad would happen. So you were a happy kid. I was a really happy kid. Yeah, even, even in the uh, in the harsh conditions. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like I think the harshness comes from the bad meaning. Like 
and I had good meaning applied to so it. You were a stoic. <laughs> I was, yeah. With another yeah. book I'm reading next week, tune in. Marcus Aurelius <laughs> Meditations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, camming 100K. So it felt good. So it's crazy though, right? You can just like take clothes off in a creative way with some gnomes and make a hundred thousand. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot more to it than that, but yeah. What was it? What's the, what's the difference? I mean, it's process? marketing. Like, so with, with only, uh, with my free cams, I was unusual in that I decided to do outside of the website marketing. I would like post on Reddit, right? Mm -hmm. This was very unusual at the time, but like OnlyFans is structured such that uh, they have almost no internal discovery whatsoever. So if you want people to come to your page, you have to go out onto external websites and advertise for yourself directly. Okay. Very different model. And so this is something I, I had already been doing and already had practiced in. And so I think I was like already quite advanced. Like I already had an account on Reddit that was like seven years old at the time. Tons of like karma that means I could post in subreddits. I already been on Twitter for years, you know, like posting actively. So I, I already had like presences on all these other platforms that really so helped with the conversion. Reddit and Twitter? Reddit, Twitter, FetLife, Instagram, TikTok. And you were still advertising creatively? So uh, like yeah. there's like sexuality, but there's also like creative sexuality yeah. and ideas too. Yeah, like one of the really popular ones was I like molested myself as a as a mime using a uh, a one arm through a jacket. And so the jacket looked like it was <laughs> uh, the jacket I'm looked sorry, like it was it's... alive and you know, and that one did really well. Did you like brainstorm with somebody and like I recently got to hang out with Mr. Beast and Mm. sit uh, uh, on a session of brainstorming different ideas. Mm. <laughs> I, I just envision you with like a team brainstorming. All right, how about we try the mime and the molesting thing? <laughs> I don't know, it's too too edgy. <laughs> I wish, I think the team would have been a lot more fun. But no, it's just me. Like I had an apartment that looked like kind of like this, you know, you just sit alone and you're like, well, that would be a good idea. And I'd, I'd seen, you just collect ideas over time, right? Like um, I'd, I'd seen somebody doing a version of the, like this, this, animated hand act like when i was a kid mm -hmm. and i just always stuck in my head and like one day i was like i bet i could do that and then when i was thinking, trying to think of ideas to do as a sex worker i was like why don't i just try that and then it turned out to be like like a really like quite a viral hit is there um is there stuff like you mentioned too edgy like mr beast tries to keep it pg yeah. Do you try to keep it PG-13? Well, with the sex advertising stuff, I mean, it's sex advertising, so it's obviously not PG-13. I don't know these ratings. What <laughs> is even beyond that? family-friendly. It is X. Like, in the, the one that I'm describing to you at some point, like, you can see my boob. So. As a boob is, is, is X. A boob is, I guess. It's not R. Maybe, maybe I think you R? can show a boob in PG-13. Yeah, maybe X is like if you got some sort of rhythmic motion going on. Maybe that sound, but the rhythmic with motion the sound. not. <laughs> you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. <laughs> you have both. That's when we hit the X. Yeah. Okay. So definitely not family. I mean, with the sex advertising stuff, like guys like vanilla shit. Guys want basic hot girl. You can do something like kind of sexy and creative, like getting abducted by gnomes or like the self-molestation, right? But those are still pretty within the, the normal boundaries. What do you mean guys like vanilla stuff? I mean, most guys like vanilla stuff. What's vanilla stuff? Like, See, hot we'll talk about horny. fetish. Fetishes. I, I think my uh, uh, Overton window on what is vanilla is expanding <laughs> quickly after following your work. But uh, yeah, what, what, what is I actually have done a lot of studies on what is vanilla. Like yeah. I've done a couple different surveys where I ask people like how taboo is this thing, and I have like a rating from least to most taboo. By the way, I, hate, I don't like, I don't appreciate the beauty of vanilla ice cream. You don't? 
It is really good, though. You eat vanilla ice cream? I eat vanilla ice cream, yeah. I think there's just so many more options. It's like the absence of creativity. I mean, if you put in like some chocolate chips or something. Yeah, they already made it more interesting. Um, it's a start. Okay, so what's vanilla? What And why do guys like vanilla? So hot girl doing hot girl things? What, like undressing and then yeah, having sex? The thing that I found was most successful were, were frames where the man was framed as passive and the woman is active. Or like, for example, uh, like, oh, you know, we got assigned to the same bunk uh, at the breeding school or something. Or like, yeah. oh, we're the last people on earth, right? Yeah. Or like, oh, no, I... Uh, you know, I like I desperately need somebody to like cure me with this disease, and I need semen. So it's like yes. in any scenario where the guy just like finds himself such that the woman like desperately needs him for some reason, and he doesn't yeah. have to do much. That is like typically one of the much more successful things. Like guys like women falling into their lap. What about the power dynamic? Um, so guys are less into power dynamics than women are, and you can do power dynamics as long as it's like handed to them. Uh, some guys, obviously, some guys are like very dominant and like prefer like having to work. But this is the minority. Like if you're trying to do make a hundred k in a month and you're trying to appeal to the widest group mm -hmm. of people, the most effective advertising, you're not going to be making the most money by being like particularly submissive. So on the camming side, that's your uh, unlike uh, like uh, escorting or just personal relationships. You're trying to you, you have an audience. You have like a theater full of people. Like with live camming? Yeah, with live camming. Yeah, it's like a live theater. Does that freak you out? There's just like a bunch of people watching. I mean, what? How do you feel right now? I don't. I don't know. They're watching because it's not live. Yeah, that's true. It's not live. So like, it might as well watching. be. Like, they could be watching. I feel like there's just the two of us. I don't. Okay. And there's like, I feel sometimes I imagine there's a third person. Like God. Usually, no, no, not not God. Just I usually imagine um, either a guy or a girl or a couple just sitting there for some reason, like usually on the beach and usually high or on some kind of like on mushrooms, just like listening passively, just kind of looking at the sunset. That's what I imagine. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. I think that's useful. Like when I write my blog posts, sometimes I do terribly, but it's the most effective when I imagine one person that I'm writing to, to try to explain. And like having a high couple watching the sunset is maybe really lovely as a calibration. I have to say it is pretty romantic. Because I've gotten a chance to meet couples that listen to podcasts together. Mm. I don't know why. That seems like intensely romantic to me. Because like, because you're not watching TV together. You're listening to a thing. I mean, I guess sometimes they watch it. But like, you're listening to ideas together. Mm. I don't know. It seems it's like you're going through the same kind of thought process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. That's a really beautiful way to put it. So it's like, you're melding your thinking is following the same line. Somehow podcasts do that more than movies. I think movies give you a lot more freedom to think about stuff. Mm -hmm. I feel like your thoughts are aligned. And like, especially if the if the podcast is good, like if it's listening to um, like a Dan Carlin podcast about history, that you're like on a journey together. Mm. Yeah, there's an intimacy to that anyway. Um, but I, I've, I've learned that there's couples do that, you know, hashtag relationship goals. Go ahead. That's what you want with your future wife with, with my yeah you should make an application application an application for dating you i mean maybe this is more of like my strategy and less yours but you have like a wide enough audience that might work i <laughs> it's not um this, this, okay l l let's just go there so because you, you put together an application of like uh, people to have casual sex with you i think You've had that uh, and also dating yeah and also dating in a relationship i'd love to so what is in that application because like you know, um, 
I'm sure there's a, quite a lot of people that would like to date you or to sleep with you, but finding the person, I mean, it depends what your goals are. I guess relationship would be an open relationship for you. Yes. Right. Like for me, I guess it's more intensely selective yeah. because it's like a monogamous relationship and a committed one. Like, like, like I'm, I'm swinging for the, yeah. Like for like long term. I'm not, I'm not like weirdly obsessed with long term, but it's like, you just, I would, I would love to have one girl for the rest of my life. But finding that, I feel like applications will not get to that. I feel like there's some aspect of the magic of the, the serendipity of it, of meeting people in strange places and so on. I, I just, yeah, I've like, personally have noticed that like fame has not made that process easier. But I mean, like if you could, you know, if there's two rooms and one of them, it's like a random population of hot women. And the other one is a random population of hot women, but all of them definitely are monogamous and are looking for a long-term committed relationship. Yeah. Like which room would you rather go into? Like if That's you're true. looking for a mate. Yeah, well, but see, I guess my preferences are more. That's that's it's a really strong point. But my preferences are represent the majority, probably, right? Because mm -hmm. don't most women want monogamous relationships? Yeah. So like, it's I'm okay with either option. Because mm -hmm. yeah. like statistically speaking, but I feel like we can apply it to like a bunch of other things. Yeah, and I'm just uh, this is just a problem if you have like high if you have a high volume to filter through and you like you don't know like it's a good like initial filter. Like you can take yeah, it from like a thousand people to 20 people and then go on dates with them. But the filter is so anti-romantic. Like what? <laughs> this is true. This is not the romantic narrative that uh, that you're like, very prone to. If I to. feel like, how did, how did you two meet? Well, she passed the three filters I set up. <laughs> and uh, I mean, but that's also, but also can you put into a survey the things that you're interested in? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think about this a lot with hiring, like like teams, engineers, and so on. But with engineers, you're okay losing truly special engineers mm -hmm. because you have to filter because there's like thousands of applications. Like it feels like it feels like I worry that you would miss the thing that actually. Because so much of it is chemistry, yeah, so much might. of it is like the magic, you know. But the thing is, you're missing it anyway. Like, yeah, you're missing it. It's just oh, sitting. you can just run it, and then in addition, try some of those people, and then but then go on the dates that you were going to go on, on with anyway, regardless. It's just the thing that helps like pull someone out of the crowd. Like this, I I dated a guy from my survey. I'd ran the survey. I I assigned point values to each of the questions. Yeah, I wanted a date with like the top couple people, and then one of them, I was like, and I'm still dating him to this day, and it was awesome. And uh, I would never, I never would have gone on a date with him without the survey. Can you, can you, if from memory or, or we can look it up, do you remember what kind of questions were on the survey? I asked a couple different categories. I asked about like basic life stuff. So like what kind of relationships, like monogamy versus polyamory, like do you want kids? You know, like where you want to live, like basic things that you need to be compatible. And then I asked like sexual compatibility, like various preferences. Mm -hmm. And then I had a section about like personality. Like what are, per I tried to ask questions that would do the most effective filtering. So like what are ways that like, I can't give give people what they need that like maybe they really want. Like I don't really, I'm not very outdoorsy. Uh -huh. It was just very common. A lot of people like being outdoorsy. So I asked the question like, how much do you value someone else that you're dating being outdoorsy? And if they marked yes, I was like, okay, we probably, I should probably downgrade but what the if, results. Oh, man, but doesn't polyamory make that really difficult? Because can't they find somebody for the yeah. outdoorsy stuff? Yeah, they could. I mean, this doesn't like, but the, if you're going to have somebody, it's like nicer to have them be more compatible than less. But you were a little bit like, in terms of sexual com compatibility, you were able to, like, 
yourself aware enough to know what preferences you have? Like you can. I think so. I think that one helped a lot with the escorting. Like the escorting helped a lot with knowing my preferences. But there's like out of the the giant pool of different preferences, you haven't like a subset that's clearly defined for you. Okay, like like dominant submissive. Yeah, power like, dynamic stuff. Power, power dynamic stuff. That. Okay. In the not just sexual, but in relationship too. Like that was that in the survey. <laughs> I don't like power dynamics in relationships. I didn't no, ask defining them in oh. like making it clear in a survey, like asking a question about power dynamics in a relationship. I don't think I asked about power dynamics in relationships. Okay. Because I just assume most people don't. And there's a lot of things that kind of like most people don't. You're putting together a survey, <laughs> a systematic survey well, to understand compatibility wouldn't power dynamics inside of relationships that naturally emerge often mm -hmm. be part of the question or or is that is that hard to question because it naturally emerges well you can't the, really... the thing is like a lot of questions sort of overlap in demographic and if you're making a survey you want to have the minimum possible questions that give the maximum possible like filtering information yes, yes, yes. so wait, wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute but that purpose of that survey wasn't to do a good research study it was to select one subject that you could take. So that's part of what's it is good. Like you want to most efficiently filter out. Because one, like you get more people taking the survey, the fewer questions you have, which is good for finding a mate. Like if you have 5,000 men take the survey, it's better than 1,000 men take Don't it. you want men that, that would be patient enough and dedicated enough? So yeah, to but like what if you're like a high-powered man who's like on his lunch break, Yeah, right? So right. it's like- Like, you just, like a billionaire is too busy just exactly. flipping through- yeah, and the guy that I dated was was the, he took the survey. He was waiting for the pizza come to come out of the oven, and so it was important that it was short. Is and so you want to be efficient. Or literally pizza coming. He was out li of the literally oven. waiting for pizza, and he saw the thing. He's like, I guess I'll just fill up the survey really fast and wow. <laughs> changed our lives. So romantic. It, I, I it's for me. This is my kind of romance. Yeah. I'm really into it. But but you get you could be efficient with surveys by like making sure your questions don't overlap. So for example, if somebody's very polyamorous, they're very unlikely to be interested in like a traditional like man works and like and out and the job and the woman stays home and raises the kids kind of relationship. Because mm -hmm. poly people just generally don't do that. Yeah. And so if I'm asking about polyamory, it sort of kind of already covers the thing. And so if I have a whole bunch of questions, like I can kind of like triangulate a bunch of implicit kinds of questions that I haven't directly asked about. So this is why I didn't ask directly about power dynamics, because like from the rest of the questions that are in my survey, like I can pretty accurately predict whether or not you're going to be interested in power dynamics. See, but I'm afraid, I'm afraid, yeah, like I'm, I'm trying to think as you're talking, I get it. That's, that's really interesting that you did that. Also, maybe not for the effectiveness of finding a partner, but for just exploring the actual, the process of, of human sexuality, of, of, of like the search, this, this complicated optimization process we're all engaging in on the landscape of happiness that seems to be a, 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 this, um, not even a differentiable function. It's, it's, a, it's a giant nonlinear mess. Okay. But like for me, I don't think I would be able to design that survey. I would like bias it too strongly. Like um, I would probably prefer women that have read Dostoevsky or something like that. Like that would be a filter for me, right? Yeah. But like that's a horrible filter because there's a, a lot of like, there's a lot of amazing people that have never, they don't give a shit about reading or they don't give a shit about reading Russian literature or they don't give a shit about, mm -hmm. but they're amazing and passionate and creative and all in some other dimension that you might completely miss. But you're like, because I wonder if there's any, basically you're saying compatibility, like hard lines that you know statistically is just going to be an issue. Yeah, I mean, you weight this a lot more. Yeah. But there's also like preferences. Like if you have a woman who's totally equal and she's read the thing that you like 
virtue is another woman who's also identical, but like she hasn't read the thing that you like. Like you probably like very slightly prefer the one. But, that but you don't know if the identical. Yes, yes, but like you can't through survey get the identical. Like you don't know. Sure, but you can kind of like like do a whole bunch of ways. So like the person that like I ended up going on a date with, he and did not answer like correctly to a lot of the survey questions, but he didn't have to. Like he was just overall, overall the weights were like he just tended to be more in the direction. Was there a text based fill in like survey? No. But like uh, sorry, paragraph like. No, you ought to avoid that if you're dealing with like large amounts of data. <laughs> no, why not? Because you have to fill. Oh, oh, interesting, interesting. Like I'm, I'm different. Yeah. Like, first of all, you can do keyword searches. No, okay. Second That's of fair. all, you do you can do machine learning models that like, mm. like. Uh, first of all, you can do you can do like crude metrics like the length. That's of, of, a good point. Of how long they've written, right? And. It could flag certain things. Yeah, it's actually pretty easy to. I, I've I've looked at like for hiring. I've looked at like thousands of applications really, really? quickly. Like you can really the the human brain is really interesting, especially, um, like if you visually highlight certain information for yourself, like keywords or again with machine learning models like sentiment, you can you can highlight different parts that will catch your eye better than not. And I, I, I can go through just a huge number of applications. Are you telling me I can use, if I learn machine learning, I can process dating survey applications better? Yes. No, okay. like textual. Yeah, like I can like have them write things in. Like this is like a new way of, that would be, yeah. It's a be, really good incentive. I think that would, so the really nice aspect of text input, like long form text input, multiple long form text input based on an interestingly phrased question is you get to learn how to make a better survey. I think you would appreciate mm. that. Like you start to see how they're actually interacting with these questions. Like I asked certain questions, like um, just to see how people think, is it better to work smart or better to work hard? Uh, or um, is it uh, ever okay to betray a close friend? Mm. Like I'll ask like questions like this that don't really have a right answer, but I just wanna see how they think. Or is uh, truth more important than loyalty? Yeah. And and I get their long form answer. You get like, a, and you get to see the reasoning process. Yeah, it. yeah, like yeah. what they it, it reveals so much, uh, not just about the person, but about the kind of questions I want I should be asking that have nothing to do with truth or loyalty, but like how to get a good engineer with like very specific questions. But I think it's really useful to get text input. I, I have done text input usually with beta surveys. So I usually do beta surveys before I do the real survey. What's the beta survey? Like, like I do like a shorter version, or it depends on what I'm doing, but like a, a different version of the survey that I have people take before I release. I use their information from the initial survey to inform the questions that I ask in the real survey. And I haven't actually in recently, but I used to do a lot of like the text-based questions to see for similar, although I don't think I relied on it quite as heavily. And if I introduced machine learning, things would be a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. I love that you're also doing like, you're writing scripts and stuff. Like you're doing, you're doing some like, uh, like statistical analysis. Are you using Python mostly? Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I had to learn Python for, this Which just is the a couple best months ago. way to learn Python, and the best yeah. reason to learn machine learning is to solve actual like problems. Yeah, I can't be motivated. I'm just not motivated to learn something unless there's an actual curiosity I have, and I have to learn it and to solve it. I was trying to avoid learning coding for so long, but eventually, it was my data set became too large. I couldn't work with it with anything else. So, like, oh, Python it is. You know what's also an interesting data set that you're probably interested in a little bit is like Twitter itself, right? I don't know if you've, I've played with the Twitter API a lot. Can you just get the, download the 
I'm just I'm stuttering download, now because download the, the Twitter. You, <laughs> you download, download Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of Twitter. T- Twitter. So Twitter is a social network with a bunch of people. They're okay. interacting a lot. Like there's like I don't know the, the number is insane. The number of interactions, but mm-hmm. there's different ways to interact to to get data from Twitter. There's streams you can look at. It depends what you're interested in. You can do uh, results for searches. You can look at individual tweets and get entire, which to me is super interesting, the entire tree of different conversations that that replies, which might be very interesting for you because like, it's not, it's it's much harder to ask rigorous questions, which you do with your polls, Mm -hmm. but you could see like how divisive certain things are. Yeah, probably good like, like calibrators to figure out like exactly what questions you should be asking. Yeah. And also highlight interesting anecdotal things when like two people freak out at each other and just argue like a thread that goes on for like a thousand messages that you might never be even aware is happening because you're like, because Twitter doesn't like surface that, like it would be, Twitter doesn't make it easy for you to like visualize what the hell's going on even with your Mm -hmm. own social network. Like like if you post something that's controversial that gets a a large amount of attention, you can't clearly visualize everything that's going on. Yeah. Like it's, it's very... It's like blurry, amorphous, like you're just kind of looking through the fog at different replies and they kind of, it's, uh, yeah. So to you be see with to, the API, they have like like graphs and of networks? They have the data for the graphs, okay. yeah. So you can you oh, reconstruct so cool. yourself, yeah. And then you, you have different levels of access in terms of how many queries you can do. That's really cool. And now because there's like uh, Elon, um, there's a lot of sort of revolutionary stuff happening at Twitter, I think. <laughs> you could literally sort of push for innovation there. Like mm. there's a, aggressive innovation happening. So in terms of uh, requesting stuff for the API, you could do all that kind of stuff. I think Twitter is just a fascinating platform for the, as cliche as it sounds, for studying. For me, it's interesting what, what makes for a healthy conversation. The, that term has been used, but it's interesting how conversation, to me it's fascinating how conversations break down and not. Like how like the virality of drama or conflict or disagreement, how that evolves when a large number of people are involved, when a large number of dis- no, no, um, misinterpretation of, of statements is involved in text-based with some anonymity thrown in. Like, I feel like there's a lot of studies that can be done there. I mean, Twitter's probably not great at it, right, as it stands. No. Because it's like necessarily short, you can quote treat things out of context, et cetera. But but we should understand that, right? Yeah. At a, at a scale, at a large scale, you should be able to uh, study that kind of thing. What we're talking, oh yeah, what what was your casual sex uh, survey? I actually haven't looked at it in a while. I think I just asked people about a whole bunch of fetishes because you don't want to be obvious about yours because then people are going to hijack it to try to tell you that they like what you like. Uh, sure. So you want to be obscure. So how do you design a survey where you're testing for a thing but you're still obscure about the thing you're trying to ask about? So, so. It's, you still see it as a survey. Yeah. Yeah. Like an application. Because I think he tweeted saying, like, I'm thinking of just, like, showing up to San Francisco and saying, is anybody open for casual sex? Yeah. Something like this. Am I misremembering? <laughs> Maybe escorting? I'm not sure. Oh, for escorting. Sorry, 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 sorry. Which is for similar. Escorting. Like, I kind of use escorting as the way to have casual sex now. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about escorting. So you uh, wrote about escorting in your blog post. Escorting was good for me. Mm. Um, how did you get into escorting? 
I was working at like a, I quit camming because I was burned out and I was like trying to work at a friend's startup and it was hard for me. I don't, it's difficult for me to work on projects that are not my projects. Uh, and so I was like, okay, fuck it. Like I want to go back to sex work. I want to make more money, but I don't want to cam anymore because I'm burned out. So I'm like, well, let's try, I had a friend who was an escort. I'm like, let's try that. And so we had a call. She like outlined the basics for me and then I put up some ads and started working. What's the basics of escorting? How does that work? The base, if you want to get started escorting, so just in I case would, you would, have a career change, like uh, you're gonna want to get some nice photos. So you probably I, I already have those. First of all, you you assumed I haven't done it before. How oh, rude! Have you? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, recreation. I would like to do it professionally, I suppose. So if I <laughs> wanted to do it, if I, if I wanted to do it, if I really, really wanted to step up my game, <laughs> how would I do it? Yeah. Well, you got the whole tutorial. Um, Recreational escorting is just okay. Okay. No, meaning like, like you know, like selling products on Etsy mm. versus doing a startup. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, escorting is kind of all just selling products on Etsy. No, like, but selling a lot of products on Etsy. <laughs> like, like, push, like high volume. <laughs> <laughs> You've like dabbled. Volume. Yeah, like, a, like yeah, yeah. Small handcrafted, it's a small handcrafted artisan dolls. Yeah, escorting. Versus mass manufacturer. <laughs> okay, if you want to mass manufacture your escort, I just feel like I haven't been getting. You know, I've been undervaluing my services, and I would yeah. like to really step up. I think you could really time. just like grease some marketing gears and be. Yeah, I mean, so some of this is marketing. So, like, how I guess I want to like know. Is it similar to camming in that way? Like, is it, um, you're basically advertising yourself and you're, uh, like the marketing, the, all the creativity that you mentioned before, all of that? Yeah, I found escorting to be pretty easy because uh, escorting is not like highly competitive. For example, camming is highly competitive because like the strat the thing that I ex outlined before, you know, the amount of money that you make determines your ranking. And you can also go and see other girls. You can see what they're doing. You so if a girl figures out an incredible strategy for making money, it's like two seconds before that strategy proliferates into everybody else. So it's very fast paced and like really tough. With escorting, you don't get to see what other girls are doing. You can look at their websites, but like you don't know what they're doing with clients at all. You can look at their rates, but you don't know what their volume is. So you, you don't actually know what is successful and what isn't very much. Um, so I think there's much less uh, like evolution of marketing through the, through this process. And so I came in with like my aggressive marketing <laughs> skills for being a cam girl. I think that really helped. I did very well uh, as an escort. I just came in and like, made a fantastic website. You know, I knew how to do the ads right. And, and What was the finding people? I guess it's also like finding the right kind of customer. Yeah. The right kind of client. I, I got like in a lot of trouble for this recently in the sex worker sphere because I said that if you raise prices, you're more likely to encounter clients that aren't going to abuse you. Like it's safer. Yeah. Uh, they they did not. They uh, said that I was being classist. You know, implying that poor people are more violent. But to be fair, if you're a guy and you want to be violent towards a woman, you're probably not going to be paying her a lot of money. You're probably going to like you're the kind of person likely who's going to haggle a lot because you don't respect her. Yeah. But anyway, that aside, it's a little pet peeve for me. Um. Yeah, I just I charged started charging eight hundred an hour, and then pretty rapidly raised it to twelve hundred, and then a while after that raised it to fourteen hundred. Well, the interesting thing you mentioned in my extensive research, um, you used to the do twelve hundred to fourteen hundred an hour, and then you said that you're thinking of jumping back in at a rate of twenty four hundred the first hour. Yeah, and I think nine hundred each successive hour. That's interesting. <laughs> That's like that's that. I mean, to me, that's really interesting. Like the first, like why? It's 
Like Why, a the lot in the first hour, yeah. Oh, it's just because uh, it's like, it depends on how you want to incentivize like the amount of hours. So if you have to pay a lot for the first hour, but not very much for the excessive, you're more likely to buy like a longer period of time. And usually I find that clients who buy a longer period of time are nicer to you. Mm-hmm. I don't have like a great theory for why that is, but there's, they're more likely to like take you to dinner and get to know you first. And I just enjoy that a lot more. I enjoy like like knowing who I'm going to have sex with. Like a date, you know? Yeah, so it's a, it incentivize the di- the long form date dynamic yeah. versus like uh, not. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. How, how does money change the dynamic? Just basic human dynamic of interacting for free versus for money. Like I think about that a lot. It's like just talking to rich people. It's like you yeah. usually get paid for your time, and <laughs> you're doing this for free. Mm-hmm. Like what? Uh, <laughs> like what's the difference? Is there a difference really or no? bit yeah so i've actually it depends a lot so when i was doing it full time it was my only source of income uh the it changed quite a lot because i was really incentivized to have repeat customers mm. so i'm like okay if i'm my primary interaction with you is to like have you hire me again sure. i'll do whatever that takes to make that happen and so if i have to like laugh at jokes that i don't find funny or like oh, be like rough. more adoring of your penis than i actually genuinely feel like that's what i'm going to express yeah um and obviously it's t- to some degree like titrated you know like i it's unpleasant to force yourself to like something that you don't so like i would actually like not see clients again that i didn't want to but it's just some degree there was a sort of self suppression going on which i think is this, the way it works in any sort of customer service job like you want the customer to leave happy so you just make sure that you are happy the whole time and you're like ah really enjoying the other person but uh so recently when i've like kind of dabbled in it since baking money for through other means Mm -hmm. um where i don't need the money it's more like a fun side thing that like it that i'm like i said it's fulfilling the role of casual sex for me so like i don't have to do it this is not my primary job i just want sort of a good excuse to like have sex with somebody um and the money is like a great filter for that uh, and so in that case- oh, That's I've, interesting. So the money is, just, yeah, okay. The money is basically a filter for somebody who's taking this interaction seriously. Yeah. It also, so there's an interesting like psychological thing where I have difficulty having casual sex with somebody because some part of my brain, which I assume is like quite female, is doing some evaluation of status and whether or not this is going to damage my reputation by having sex with them. So like if you found out that I went and like had random sex with like a homeless man, yeah. you might be like, wow, this, that says something about Ayla. Like maybe she's, you know, trashy or she just has no standards for who she's going to fuck. But if and so some part of me is continually anxious. I'm like, does this mean I have no standards if I decide to have casual sex with you? Like, what are people going to think? Uh, and so if you introduce money, it takes away that anxiety. I don't have to worry about it because it's like, oh, of course, Ayla would have sex with that person. They paid her. Like, this is not an indication of the kind of mate that she can get. This is just an indication of like a business transaction. And this allows me to enjoy casual sex so much more when somebody pays me for it to the degree that like I almost view it as a kink. And so it's like, so I'm using it sort of to replace casual sex now. Like occasionally I'm like, I just pay, you know, like it's paid me a little bit to erase the anxiety and I'll like have a fun, fun time. I mean, can't you see like dinner like that or something like that? If the person pays for dinner or like, so like it's all just, if any money's involved, if it's a kink, then you could just like use it and you, <laughs> you buy, buys a coffee at a Starbucks. It's like, all right. Right. But it has to be plausible. Like you have to like trick my brain into like having it actually be incentivizing for me. Two coffees? Like, like, like a cappuccino like, oh, or something? Or yeah, what? like oh, the homeless man bought me a coffee and then I sucked his dick. Like, that's not cool. <laughs> All right, sorry. No, no shade of homeless men, by the way. Like, I've been friends with a lot of them. I'm just using, like, some sort of stereotype of... Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it has to be plausible where you could trick your mind. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
<laughs> and so that's different. So now, now in this sort of frame, I am still like I'm accepting money, but still much more expressive of my actual preferences. So like I, before, when I would start escorting full time, I was suppressive, and now I'm like, you know, fuck, like I'm doing this for me. Mm -hmm. So we're going to make sure that I have a good time, and so I'm much more demanding. And then you're having more fun because you're not pretending, exactly. like laughing at a joke or something yeah. like that. That sounds terrible. <laughs> sounds like I mean, it's but it's also like social. I mean, I guess I I would. Would I do that? Like when you first meet people, like strangers and so yeah. on, there's some aspect of like niceties, but like, I don't know, intimacy, like real intimacy requires like getting past the niceties. Like laughing at somebody's joke when it's not funny feels like anti-intimacy. Yeah, but I, I laugh at so many jokes automatically. Even It's interesting, because right. yes. like I don't mean to, I'm not trying to be fake, but yeah. like if I'm in a group of people and somebody makes a joke and everybody laughs, I laugh even before I'm checking within myself, like yeah. do I genuinely enjoy this joke? Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, like the degree that I am sort of just like a result of social programming in all cases, sure. that like when I'm with an, a client back when I was doing it full time, like it doesn't feel significantly different. It just felt like a different version of myself. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, to that degree, to, to the degree you don't feel like you're going against yeah. your, your nature. Yeah. Yeah, it was very rare that I actually felt like I was going against my nature. Um, what about the market of how much to charge? So 20, 2,400, like how transparent is that market? Is there like a market? Like how much can you sell when you're charging that much? Yeah, no, like what What are the competitors? Like if this- Oh yeah. Like what, do you, are you distinctly, because you said it's, it's um, a lot of it is a, is a bit more shrouded in mystery, mm -hmm. like it's a more confidential. Like do you have some transparency to the the market, what the competitors I are? Did, and I so? did a survey of escorts, it's only like 130. I'm trying to remember. And the median was around like $300, I think an hour. Oh, wow. Something like that with a very long tail at the top end. I'm trying to remember what the, I also asked the amount where I could calculate the amount they made per month. I think it was like six or $7,000 a month. Mm -hmm. I, I need to double check that one, but. I charge 50 bucks an hour. You charge 50 bucks an hour. You should raise your rates. Yeah. I give a really shitty hand job. Um, all right. <laughs> but know. usually the, the rates are around, like if you want a median escort in a big city, it's usually four to a city. So the urban, uh, sorry, four, four to 600. In a big city. But like smaller cities, you charge, the rates go lower. Um, so that's so fascinating. What's like the most you've ever seen somebody charge? Uh, um, I, I think I am. You're like the. But it, at this point it's because I'm post work. Like I, do, I can, I can just put it in the same number. Does like, in like, does the fact that you're sort of <laughs> like a sexuality expert, <laughs> like a researcher and so on, like your mind is fascinating as well. And you're a bit of a celebrity. Does that play into it? Yeah. I, uh, or do you feel the celebrity now? Like when yeah. you're with, with people? Yeah, absolutely. Usually if people are interested in hanging out with me, it's because of that. Um, but that's that's different. Like I think, besides the like the the fun part, like the this is a kink as opposed to this is a job. Like with this is a job, usually the high end is closer to two thousand an hour, mm -hmm. like the very high end. Have clients ever fallen in love with you? I think so. Yeah, I think it doesn't happens to me much less than most other people due to like the thing that I think we were talking about before. Which is what? Where like you know you give off vibes, maybe like subconscious vibes. But they have fallen in love. Or not, but not as often. I think I something about my signaling indicates that people should not fall in love with me because I don't think it happens very much. And it happens a lot with other women that I know. But I have occasionally had... The thing is, it, it's, it's hard for me because I try to be as vulnerable as I can mm -hmm. in a connection with a client. 
Um, and like, I do really like some of them. I, I still remember some of them very fondly. And I'm like, I hope they're doing well. And some of them are really profound. Like one guy saw me because he found out he was dying of cancer. And he was like, I don't want to die without seeing someone. I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's such a, I don't know. I'm very touched by many of the people that I saw. So there's like deep intimacy there. Yeah. It's, I know that it's brief and I know that it's like kind of weird, but like you, there's there's like a real glimpse into somebody's soul when you get to be yeah. intimate. And I think this is especially true for men because a lot of time men don't have like a way to be really vulnerable in front of anybody. But like if you're in bed with a woman that you find to be attractive, you can sort of let loose a little bit more. So they can become vulnerable in general quickly. Yeah. And I really like that. I like being as vulnerable as I can to match it. Like I'm not forcing myself or anything, but like I just feel into it and like notice how like beautiful the person was and like feel grateful for being able to be in this intimate experience with them. And that was so wonderful. Does it ever hurt to say goodbye? Uh, No, but I think that's just unique to me because I like being alone a lot. Even with my, my friends who I like dearly, I'm like happy not seeing them because mm-hmm. uh, I don't like making facial expressions very much. Uh, but I do miss some of my clients. <laughs> Wait, sorry. What does making facial expression have to do with saying goodbye? Well, if if you are not with somebody in person, you don't have to make facial expressions anymore. Oh, you can just think about them. Yeah, you can just you can just sit there totally blank face and then have all of the emotions that you want. Uh, you're telling me. Do you have this thing too? No, it's not a thing, but like you're on camera. Yeah. So like I feel feelings, but people usually want you like social interaction is such that like you probably want me to show feelings on my face. Yeah. Like right? that. Good job. Yeah. Hey, there you go. <laughs> so like I I I definitely there, there there could be just an introvert thing where you like have an, a vibrant inner world that you forget to show to the, to the rest of the world. And also I'm scared of social interaction and I, I just have a lot of anxiety about interacting with the external world. So yeah. I'm kind of surprised to hear that because when you talked about like finding delight in everything and everything is fun, like I usually don't associate that with having not very much anxiety. Well, because I have the, we mentioned that earlier, I just appreciate the beauty in the world when I observe it. But then when I'm interacting with others, I have a very harsh self-critical aspect to my brain that mm-hmm. says like, you're gonna fuck this up. You're gonna fuck up this interaction. You're gonna fuck up the the beauty that's there. If I'm sort of being oh, fragile and vulnerable for a moment. One of the things I'm afraid of, I get so much love from from people that listen or even like reach out, like you said, through the survey, like women and so on. I'm afraid that, yeah, you know, you admire me because you don't know me but you won't admire mm, me once yeah. you know me. So that that's self-critical. But it's a silly, I mean, as you get older, you're like, yeah, okay. Like, I'm able to step away and objectively look at myself. I was like, there's no, this is, you're fine. You're good. <laughs> it's like, but it's still, the, this, this is the part of the brain that you can't just shut off. Does it, is like, what would fucking up in this conversation look like? Like, it doesn't have to be rational, but I'm curious if there's like a, a specific thing. A lot of it is just a, a feeling, like an amorphous fear of failure. What it would actually look like. Maybe because we're talking about sexuality, me not being able to eloquently explain the worldview I have 
mm. and why I appreciate appreciate it. That would make me feel like a failure because that would make me feel like maybe you don't know what you're doing, right? Because sex, sex, sexuality, and not sexuality, but even romantic relationships are really important to happiness. To they're really important to me, and I'm not sure like the conception of love I have, romantic love, is like fully um, made rigorous. So especially when I'm talking to you that thinks very rigorously about a lot of these topics, I'm not sure if I've thought about them a lot. I feel them. Mm. I interact with the world in a space of feelings. Maybe I'm almost afraid to be very rigorous with these kinds of th thoughts. Mm. And so uh, I think th the, the failure would be like, I would be confronted with the fact that I can't explain what makes me happy? That could be a failure, and there could be just a bunch of other failures. Uh, another big failure is like uh, not. I think you're a really brilliant person, um, and a, a lot of folks I know know and admire your work as well. And so, like for me, not to be part of highlighting that brilliance would be a failure, mm. definitely. Like because then other people might feel like like notice the discrepancy. Or something? Yeah, the, 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 but no, no, no. That's not other people. Just my personal, oh, like, I see. my my personal feeling. And then, like the other is like jokes, because like we're talking about sex, right? So for me, like it's fun to just joke around, but you also have to tread carefully because like it's it's a weird it's a weird surface because like you know even I already feel bad about making a joke for fifty bucks for a hand job that's crappy by me, um, but I think. <laughs> I think sometimes you just got to go for it. I went for it. <laughs> it kind of flat, <laughs> fell flat on his face, but uh, um, that's that's the thing of the conversation. That's for for the what it's I think there's like this fear where it's like, uh, if you become like scientific about something, you'll figure out that your feelings are unjustified and then yeah. you'll experience this horrible thing where you're like, ah, shit, like I'm like afraid of this, but I'm sort of being forced to by my logical mind to like believe this thing, uh, which I don't think, I don't think this is true at all. I, I think, like your feelings are there for a reason. Like they're for a good reason. And like logic or like rigorous analysis or something should be dedicated to figuring out why it's there. Yeah. Not that not by not to like suppress it or tell it it shouldn't be there, you know? What do you think is more important to like to just life to is it reason versus emotion? Like not life, to what makes us human, I guess. My my romantic narrative answer to this, which is like not rigorous at all, is curiosity. Curiosity. Yeah. What is curiosity? Oh, that's, a, that's such a middle. <laughs> curiosity is like both emotion and reason. Yeah. Right? So it's like this pull, because reason is the tool you use to figure out the puzzle, and then curiosity is the pull towards the puzzle. Yeah, I I don't like worldviews that pit like emotion and rationality as opposite each other. They feel like beautiful parts of like a cohesive whole. Yeah. Like if you're doing rationality to the extent where you're like suppressing some emotional reactions you have, then I think you're doing it wrong. You're like missing a big part of it. Like it should be like integrated. It should be like part of like one unified flow. Like the things that you like, if you want to be in a romantic committed relationship for the rest of your life, then this is like beautiful and good. And the kind of like logic that you're using to make sense of the world should be fitted into that correctly. I think it's really cool. Like anytime you have sort of like an internal at odds thing with it, I think you're like using some sort of force to suppress one or the other. Like, oh, I'm not allowed to reason about this or I'm not allowed to feel about that. And that feels harsh to me. And I think curiosity is the solution. Like if, you, if you're simply just calmly curious, oh, why do I feel like that? Mm -hmm. Let's let's go find out. That's so cool, right? Like you, you can use logic and your feelings to like discover the answer 
Do you sometimes, because you, you do this kind of technique, which is interesting, and I've mentioned it to others, you'll sometimes step away from like a third person perspective and describe the feeling you're, you're feeling. Or, or like even just the situation, like you'll step out and talk about, wait, what is happening here? Like in the conversation itself? In the conversation itself. Yeah. Uh, first of all, what is that? Was that? Do you find that to be useful and interesting? Because it's, it's very interesting. It's, it feels raw and honest. The danger of it seems like you escape the actual experience of it though. So that's the trade-off. Yeah. You, you make it intellectual, right? Is but, it though intellectual to do that? I mean, maybe it is, I don't mean to. No, maybe that's the wrong word. You can make it intellectual, yeah. but you can still continue the same flavor because you're not fully disengaging from the conversation. You're doing. You're just creating an extra metal layer. Yeah, that's I, happening. I think exploring the emotional reaction to what's going on in the moment. Yeah, it's it, yeah. In some way, it's actually making it stronger, like, or enriching it, like making it more. Uh, yeah, giving it more context, giving it deeper understanding. I think yeah, there's true. like a way of going meta that is is a flinch move. Like, oh, I noticed that we're doing this thing. I'm going to name it. Yeah. And I think the thing that I described earlier, like when the homeless guy approached me and asked, you know, can you go home with me? Yeah. And I was like, oh, are you trying to have sex with me right now? Like what I was doing was like a meta move. Like you're stepping outside like and like, okay, what is the purpose of this conversation? And we explicitly identify it. And in that case, I think that is sort of like a flinch move. Like I'm not telling him my emotional response. I'm not like being fully present. I'm like sort of identifying it as a way to subvert yeah. what's going on. And so I absolutely think this is a possible thing. Uh, but I usually try to be aware of that in myself. And it depends on the purpose of what's going on. That guy, because that is actually like a chess move you did. You had a purpose with that mm -hmm. chess move, but the flirtation is on. Like he could have like uh, done a better move that would make you like curious. Like, yeah, that's huh. true. <laughs> Like, interesting, because you had an agenda with that, but he, he could have changed your mind. Like, he, he could have, yeah. with a few words, because you just created extra layers, extra entry points. If he had gone more meta, yeah, he might right. have been like, okay, well, now I am going to sleep with you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, see, there is there is something, uh, yeah, that that's aids into the chemistry of the conversation when you do that meta. I, I really enjoy it. it was, it's like a rare, I forget, did you and I, I forget who... I've had a few people do that with me, like just in conversation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you were involved somehow because I've met you before uh, somewhere. Yeah. I don't know if we were, or we you were just- We a couple parties together. Or maybe it was just like a bunch of people that kind of play with the same, or like a comfortable- They're circling. It's just a practice explicitly dedicated towards that. What's circling? Circling is that like- That might be the thing they- explain. Yeah, I think, I think so, we know we have some mutual circlers in our- Circlers? In our networks okay, what's, here. What's uh, what, what's circling? I don't. I don't remember what's. <laughs> I'm going to describe it horribly because okay. it's like one of those things that's difficult to describe unless you experience it, like kind of like drugs. Yeah. But it's something like you, you sit around. There's like kind of guidelines to the conversation where you talk about the present moment. Yeah. And you're like honest about your experiences as much as you can be, and if you don't want to be honest, then you say, "I don't want to be honest." Yeah. Um. And your like commitment to connection. So you're like you're here to like actually connect with the other person, understand them, and be understood. Yeah. Um. You're not supposed to like project. So if you're like have an analysis about the other person, you own it. You're like, I'm experiencing you as this, you know. And then you check is it true, um, or like. Are you are you supposed to be almost like converting it towards the thing you're thinking like constantly? Um. You're if you if it feels right in the moment, you can. The thing is, it's very amorphous, right? It's like right. almost like creating a magical sensation. And I've been with some. I've seen some very good circlers, really high skill circle, and I feel like I'm on drugs when that happens. It's very rare to see. Does it feel honest somehow? Yeah, very honest. 
like like right now in this moment i'm feeling like kind of like nervous energy because i'm talking to you and this is a unique situation and like i want you to think i'm cool yeah. i want everybody listening to me to think i'm cool but i'm also having some sort of delight at being able to express mm. in this way and like some admiration for how you like set up and built this thing that i can take be a part of mm. and all of these things are sort of in my body right now is this sort of vibrating high thing i remember like in the party setting because i've had to talk to a few people i felt like it was going sexual very quickly Okay. I don't know if you remember this, but the yeah. first time I met you, I didn't know who you were. I yeah. just heard, I knew I'd heard your name. Like you just your name. And I'm like, I think I've heard people discuss that. Sure. And I, I was in the middle of a very sexual conversation with another woman. Oh, you were? Yeah, right. I was. And you just like turned around and left very shortly afterwards. And I thought it was very- Oh, was I listening in on the conversation or something like I think that? It was like, a th it was like, I was talking to her and you were just kind of like right there. And so we introduced ourselves and then we continued on with the conversation. Oh, so you were like standing there and listening. Yeah. And then you I don't started. think I would have left the cut. So it's funny. You probably interpret it in a different way. I, I interpreted like, it as you like not wanting to listen to like graphic sexual stuff. Was it like super graphic? I don't know. I was I was asking her about I was doing I was interviewing her about her fetish, basically. Oh yeah, I don't think I would have walked away okay. from that. I would have been like curious, oh interesting, because I don't often see people having a a deep interview about fetishes. Like I wouldn't even be listen, I'm like Jane Goodall here. <laughs> like I'm not like a, <laughs> I'm not afraid of sexuality or something like that. I just have certain values in terms of like monogamy and so on. But I think okay, sexuality is really beautiful. Yeah. I I don't think yeah, I can't imagine myself walking away from that conversation. Was, somebody must have like called you or something. Because yeah, I didn't probably. remember exactly how it worked. I just remember thinking later on. Or maybe about, I thought I was intruding. Oh maybe. Because if <laughs> I was kind of drunk, so and I probably was very okay. <laughs> I would like to actually have like footage of that conversation so we can actually interpret what actually happened because it's probably, I mean, it, you know, the human interactions are are funny like that. They can mm -hmm. they can happen for all kinds of reasons. Um, have you ever fallen in love with a client? No, I mean, like in tiny ways, like micro loves. Like, have you ever fallen in love? Love. I mean, I don't know what it means, but probably. The thing that other people say when they say fall in love is probably something I've experienced. What do you think they mean? Um, what is love, Ayla? Yeah, I know. No? It's a fantastic question. I think, so love is one of those words that refers to like a billion different concepts. And yeah. I think we, we maybe should just taboo the term to have a better understanding of what we're referring to. Because there's things like uh, feeling like intense attachment. There's something feeling like, like soulfully aligned. There's like sexual attraction. There's like Are excitement. Are you talking to me and saying we should taboo the term love Maybe. in this conversation? <laughs> How dare you? No. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> okay. Rom <laughs> romantic love. I, I, to make I, it flourish into lots of other new definitions. Okay, thank you. For, yeah, we're let's expanding limit. love. It sounds like you're censoring the most important word. This is like 1984 all over again. Okay. Also on the book reading list. No, okay. Listen, uh, no, romantic love, like a deep intimacy for somebody else, like a, like a deep connection with another human being that is also, I mean, yeah, with polyamory, it's tricky. And your relationship with sex is also, sex is also tricky. So like, what's the difference between a deep friendship and a, and a, a friendship that also has a sexual component? I remember being very confused about that when I did a lot of LSD. I was like, what? I, the the line between romantic relationships and everything else kind of got blurred. I was like, oh, I'm just like in intimacy. Yeah. And some intimacies mean that you spend your life together more and have sex. But like and this, the same basic thing is there. Like you're seeing someone for like who they are. Do you think you can be, if you're heterosexual, do you think you could be really deeply close friends with a guy and not have sexual relationships with him? 
I assume it's possible. Like if the, anything is ever possible, then probably yeah. Like well, everything is possible. Time travel is possible. Quantum <laughs> mechanics makes every traveling faster than the speed of light is possible, according to general relativity. Everything is possible. So you're saying there's a chance. Dumber <laughs> Dumber has taught taught me that everything it's probably is fucking possible. But. Not super likely, assuming that they are like attracted to each other. Yeah. And for somebody that has surveys and statistical analysis, we, we're interested in like what's the likely thing here versus yeah, like what's likely. possible. If you say possible, it's like we're, anything's open. Did you just avoid answering the love thing? Okay, I have like, a lot to say about love. It's just you know, like to be precise. Yeah. Okay. Let's be uh, precisely imprecise and continue. Oops, sorry, that's my phone. Uh, <laughs> it feels like a passive aggressive suggestion that we shouldn't talk about love anymore, but we shall continue. No, we should absolutely talk about love. That's... It's just the term is very confusing because it's like some people say the word love and the thing that they're thinking of is like, oh, the butterfly is like the sparkle thing that I get in my stomach when I think about my loved one. But I study relationships over time. I just really like I did a survey about it and that sparkle goes away within like two to four years. But people still report loving their partner after that. So I'm like, okay, like when you say the word love, like what the fuck are we talking about? Yeah. I just want okay. to get on the same page. Okay. So what are the different, so the butterflies, boy, I'd like to push back on two to four years on the butterflies, but okay. I mean, statistically, <sighs> not everybody. I, butterflies don't give a fuck about statistics. You ever heard of the, like the butter, the flap of a butterfly <laughs> wing causing like nuclear war? <laughs> How do you describe that with your statistics? <laughs> Uh, okay, so bu butterflies, that's the basic infatu infatuation, the chemistry of the initial interactions, sure, but a deep, meaningful connection, like, that feels like sexuality is a component of that, like, the kind of intimacy that's only possible when you're also sexual with another human being. On top of that, you have the butterfly, and on top of that, you have the friendship, and mm -hmm. on top of that, you have, like, what is that? That's a sandwich full of The things. love sandwich. The love sandwich. Okay, I'm down to call it a love sandwich. Okay. Sam we just call it sandwich. L L S. Okay. What role does that play in the human condition? Like he asked me about the human condition. It's an interesting phrase. Yeah. I'm not like I'm like this is like not a phrase that's common in my own thinking. Sure. Human condition is a good summary. You know, on, on, what do you think? What do you feel when you when I when I, I say ask human very different kinds of questions than you? Sure, yeah, which is interesting. I'm trying to like figure out like what kind of brain like you have is like creating like this category of question, which is why I was like saying like there's something about a poetic narrative in there, yeah, because it's it's very like 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 aesthetic. I think you've asked much more aesthetic questions than I do. I don't even know what the word aesthetic means, like, like, really, like artistic. Artistic. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know what aesthetic means, but I also don't know what it means. It's kind of like the word love. Uh, aesthetic perspective. Yeah, yeah. well, me, but, but part of it in conversation, you don't want to ask a question that has an answer fully, always. Like, do you have an example of a question that has- What's the meaning of, oh, does, has an answer. Yeah, like one that you'd say was like, ah, oh, that's like a bad question because it has an answer. How many sexual partners have you had in the, in the last year? Oh my God. That's such a <laughs> Okay, I feel like we just like got to some sort of crux about like the kinds of questions that we like to answer. Because <laughs> sure. I would love that question. Okay, right. To ask but, it of people. All right, but that's does that really tell the story? Okay. Of of what you felt over the past year. That's that's true. But then I could just tell you. Okay, so by mm -hmm. by when you're saying the kinds of questions that you like, the ones that don't have an answer. By not an answer, you mean like not an answer where 
you can know that you're done telling it. Is that? That you can escape having to think by uh, actually answering it. I see. Yeah. The struggle is the place where we discover something, not not the uh, not the destination. <laughs> Consensual. Okay, okay. Consensual. It's working. It's working. Okay. So, what is the role of the love sandwich in the human condition? <laughs> okay, that's fine. I take I take that question, but it's a stupid question. You don't have to. It's, I'm right. ready to. Try. Do you like Do you like love? Do you, Do you personally do you like, like love? love? Yeah. I mean, I I think like there's a part of me that feels like I have unconditional love for all things. Like when you're talking about the glass being beautiful, mm -hmm. I felt that it's like. That feels like it, it felt like it rang something that like I have a, a similar resonance in me for that. If I were to circle mm -hmm. right now, I, I feel like you're avoiding the love question, uh -huh. the love sandwich question. What's your own personal feeling towards loving another human being versus having sex with another human being? I, I, they, I love is like one of the concepts that dissolved for me a long time ago. So I have difficulty directly answering it. Sure. But I have the experience. When you describe the love sandwich, I feel like I have had that experience. I have it currently mm -hmm. for some people also. Like I'm dating people and I have that. So people who you date, you you would describe sharing a love sandwich with them. Yeah. Okay. So how, how does, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's great to hear. <laughs> so you're not, are you afraid of love? No, not at all. So can you describe to me polyamory? What is it? What does it mean? Because there's like different terms. Yeah. Around. You have a nice blog post about it. Yeah, I have a personal definition of it, which I readily admit is not shared by a lot of people. But to me, the definition of polyamory is simply not forbidding your partner from pursuing intimacy with others. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you have to pursue it personally. Like two people could be married and only have had sex with each other for 20 years. And as long as they're like, you know what, if you ever you want to go have sex with somebody else, you're welcome to do that. Well, the interesting thing you said is that doesn't mean they have to do it. They yeah. just have the freedom to do it. Yeah. It's the freedom that matters to me. Which is, uh, uh, I mean, it's called the, the polyamory post. You have so many good blog posts. People, people should just go look at your, uh, your read your writing because it's it's really really strong and often backed by data, but also just a deeply honest look at yourself and your understanding of the world. It's it's nice. It's yeah. It's it's refreshing to be the, like with a lot of stuff I disagree with, but I feel like if I disagree with it, you'll be very open to arguing and and kind of thinking through it. There's just the honesty that radiates from the whole thing. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so, I mean, it would be interesting to kind of explore what polyamory, like how it works, what are the different versions? What is the, what does that freedom look like? What, is it, what does that freedom feel like to be able to go see other people? Depends on you. Like, do you wanna go see other people? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. So usually for me, I tend to be pretty happy with like one or a few people. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally I like some novelty. So usually I'll go like, uh, like I host orgy sometimes. So I'll host an orgy and then I'll go have sex with people at the orgy and then that'll be good for the novelty for a while. Can I ask you about orgies? Yeah. So how many people are at an orgy? What's like a standard, we're having a Sunday picnic and it's an orgy. What's like a number of people at an orgy? Oh, it depends. I've been, I've only recently started hosting orgies, but I have been to a lot of orgies. And I would say like the median is maybe 15 people. I like how you say median versus mean. Okay, median is fifteen people. What's the dis what's the gender distribution usually? Uh, usually about 
even. It's like ideal if you can get more women than men in most of them. I've recently been hosting free use orgies or orgies where uh, consent is assumed by default when you enter. And of course, you can revoke it anytime or go over a whole bunch of rules to make sure it's very safe. You like have wristbands. Uh, so nobody's actually doing anything they don't want to. But wristbands. Uh, nice. and in those ones, you have to have more men than women. I thought free use was like consensual, like at any time. But it's at any time within the constraints of this building or something like that. Yeah. So it, at the orgies, it's like you by entering, if you wear a wristband, uh, then you are like by default opting into consent. So people don't have to like do a thing where they negotiate with you and like be like, is this okay? It's just the default is like you just go for it. And if they want you to stop, they say the safe word, like red, don't, and then you have to stop. Mm-hmm. Um and we do like exercise in the beginning of people saying red to make sure that everybody knows exactly what the rules are. What's your favorite safe word? Red. Red. When I first started doing like weird kinky shit, I was like, oh, let's make a safe word. And we, we picked the word foliage. I was like, that's goofy, right? And then, but then there eventually came a time where I did actually, in fact, want to say the safe word and I couldn't. couldn't I was it. like, like in yeah. agony. I was like crying. I'm like, I can't make yeah. myself say this stupid word right now. <laughs> foliage. So after that, I was like, red, doesn't matter. I don't care. It's not funny. We're just yeah. going with very simple yeah, red. Very practical. How does an orgy compare sexually uh, to like a one-on-one sexual experience? Um, like what, is it the same ballpark or is it fundamentally different? I mean, the experience of all, both orgies and one-on-one sex can be like really high variety. There's a high variety. But you, you kind matter. of, it's a little bit like you're having sex with someone, but you're surrounded by really realistic VR porn of other people having sex. Oh, okay, cool. And sometimes it's like threesomes also, like maybe there's another person involved. But it's hard to like have a whole bunch of people on one in one cluster because usually there's kind of different little clusters of people having their experience. Sure. I once was part of a 10-woman orgy. It was a, a total lesbian thing, and that felt like a writhing cluster. It was very nice. But typically, you kind of separate out with like very small pods of people doing stuff. Okay, so back to polyamory. So what? Uh, what's a good? Uh, what What does it take to manage? Do you have a main partner if you're being polyamorous and you have you're dating multiple people? Is there usually a main one for you personally? Uh, for me personally, kind of yes. Like right now, I kind of two that aren't. Like I see roughly around, for me, it's kind of just descriptive. Like if I just happen to be seeing you a lot more and I confide in you more than you, like you're descriptively my primary partner, but I don't usually have rules to protect that. I'm down with rules to protect it. If you're like, you're trying to build something, like if I buy a house together, I'll be like, okay, we need to like, whatever our relationship is, we have to do the thing where we're both paying the rent for the house or the mortgage or whatever. Uh, a lot of people do have primaries, so it's very common to have like, ex, like prescriptive, like I'm going to get married to you and you're not allowed to like have anal sex with anybody else. That sort of thing. What about like the transparency and the communication they have to do? Yeah, I usually try to be super honest about it. Extremely, yeah. I I mean, I've learned over time that like, even if it seems like a very small thing, you talk about the small thing. Because often I would just sort of have like a small twitch in myself. Like, I don't know if I like that. But I'd be like, okay, this is really minor. Um, It's probably nothing. And I don't, if I talk about it, it's going to make it into a thing. And I just don't want to make it into a thing, you know? And I would... I've come to realize that it's worth making it into a thing because I can't predict at the time if like the small feeling I have is going to grow. And then when I grow it, now it's like much more difficult to deal with. Uh, so now it's like any little bit of jealousy I have immediately communicate it. I'm like, ah, I'm a little jealous of you right now. I don't hold that in at all. I used to be kind of like, back when I first started being poly, I used to try to pretend that I was not a jealous person and that backfired quite a lot. That's really interesting. So you do still feel jealousy. Oh yeah, definitely. And like you and it's also interesting that you kind of recommend when there's a little bit of jealousy, like to 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 bring that to the surface. Yeah, just like excessively communicate, even if it feels 
stupid. Like, this is, I feel like a cliche. I feel like a stupid therapist training video. Like, I just feel ridiculous sometimes when I'm saying the things, but it's just, it's, I've learned over time, it's just important to just say the things. Because, like, you know, the traditional view of jealousy is exactly like you said, if you bring it up to the surface, like, it's going to sound like you're overreacting to everything. Mm -hmm. But you're saying, like, still do it. Because you're basically, your brain blows stuff out of proportion. Yeah. And it's good to like be going through it with a partner. Like I have a partner right now who's like dating this other girl and he like really likes her and he like went traveling with her and stuff. And I was like, I feel jealous about it. And I have to tell him that. And that way he can be with me in it. Mm -hmm. He like, he like holds me when I'm feeling jealous and it's like a bonding experience, you know, Uh, but it's important for me that like he's able to handle it. Like I try not to date people who really freak out when I have negative emotions because I want to be able to express that I'm upset by something they're doing without it being taken as a demand that they change their behavior. Right. So wanna, he, he has to be able to skillfully handle the yeah. interaction. He has to be like, cool, all right, you're jealous. Like, I'm not going to freak out about it. I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm just going to be with you in that. We're going to sit in it together. I mean, is some of that just insecurity that he should also just comfort, like, basically alleviate your insecurity, bring you back to, like, a rational objective evaluation, right? Uh, in my relationships, I love it when people do not reassure me. I like not being comforted quite a lot. Okay. And so usually the people I date don't. I'm very gravitating. Like it's one of the things people do to make me fall in love with them is if I say something really like terrible mm-hmm. and they're just like, do not give me any comfort whatsoever. But, like that's where my heart gets captured. So I typically am in relationships where I'm like, oh man, I'm so jealous. And they just like do not reassure me at all. And that's good because it, it doesn't give me an out. Like I have to deal with it myself. Right. Like they're maybe still it is there true to hear it. that the other woman is better than me. Like yeah. maybe that is an actual possible reality. And like I don't them- want to be dealing with my life in a way where I'm like pretending like I'm only okay when that reality is not true. Would you like them to to uh, say that, that the other woman is better than you? Yeah. Or if that they, they prefer. If they, if they feel that. Yeah. I mean, they should say it in according to themselves. Like, oh, I prefer, like I have a better time with her than I have with you. Then I would want to know that. Yeah. And even though, even though that might be painful to hear. Yes. That which can be destroyed by the truth should be. That which can be destroyed by the truth. What what is that? That your ego or something like that? <laughs> yeah, my ego. <laughs> so your ego just generally grows, and you like the destruction of it. Yeah, it's okay. like really so the process accurate. of not, truth. It's not, it's not like a fun experience. Like I've had like guys be like, "Well, you're not as pretty as I'd like." And I'm just like, "Oh, you know, so stabbed to the heart." And but then also like, give me your number after. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, man, that's oh well, that's that's kind of beautiful. <laughs> what do you think of monogamous relationships? Like philosophically, can you maybe steal man or make the case for monogamous relationships? Um, can you understand the pros and cons of monogamous relationships? I guess? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you defend. If you're like, hey, uh, we you can do whatever you want, but you and I are going to spend the rest. Like, we just you're 80 years old, and like, oh, we spent 60 years in a marriage together. We've never had sex with anybody else. I think that's like awesome. If that's what you want, that's great. Um, I have like a little bit more problems with people doing that while also forcing their partner not to misbehave if they want to. Like, if oh, you're like, I oh, I, we only made it this far in a monogamous relationship because I forced my partner not to pursue an intimacy that she wanted to. Then okay. I feel like a little like more like, ah, I don't know if that's great. How do you know if it's a real want for an intimacy? Like checking out a attractive person while being inside a monogamous relationship. Yeah, how do you score that? Is that bad that the person cannot pursue those feelings? Uh. I mean, it depends if they want to. Like, I often find people attractive I don't want to pursue. I'm also okay with people entering into agreements. Like, if you and I want to agree, like, I'm only going to enter this because I'm going to be so hurt if you 
pursue somebody else. So I'm not going to pursue anybody else. That seems fine to me. But I also extend that. Like if if somebody's like, I don't want you to have any friends, I'm going to feel really insecure if you. And like, right. okay, like if you want to enter that agreement, like I feel the same way. Like I think you should have the right to do it if this is what you want. But I also kind of, I feel like a little weird about restricting your partner from doing things, you know? Oh, but I guess if you're honest about it and you just put it on the table. <laughs> yeah. I don't right. want you to have any friends. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to sit in a box. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot. I guess if you're like really on the, but then it, there's like, it, there's a power dynamic mm-hmm. that like you can be quite influential in a relationship in convincing your partner, and it sure sounds like you're honestly agreeing to a thing, but you're not really agreeing. Mm-hmm. That's the, I mean, part of that is the beauty of relationships, right? Like, it's messy. It can be messy. It's hard to know what you really want, yeah. right? I think that's mainly my complaint with monogamy. Like I'm down with like conscious monogamy. Yeah. But I think so many relationships are like monogamous by default. Like people, sure. it's not actually right for them, but they just get into it because culture just doesn't give them another option. And they don't even ask themselves the question, is this right for me? Right. Like, Which like, I'm a weird ass person who thinks a lot of weird shit, but I didn't even think about mon- polyamory as an option before I had heard that it existed. Yeah. And it was only when I first met my first polyamorous couple, and I was like, oh, that's what I am. That's clearly the thing that I am. Yeah, it's funny, because to me, monogamy, is, is, it's not a, it doesn't make sense for it to be a default. Like, to me, monogamy goes against human nature. That's, hmm. in some sense, like, romance is a fuck you to the way the world works. Really? <laughs> yeah, like, it's a, like, Romeo and Juliet romance, like, traditional description of what romance looks like versus like sure there's like a million variations of that but in in my in my head like this partnership that's for a long time together is a kind of you know like uh i don't know like true romance you know that movie it's a really fucking good movie I haven't seen it, no. okay there's just there's just like um you're together against the world mm-hmm. yeah that's the I mean that's what close friendship feels like. It's like ride or die, right? yeah, like that. I guess it doesn't. It ha, it doesn't. It can be. It can span across multiple. You can have multiple partners in that way. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I just don't see monogamy as like this. Def, definitely not a default. Yeah, I would actually mm-hmm. like honestly would probably see polyamory as a more natural default. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by default. Like most of human history has been sort of a weird mix. Like you get. Polygamy and monogamy are the kind of the main sure. arrangements. But, but I mean, yeah. it's just like human nature. Like I, yeah, people are attracted to other people, and they want to, yeah, especially in longer term relationships. I, I tracked uh, in my relationship survey. I tracked the amount of cheating over time in a relationship. Like, how long have you been Uh-oh. in this relationship, and how yeah. have you cheated? Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's what's the results of that? Men cheat a lot. Uh, women too, but men cheat about thirty percent more than women do. I also asked men and women to predict if they think their partner has cheated. And people's predictions were about the same. So people roughly predicted that their male or female like spouse uh, hadn't cheated about the same rate, but men cheated much more than women. So who uh, who was more correct in their prediction, though? Uh, so men were more correct in their prediction predicting women, and yeah. women were thought men, women were more off. Women thought men cheated much less than they actually did, and but. <laughs> Both of them were off, but like the male gap was significantly more. So yeah, I mean you're right. When you say monogamy is not default, like I think you're like really getting at something. Like human beings are just, especially in long-term relationships, difficult to only want one person. But to be fair, I think monogamy and commitment are very different. I think you'd be incredibly, I've known so many very long-term 
super committed poly couples that live lives that look very similar to the very romantic monogamous couples, like yeah. children, houses, like 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and that, that works great for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to like open your mind to in these kinds of conversations, these kinds of ideas. But I also like realize like some of the cake is baked. Like I have some assumptions that are hard to break through. Like what? For myself. Like, it's it's difficult for me to imagine a polyamorous relationship for me that would work. Yeah. But I don't have enough data. I don't have a, like, I have very little, but like at this point, it's like, um, I haven't eaten pizza in like 20 years. Cause I know I just don't, uh, there's a bunch of stuff. I just I eat low carb cause it makes me feel good. But I, there's so many foods I haven't explored. It's just like, well, I know what I love. <laughs> so yeah, well, then you, you probably you explore every monogamous. once in a while. Yeah, and you kind of figure that out. But at the same time, you're humbled by like even talking to you or looking at your data. Like with sexuality is a, is a is a fascinating topic because it seems that we're very like we were talking about very afraid of this topic. Like to be really honest with ourselves about it, the the whole like uh, academic research is afraid of it. But it's so core to who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you about this. I can't believe it take, took this long to get there. But one one of your many fascinating um, surveys is on fetishes. <sighs> you wrote a blog post about it. Uh, probably several because it's like a huge oh, data. Yeah, still in progress, yeah. So uh, the one I'm referring to is on popularity and tabooness mm-hmm. of various fetishes. So what are some interesting takeaways? I got to pull up this graph because it's freaking epic. Yes, this is a big graph and it has tabooness as one axis and um, popularity as the other. Okay, for people who are just listening on the x-axis is ta- tabooness. Yeah. Asked to rate how taboo society viewed the sexual interest. And on the y-axis is percent of people reporting interest, log scale. Oh boy. All right. So just some examples on the low tabooness and high popularity. There's a there's a correlation here. I think you said it's 0. 0.69. Yeah. It's <laughs> just not just hilarious. Is it still 0. 0.69? Are you tracking I, that? I I haven't that looked since recent. I did yeah. this, yeah. Uh so like the less taboo stuff is more likely to be popular and the more mm-hmm. taboo stuff is less likely to be popular. And on the like missionary pos- position Fingering, vagina, blowjobs, light spanking, cuddling. Cuddling is more taboo than missionary? I, I think people are conceiving, like, if you're like, I'm really sexually aroused by cuddling specifically. Sure. Then you're like, that's a little more weird than getting specifically aroused by blowjobs. You expect people to be aroused by blowjobs. So this was like getting at, like, as a fetish versus like an activity. Yeah, as a specific, as a, like a concrete sexual interest. Like, yeah. I'm specifically interested in this thing. Yeah. And so those are thighs and lips, different body parts, <laughs> jaw lines. And then some of it is color based on more female preference versus uh, male preference. Like jaw lines is more uh, female preference. Being submissive is more female preference. Light bondage, fe- more fe- yeah, more female. There's a lot of interesting ones. There's so much. Okay, but then on the the far side of that, I mean, it gets pretty dark. But even all along the way, like. Extreme bondage, being at 50 tabooness, pegging, pain, giving pain, sexual frustration, I, I suppose, right, as, as a kink. Uh, yeah. 
And there's so many interesting ones, like to me, like just that I haven't even like considered. Yeah, um, I had to do so much research into fetishes to to compile the list. Are there some was, surprising like options to you that you're like, oh, okay, this is like a fetish? Yeah, people. well, more confusing was like what the fetishes are about because like I didn't want to overlap fetishes, so I had to kind of look into them. Yeah, and I'm like, there's like such interesting manifestations of core drives. Like if you're really aroused by disgust, like maybe you're mm -hmm. very into rolling around in dirt, but you're not into rolling around with ice cream. So I'm like, okay, I have to make those into two separate fetishes, you know? Sure. And like I'm, I'm seeing like at at the far end, uh rodents mm -hmm. like uh, different types of incest branding so there's like pain yeah. and then uh, it's like wound fucking sex with animals i guess mm -hmm. dogs horses um receiving oral sex from an animal is high tabooness and pretty high yeah, popularity. Yeah, surprisingly high popularity. I was really shocked by that one. I went and triple check that number because I'm like, no way this amount of people are reporting interest. Do you, do you know which animal? Uh, is there? No, I didn't specify. It, I asked like which animals are erotic and then I separately asked like how erotic is it to receive oral sex from your preferred animal? This is so fascinating. So I, I would, uh, like, can we just talk about the methodology mm -hmm. of this? <laughs> this feels like deeply honest map of humanity in a way we don't usually map humanity. Yeah. Like, cause it's so mean, like your fetishes are so meaningful to each, each individual person. Yeah. That's what I love about this work. It's like, nobody cares about your, someone's fetishes. You never get to express them. And if you have a more unusual fetish, people usually judge you. Yeah. So it's like this tiny little pocket of like this shame thing, but it's so cool to me yeah. that like human brains could be oriented in such a way like like wound fucking. Like, <laughs> like somebody finds that so erotic and that's so cool. Yeah. And then they probably, and, and it should be explored. Like how did that come to be? You mentioned that we like to construct narratives that somehow is grounded in childhood, but maybe it's genetic. Maybe it has to do with, maybe you can actually form and unform that fetish very quickly. I don't know. Uh, well, I, this is one of the things that I'm researching. So in the big survey that I'm doing, I asked so many questions about childhood. All the ones that I think like we have common theories that, about like, oh, are you abused? Is it yelled at by a man or a woman? Um, stuff like that. Like, are you, was it really sexually repressive? You know, was it gender roles where you've expected to conform? A whole bunch of stuff. And then I asked, you know, obviously about like a massive amount of fetishes. And my sample size right now is 500,000 people. 500,000 Yeah, it's massive. People. And I have this data for all of it. And the result looks like uh, it's not really correlated. Nothing that I asked about in childhood, nothing correlates with fetish preference later in life. It does correlate with onset. Lots of things that happen in childhood can like change like the, the age at which it triggers. They have so many fascinating blog posts. You had a blog post, I think, on the age of fetish onset. Yeah. And uh, like you, uh, you really nicely organized it by age, like reproduction as a fetish, I guess pregnancy. Yeah. As at, at age of 17, about 16.9. Uh, toys and like anal beads is 15.5. Yeah, one of the interesting things I found, I mean, this data set is so huge, it's taking me a long time to go through it. So this is like snippets from what I remember when I was glancing through the data. So this part is not rigorous, but it, I seem to get the impression that um, if you are 
if you, a fetish occurs for you earlier, like if you've much earlier onset, you're more likely to report being extremely interested into it. So later onset means you're going to be like less into the fetish. But if it hits earlier, it's like But I wonder if it passionate. passes, like, is there like Yeah, I didn't phases? measure old fetishes at all. Like no longer, right? You used to, but it is no longer there. Interesting. One interesting thing that I don't understand is that um, that uh, non-cis people seem to have more correlation between childhood experiences and fetishes. So I was saying that there's no correlation between childhood experiences mm -hmm. and fetishes. This holds for cis people. But yeah. trans people, especially trans men, there's a correlation. It doesn't mean they have absolutely higher rates of abuse or fetishes or anything. But I'm just saying that like, for them, there does actually seem to be some sort of connection between childhood experiences and sexuality later in life. And I don't understand why this applies to one group and not the other. I don't have a good theory for that. So usually you try, like when you see something like that, you, you'll try to construct a theory and see if you can find, like you keep that theory in mind, like a hypothesis of why it would mm -hmm. be. And then you ask f further questions to try to elaborate. Yeah. So can you maybe talk about the methodology of how you got the 500,000? Like what, uh, like how did this come to be? This might, uh, yeah, this is, I might go into way too much detail about this because I thought about this so much. Because yeah. I'm like, the question is, how do you get a lot of people to take a big survey? Yeah. The longer the survey is, the lower the response rate. Um, and I really wanted to do one big comprehensive survey so I could like check a whole bunch of correlations with it within it. Because uh, it's you know more annoying and it's harder to get a lot of people to retake similar surveys to each other at a time. So I'm like, okay, I need to convince a very large number of people to take a lot of these questions. And even building the questions, that was really hard because I'm like, okay, I need a comprehensive amount of fetishes. I can't ask everybody to answer for every single niche fetish. I'm like, do you like ball gags? Do you like funnel gags? Do you like wife shrew gags or whatever? I'm like, you can't um, do that. Nobody's going to finish define that survey. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask questions. What's a wife true? But okay. I, I'm not doing the. I'm trying to refer to like there's like a thing that like there's different types of gags. Like different types. Okay. Um, yeah, different. So I'm like, so what I need to do is I need to ask people a question. Like, are you in like bondage? And if you say yes, then then I'll go ask you all the bondage questions. Ah, got it. Right. But then this seems simple, but then it's just exploded because I'm like, how do I categorize these fetishes? There's like, if you're into splashing. Uh, which is like uh, you like sitting in cakes, you like getting in mud, but basically like kind of messy sensory. Yeah. Like, is this a disgust thing? Is it a humiliation thing? Is it a sensory thing? Like which category? Anyway, so it took me like two months of just agonizing over each fetish because you don't want to miss a fetish. You don't want to like have a really important thing that you accidentally put in the disgust category when it actually belongs in the humiliation category, you know? Well, let me think about that because like you're, you're still catching it. You're just missing. Categorizing it. Right, because if you're into splashing and you're like, this is clearly humiliation thing. So you say, yes, I'm into humiliation stuff. And then I don't ask you about splashing, then I'm missing a whole data set of people because I've falsely categorized the question. You're going to miss stuff. You're just picking what to what's less and less important to miss. Well, I'm trying to get people into the right question set. Sure. Because like, I can't ask you all the questions. I have to ask you a couple overarching questions to know what specific questions to ask you. And so I have to, those overarching questions have to be really, really well calibrated so that I can accurately feed you into the right sub part of the survey. Awesome. <clears throat> and so that was extremely difficult if I'm, when I'm dealing with, I think it was like 850 fetishes. Um, so I did a couple things to spot check. I like, I did a couple questions where I asked, um, it, like in the detailed in the survey, but like also the beginning of the survey, just to see like what cap percentage of people I was capturing. Um, 
But and then and then I scored the survey. So if you take it, I had other people answer preliminary surveys where they gave me data about how taboo the various fetishes were. And then I used that data so that when you fill out the survey, um, it's extremely comprehensive and you get data about exactly how taboo your interests are. Mm -hmm. And then you get a score at the end. And I give you an equivalent kinky character, which I also had people write a whole bunch of fictional characters and some historic ones about like how kinky they were. So then I matched the historic character, kinky character to your score. So that makes it like more fun, like gamifies it yeah. a little bit. And you could like you can brag about like how so people would share it with others. Sh share like, it. And a lot of the characters were like goofy, like like there's SpongeBob and like Hitler's on there and you know South Park characters. What, what, what is what is um what kink does Hitler have? I think he's like he's around uh, Marilyn Monroe, which is like slightly above average. Kinkiness. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought there was like a two dimensional space somehow. So this is like a literally from zero to how kinky, yeah. So Hitler's Crazy. about as a Marilyn Monroe. Who is uh, the most? What's the character for Willy like, Wonka? Is the most kinky? Was the most kinky, yeah. I think like maybe Captain America was the least kinky or something, or Gandhi. God. <laughs> Meanwhile, but that's another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, so it went viral on TikTok basically because people were like, what? I got this insane character. And then the sample size exploded from 40,000 to 500,000. Wow. So like all it took is that kind of incentive? Mm -hmm. Or did you like uh, at first have to pay people for the nope, server? No, it was just you that just incentive. And uh, what what about the demographic of the different people that took it? Um, mostly younger, so usually early twenties, um, predominantly female, like seventy percent female. Seventy percent female. Pretty like I wraps on a TikTok demographics pretty well. Yeah. Oh, okay, I got it. But that's that's interesting. Because young people are probably better for this kind of survey because there's probably a culture that's a little bit more honest about their sexuality. Uh, yeah, most likely. I think people are incentivized to be honest when they're getting a true identity response out of it. Like, sure. if you're doing it for money, you don't care. But like, if you are invested in the result, you want to know what the the truth of the answers are, then you actually... It's possible that you also don't want to know the truth. Yeah, this is true. But on average, hopefully that doesn't... I mean, there's these are really difficult. Like, what what is there some interesting little quirks that um, people should know about, about your methodology that you had to kind of solve to try to get to a really good survey? So one of you said is the categorization. Mm -hmm to make it more efficient? Is there some for the analysis part? Yeah, so the the graph that you were talking about is um, it's a binary. So it's like if you, and if somebody expressed even a little bit of interest, then it goes into the graph. So it's like 80% of people expressed even a little bit of interest. So it's not representing degree of interest. It's not differentiating between them at all. So it's possible that like some fetishes have exactly the same amount of people like are at least a little bit into them, but one of them is very extreme interest and the other is like, vague and not very intense. So that's not reflected. Um, I also like probably didn't represent the visual part right. <laughs> like may, might not be intuitive, but. You chose a log scale, but yeah. it was kind of spreads things out to make yeah. it more in, more clear. Because the linear, it was just so clustered at the bottom, you couldn't really separate it out. So there's obviously like selection effects. It's possible that like the identity result at the end impacted people's results a little bit. But the thing is like, I'm comparing it to what exists. Like, what is the alternative? Yeah. And right now the, the research on this stuff is terrible. So it's like, I'm not saying my research is perfect, um, but it's like, at least it's something. Like it's something that's pointing us maybe in a direction that we might be able to do more research on. And you're making the data available. Yeah, 
Yep. I'm, I'm doing it slowly because uh, it, there's so, I ask about so many questions. It's like not very anonymized. Yeah. So I'm releasing small sections of the data at a time. Yeah. Have you, uh, have you published in like journals and stuff? No, I haven't. Do you have any interest in that or, or is your your approach? I'm like, I have, I'm conflicted about it. Like, it sounds cool because then I could be like, ha ha, I'm published in a journal. Yeah. And then people who are yelling about me who don't know anything about statistics on Twitter, like, then I can go like shove it in their face. But then you're also giving in to the yeah. that silly criticism, giving right? In. Like, I don't, like, I want, I feel so passionate about extra science, like science that you can just do. Like I want to make science accessible. Like anybody can just go look and learn about the basics of like doing a survey or figuring out how to interpret information. Um, and doing doing a published journal feels like I'm, <laughs> I'm betraying my cause a little bit. That's often behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's uh, It goes against the... I mean, I think you not publishing in a journal is doing a big public service. <laughs> Aww. I think it's the first time I've heard that. Thank you. Oh, like just coming from like on this topic, mm. the elite, the elitism I see on the psychology side with the journals and the academia, the positions and the, the institutions you come from, all of that, that goes against, um, I think that's more useful for math and computer science and so on, where there's like clear, like, mm. co- co- but even then, even then code is code, data is data. Yeah. Like uh prestige shouldn't matter at all. Yeah. Um maybe maybe for like like biological experiments like virology or something like that. It's good to be from a major lab that has a reputation for like going through all the procedures like you know you can trust. Mm-hmm. But here like you're dealing with a giant mess of humanity. Like it, it's beautiful to be transparent, to be raw, to be exploring it together with everybody. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really beautiful. I think people like have a lot of incentive to doubt the results. Like a lot of the research I'm doing is to like cis and trans people. Like like we don't have any data about transsexuality. Like not very good at least. Um and I'm really curious. I don't really have an agenda about it. I think mm-hmm. like being trans is a cool if you want to be trans do it and like i have some skepticism about like gender theory mm-hmm. but like it doesn't come down to impact like the way i think trans people should be treated which i think is like treat them you know be fucking nice and human about it i don't know but when i'm talking about the the thing like my conclusions are that like uh, transsexuality is really unique um it's not like like cis or or cis woman or man sexuality at all and to me this is super cool but like a lot of people this is very politicized right now like the data into like transsexual preferences like it's so loaded which is really sad because i am very accepting of weird sexuality like if you're into a weird thing i'm like good for you this is super cool like let's figure out how to make it so that you can explore the thing you're into without any stigma but because there's so much stigma that like if you find that one demographic is into weirder sex stuff than the other like it's hard to present that in a way that people don't weaponize so it's been it's been really politically touchy subject here yeah but you do it in a way that's not does it's not feel like it has an agenda right you're just exploring yeah i feel pretty open to what I'm going to find. Like, I, I often have no idea what the data is going to tell me. And I'm like, I pre-commit, like, okay, I could say A, B, or C, and I'm like down to publish any of those findings. Uh, so you've put together an ask whole cart deck. Yeah. With a lot of awesome questions to ask at a party or anywhere, honestly, uh, including on the podcast. Let me ask you one from, from, from that deck. Is sex really about power? So what's the role of power dynamics in sex? With everything you understand, like in from the survey, in terms of what people are turned on by, mm-hmm. you've talked about like the preferences that women versus men have 
for like submissiveness and mm -hmm. dominance. And uh, we've already talked about it a little bit, but like it's expressed more strongly. Yeah, I already forget the results, but I feel like yeah. women have more preference to be submissive. Yeah, this is but one of the things that got me into researching fetishes to begin with. Because I think I came across some data, I did like a brief survey where about roughly around 60% of women report being submissive and 40% of men report being dominant. And this was really fascinating to me. I'm like, well, why is there this gap? Like, why, why do we not? Because I guess I have some priors that maybe this is an evolutionary thing. Like the submission dominant, like strong men, and you know, like women being like, oh, it's hot, hot man. You know, yeah. the men are like ravaging and stuff. I'm like, yeah. shouldn't this be a, in our genes? But, but there's a gap. What's the gap? The, the gap is the dominant submissive gap. More women are submissive than there are dominant men. Oh. Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. It's a pretty significant gap. And this is held up, like, it depends on what you're testing. I've tested a bunch of things. This is part of why I did this big survey. Nice. But it, it depends, against again, on, like, what kind of dominance you're measuring. But overall, it's a roughly 40 to 60%. So when you say there's not many dominant men, then uh, the, the meaning, like, they express, like, a desire to be dominant in a relationship? Yeah. Or, like, in sexually. 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 In bed. So, like, if I ask questions like, how much do you like being dominant in bed? Like, men are less likely to answer strong yes to that question. But if I ask, are you likely to be submissive? Like women are very much yes. Really, and that's expressive. Like that's that 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 represents truth. Um, my guess. What's is, wrong with men? So, so this is. I think there's some reflection in like FetLife. So FetLife is this website where people like sign up and connect based on their fetishes. Yeah. And this is like you can kind of see it picked up in the forum posts about like how like dominant men are you know are getting laid so much and you know submissives are always looking for a dominant. Like there's it's an unequal market. Holy shit. Yeah. This is great news. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, what does it reflect about modern society? Is that like a, is that, because you know, there's these trends about like decreased masculinity or that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So, is that reflect, is that I'm, similar? I'm trying not to hold on to one theory because I'm not sure. One is possible like decreasing testosterone levels. Um, testosterone seems to be, I have a little bit of other research, but I'm still checking it out, that seems to indicate that uh, higher testosterone, you're more likely to be dominant. So if we're seeing decreased testosterone levels across society, we should be seeing a greater uh, gap. Um, this is so fascinating. Once again, this is like a super interesting way to look at humanity because it is such an important part of humanity. And so like how many people are doing large scale research like this? I feel like you're like, at the top of the world. You're like world-class at the top of the world doing research on this stuff. Yeah, I think I might have the biggest, most comprehensive fetish data set in the world right now. That's epic. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really happy about it. I'm very proud. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's probably growing, but it's also enabling you to establish a name to where you, like a prestige, like a reputation to where people can go to you to like trust you more and more, to do longer surveys perhaps. Like, yeah, maybe. I, I think people, it's the, the, data, the data analysis afterwards is very different from like the survey design itself. So sure. I'm, st I'm still very amateur at the data analysis. Yeah, but you can always catch up on that. Yeah. I guess the data analysis does enable you to, does teach you how to ask better questions in order yes, to understand. Yes, it goes back and forth. Like as I'm looking at the data, it informs the way I want to phrase questions the next time. So women are more, at least in private, able to uh, say that they would like to be submissive and men, even in private, are not disproportionately saying they're not yeah. willing to be dominant. 
Yeah. So it's possible (laughs) if this is caused by decreasing testosterone levels, and this means that we're probably having less satisfying sex overall. Like we're becoming less and less sexually compatible as time goes on. To be fair, I'm not sure that it is connected to testosterone levels. Like it's possible that this is just like a genetic thing. Like maybe the gay uncle theory, like the idea is like maybe gay people evolved to like be sort of taking themselves out of the gene pool to be to be assistants. And like it's possible that like there's certain percentage of men sort of like quote unquote evolved to be submissive to take themselves out of sexual competition. And to instead be like the the monkeys revolving at the edge of the pack. It's unclear. Oh, 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 it's a method of survival? Like, so you stay out of the competition? Yeah. And I'm like a little sus about these kinds of Evo psych theories. So I'm not, I'm just saying it because it's like There's one different thing ideas that, that are possible. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I'm not saying that it's definitely testosterone. There's other things. It's also possible that it's culture. People are definitely going to bring that up. Based on my, survey though it doesn't seem to be any evidence of that like i asked about uh like how much pressure was put on you to be you know agenty in your childhood like a, a lot of questions around this kind of thing and no correlation at all to dominance well related to sexuality i'm very uncomfortable right now but nevertheless the- plow forward <laughs> in a dominant fashion <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh this, the the blog post titled Rape Spectrum Survey Results. Mm. What are the key takeaways from that survey? So I did the survey when I had a friend be like, hey, I had this confusing sexual experience. Was it rape? Like somebody kind of pressured her and she eventually stopped saying it or something. I was like, that's a great question. Like, I don't know how people would consider this. And so I put a whole bunch of different gray uh, scenarios on into a survey and then ask people to rate how rapey they thought that scenario was. So you actually like little nar- like little narratives that yeah. they get to rate. Like, you know, this person is on a date with this person, they get drunk and the other person's not drunk. I try to keep gender neutral uh, names for all of them. And then re- you reduce them into a more concise description of the situation. Yeah. Like in this visualization, so you have this rape spectrum that's a result. Yeah. Where on top are things that are less likely to be considered rape by the people that took the survey and the bottom okay. more likely. The the likeliest is a stranger forcibly assaults someone who screams and fights the entire time that gets a hundred. Um what do we make of something that's not zero? It's like a twelve is what? What is that? How are we supposed to interpret a twelve out of a hundred? Extremely rape? low. <laughs> okay. Having so it's like not zero, but it's just very close to it. Having sex with an enthusiastic sex worker yeah. is a 12. That's the lowest one. And there's uh, a few, I'll just mention a few that are lower, like at, at that level. Have sex to make a partner happy in a relationship, lying about wealth, hobbies in order to get laid. Person with Down syndrome eagerly has sex with a neurotypical, not revealing being transgender until after sex and so on. I think you mentioned that there's some, like that not revealing being transgender until after sex, there's some differences amongst what men and women or something yeah, like th- that. I, mean, I think that was the one that men found more offensive yeah. than women. I'm trying to, I wrote it a while ago. Uh, I mean, uh, this is nuanced and difficult, right? It's, it's because uh, I think in a lot of public discourse, the word rape is pretty binary. Yeah, it's like it's either is or is not rape. And so you had a friend where it was like, this felt rapey. 
Yeah, she's like confused about how to interpret it. Yeah. And I think people look to the terms to know how to feel about something. Yeah. Like, have you ever like been through an experience? You're like, that was weird. And then you tell it to somebody else and they're like, oh my God, you were assaulted. Yeah. And then it totally recontextualizes the thing that you've experienced. And I think that this is clunky with the word rape because you, either you were raped or you're not. You either like have this entire context like thrust upon you or you don't. Yeah. And we're really not nuanced about it at all. And so I would really like to have some sort of like, oh, that was like a 30% rape you just endured. Yeah, and that, I mean, there's probably other dimensions about how traumatic it is, how difficult it is yeah. to recover from, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, like people, it's a dangerous thing to assign a word to, to to an experience, like even or to a relationship, like saying a toxic relationship. Yeah, that that can completely destroy your perception of that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I remember this was the case with my childhood. Like I talked about being very abusive, but I, I've talked about how like there was a good amount of meaning there so that I didn't process it as abusive at the time. And I remember after I got out of that house and that culture, people would tell me, oh, your childhood was really abusive. And I was really confused by that because it's a total recontextualization of that narrative. It's like the things that I went through were not, you know, good and virtuous and had meaning, but rather those were like the result of, you know, parents who didn't like love you enough or something. Mm -hmm. Uh and it, even though the the concrete things that happened to me did not change, like no facts shifted, the fact that like the the interpretation of the facts shifted caused me quite a bit of distress for a long time. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my god, I'm you know I'm a traumatized like abused person, like I went through an abusive childhood, and it was really hard for me. It made it worse. Mm -hmm. Like it's crazy the power that terms have. I think we didn't talk about this, but how did you how did you begin to overcome uh, the the trauma of your childhood? You mentioned LSD, so were drugs a part yeah. of it? Like, what, what was the just the mental journey of that? I was doing LSD quite a lot when I was 21, What's 22? it like, by the way? I've never done LSD. Really? What, what's it's it? very difficult to describe because it's like, like it changes sort of aspects about your environment that are invisible to you because they're so stable. Is it, like, if you can compare it to, like, psilocybin... Is it very different? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like similar. I forgot that you did shrooms. Yeah. Okay. Then you probably know. You know, like the kind of shift that you have from cyber to shrooms is roughly similar. It's like more clear, I think. Shrooms is more like embodied, but it, LSD is much more intellectual for me. Hmm. It strikes different people differently. I prefer shrooms a lot. I'm sorry, LSD. I prefer LSD a lot. Why is it not popularly take? Like, the, the, there seems to be a negative connotation to LSD because, like, it seems to potentially have like a destructive effect like maybe dosage is more difficult to get right or something like that just exactly so actually a long time ago i did a survey on shrooms versus lsd so i asked people and people had slightly stronger experiences on lsd overall i remember but rated the experiences about as equally good mm -hmm. um but i think people like shrooms because it feels more natural quote unquote but i think if you like fed somebody a shroom and like actually had the lsd molecule in it they would have a they would think it felt very natural but that's besides the point i, I like I think people get kind of incoherent on LSD in a way that feels really alienating. Like I consider LSD, my LSD use very heavy to be one of the best decisions I ever made in my life, but I definitely was incoherent for a lot of it. Like talking about like, we're all one consciousness. Everything is love, man. You know, and people are Why like- Why is that incoherent? <laughs> so I think it's not incoherent. But like, if you go around saying everything is love, people are like, this guy's kind of blasted out of his mind. <laughs> this podcast <laughs> is basically your LSD trip on the <laughs> for a bunch of episodes. Yeah, I, I get this for sure. Oh well, well, it's not just about love, but it's a uh, it's about like talking in that way about reality, about the world. Yeah, 
Sure. Yeah, it's like overfitting. You're, yeah. the, the narratives that you make about the world become really vivid. And so you pattern match just really aggressively. Like everything is connected and you come up with these explanations for things. Yeah. And I think I was very fortunate. So I have like this theory about psychedelics where you either like belief construct or you don't. So you take psychedelics and it sort of like burns away a lot of your belief structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you this happens and then you're like, ah, I need to like invent something to fill in the gaps. So you're like, okay, I, I think that maybe uh, time is an illusion. So I must now believe that like we're actually in a time loop or like mm-hmm. time travel is possible. So you experience time differently and then you come up with a different belief about time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas other people uh, don't do this belief construction at all. Like you experience time differently and you sort of let yourself not have a belief. You're not like, okay, I mean, you're not developing any beliefs about time in its absence. You're just simply experiencing the absence of the concept of time. Right. Uh, and so I, I don't have a lot of data to back this up in my anecdotal experience because I've tripped out a lot of people. People either tend to believe construct or they don't. And people who do not believe construct seem to get more out of their LSD trips. So if you can let a belief go without building anything in its absence, um, it's much more beneficial for you. And I think I just, for some reason, happen to have some brain that's constructed where I don't get a belief construction at all. So oh, that's really interesting that belief construction is negative. What is it, is it necessarily negative? Can you, can you elaborate on that a little but, bit? I mean belief construction in a way that's like... Uh, N- not like playing with frames, but rather committing to a different frame. So I, uh, sure. I like I like being able to play with ideas and be like, let's look at it this way or that way. That's awesome. But if you're like, okay, you know what? I took LSD and now I absolutely believe the cops are outside. Yeah. And you're like, dude, no, you're just like, you, you, and you can't shift out of that, right? Like your brain like needs to fill in the gap. You're not allowed to have a gap. So you're not allowed to be flexible. And again, I don't think this is like a personal failing of any, I think this is like literally probably a genetic or like physical thing that's causing but, this. But do you think there's possible beliefs that are like enlightening that you can stick to, like find a frame that like, I guess if you don't believe constructing, you're escaping your previous beliefs, aren't you doing like just some, you're picking up a bigger frame? Yeah, in I some mean, way, you're taking your sense. beliefs as object. As opposed to being subject to them. Ah, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. And some of that, I guess, is genetic. And there's these categories of people. There's two categories that experience LSD in different ways. Yeah. And and you're one of those that are able to just let go. Yeah, I just think I had a good reaction. And I think a lot of maybe the negative stereotype of LSD comes from people who are belief constructing or carry the belief constructing off of the LSD trip. So you take LSD and you're like, ah, I'm believing these insane things. And people from the outside see that and they're like, oh my God, this person took LSD and became stupid. Yeah. It's very scary. Um, what's frame control? Because that has been a, at the core of your trauma, at the mm-hmm. core of your upbringing. What's frame control? And also, no, sorry, frame control in general, because that's part of human interaction. Uh, yeah, frame control is like a way of manipulating somebody else that is non-obvious. Uh, so there's a negative connotation to that usually? Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. I think maybe I chose the term kind of poorly because I think to some degree people are always a little bit manipulating each other. Yeah. But I think it's generally obvious. Like, for example, if I disagree with you, mm-hmm. I want you to believe what I believe. Yeah. Uh, but this is like an obvious thing that is like visible between. It's like an object on the table. It's sure. like, here's the box where I want you to believe what you want. The disagreement believe. box. Yeah, so like right, like we're under a shared context where we understand that like we're trying to sh- move each other. Yeah, this is chill to me. I think this is cool. Yeah, uh, we do this all the time, and it's important. But frame control is the kind of thing where you are trying carefully to obscure the existence of that box. Yeah, you're like, oh, um, the thing that I'm doing, I'm like using tactics to try to influence what your reality is without us being both aware that this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I've been assuming you're doing that the whole time. No. Oh my Go God. 
I have to like figure out how to read your facial expressions. I'm still learning. There's none. There's none. You don't have any? I'm I'm like a I'm not even like a Chad GPT. I'm like GPT one with my facial expressions. Like it's kind of off. Like this doesn't seem to match emotions, but it's kind of intelligent seemingly, but definitely not conscious. Anyway, so like uh, negative connotation, manipulating, right? Not being honest about the actual intentions of the. Uh, yeah. Of how you'd like to, to control the conversation. And I think there like might be a naive version of interpreting this where you're just like, oh, I'm trying to like subtly get you to, you know, believe like, oh, do you really think that's bad though? But this is not quite what I mean. I mean, there's like a couple of like, concrete things that are signs of frame control. Um, mm-hmm. Like one of them is pushing the painful update button, um, which is this thing where it's like, uh, hey, if you uh, learn this, it's going to be really painful. The truth is painful. Mm-hmm. And if you're realizing this thing about yourself, it's going to hurt. And this is a sign that you're heading in the right direction. Yeah. So if you frame all pain as a sign of virtue, then this means that pain that's resulting as as damage is something you're going to ignore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like this, it's a common like cults, right? This is for your own good. Oh, uh, you know, you've, you've faced a brave truth about yourself that you're like not quite as wise as I am. Yep. Um, when really your brain might be trying to tell you protective things. Or like another one is like finger trap beliefs, um, mm-hmm. where you, the belief is constructed in such a way that doubting it lends proof to the belief. So a like uh, very common yeah. example is like Satan. Like uh, the Christians are like, uh, you know, Satan is going to try to make you doubt him, mm-hmm. the, the existence of he's going to so doubt, like maybe he's not actually real. Mm-hmm. And so if you believe in Satan and then you're like, okay, now I'm having doubts, like maybe he isn't real. This is like, oh, this is exactly what I was taught to expect. Like I am doubting this belief because I was told, uh, because like this is what Satan does and it's taken as evidence for it. So like the attempt to move away from the belief, like re like rebounds on you and like causes you to be more embedded inside of the belief. Yeah. Uh, so it's like techniques like these, like very subtle things where like being inside of this system sort of just self-reinforces the system is what I consider to be frame control. And have you met people that are really good at this kind of frame control? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so like you, you're, you're saying that your father was like that? Yeah, to be fair, I'm not sure he was good at it because I was a kid. Right. I think like he's probably not very good at it actually, but when you're a child being raised in a house where he works from home and you're homeschooled, uh, it's just kind of what's going to happen. And uh, to be fair, I do think that like strong frame control is quite rare. I don't mm-hmm. think most people are kind of doing something like this, but not nearly to the degree that makes gives me the ick. Yeah, uh, I've met maybe like five or six people, I think, who I really don't like because of those very subtle things that they're doing. Well, I think also I'm starting to kind of understand that there is people who are narcissists and sociopaths and psychopaths out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not even sure if people like that, because I think they get good at frame control. But I don't know if they're aware they're doing it. Oh, yeah. Which makes me also nervous about myself. Like, yeah. am I doing frame control? <laughs> yeah, that's like, one of the big things. It's like, like you ch- typically people, you can't think about incentive. Like, you can't think about, oh, is this person trying to do it or not? Yeah. That's like not the quite not the way. You have to look at what are the effects. Pr- pragmatically looking at the effects. And then you also have to do that with yourself when yes. you have the interactions yeah, with yeah. others. It's like very much like, are you like, how much space are you making for the other person's reality here? Like, sure. are you are you giving power to the other person? Because a big aspect of frame control is you're carefully rerouting the power to yourself. You're like, I am the person who knows. I like you're having pain in your beliefs because you're updating towards the things that I believe. Like it's it's just like a gravity well. But if you're if you're setting up the gravity well of your interaction such that you're making sure you're giving the other person power over the shared reality you inhabit, I think it's a really good sign that you're not doing frame control. 
So if you're making room for them. Yeah. Okay. Unless we're talking about in bed, then it th- then th- then it's all general relativity <laughs> from there and black holes and stuff. Frame control, bed frame control. Bed frame control. Um it took me a long time to get a bed frame. Just I'm I'm saying. Oh. But you wear a suit though. Uh yeah, uh, so frame control in the streets, no frame in the sh- in the sheets. I don't know. I don't know what the funny thing is to say there, but there you have it. Um, so the, the LSD helped you escape the f- the the frame mm. of. Uh, can you like elaborate what what was the frame that was holding you back from, like the frame constructed by your childhood experience that was holding you back as an intellectual, as a thinker, as a free being in this world? Mm. Well, I was really fucked up. Like, after I left home and I it absorbed the external narrative that I had been abused, which technically is true. I'm not saying I wasn't, but, like, I absorbed this narrative. And I just remember having, like, this burning coals in my chest at all times. Like, if I had to call out of my factory work when Father's Day happened because I was spending the whole day sobbing because everybody's talking about their fathers. Like, I was really messed up. And it's because I held this important thing, this this idea, this frame, that I had been deeply wronged. Like, there was a correct way of being, and the world had violated that. Something should not have happened. Like, my father should have loved me. And it was like this, this like, like the shearing in the nature of reality. And that was really agonizing to have. And LSD really messes with frames a lot. It takes like what you think is normal and really screws with it. And I did an LSD like several times before, but there's one LSD trip where I mem- I went through my entire childhood in my head because LSD like really makes your memories quite vivid. Like anything you visualize, it's like you're in it. Mm-hmm. And so I just went and very carefully, deliberately went and remembered every single memory that I could have that was really painful for me. Like the times that I lost friends and all the things I valued and like being broken because like my parents, would, especially my dad would refer to like, breaking me like explicitly we're gonna break your will and so all these times where i was like they had successfully broken my will over and over and it was horrible i was just like sobbing tears streaming down my face and then i like worked through my whole child i got to the end and i'm gonna tear up because every time i talk about this it's just like the sensation of like being free from that for the first time is so incredible like i remember being outside of my house and being able to like go where I wanted and think what I wanted. And uh, it was just so blissful. And I was soaked in this gratitude on this trip, just like vibrating with complete joy for everything. Like I was just looking around, like I could touch anything. Mm-hmm. Like I could cry if I wanted to. I wasn't allowed to cry. I was allowed to be depressed. I was trying to, I got depressed as a child. And my parents were like, if you keep being depressed, we're going to like force you to scrub the whole house. Like just like the ability to have a feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, was so thrilling. And I was so grateful for this. I was like, I would do anything to give this experience to someone else. I would do anything, even if it was like putting them through what I went through. And then like with that realization, I was like, oh, it was worth it. The thing that I went through was worth it for this. I would do it again to like be able to have this deep gratitude for what I have now. Mm-hmm. And then that shifted the meaning frame. Because before the meaning had been like something had sheared, something that like, shouldn't have happened. But now it was like the exact right thing had happened. So it's almost a gift. Yeah. I was like, ah, I would not give up my childhood. I would do it again. And I believe that to this day. For the moment of discovering that freedom. Yeah. Because like everything now, my whole life is in contrast to that. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. It's fucking great. I'm really thrilled about it. Do you, 
Is is there part of you that hates your father still? Kind of. Like, I don't want a relationship with anymore. After that, there was some forgiveness. Like, I had this burning, I would have nightmares about, you know, him killing me or something. And after that, it kind of stopped. Like, the the fire in my chest went away permanently after that trip. It was so fast. It was like, before I was fucked up, after that trip, I woke up the next day and I was clean. Wow. It was really severe. Uh, And I definitely don't want to be around him still like he still like triggers the fear in my body yeah but i don't have that hang up anymore i'm like kind of i'm over it like i've let go he's his own person like Mm -hmm. ultimately he didn't get to decide who he was in the same way that i didn't get to decide who i was so that's almost like a kind of at least intellectual like forgiveness you have for him yeah and that so that that trip just took you through your whole were you alone, by the way, when you're doing the trip? Uh, yeah, I had roommates, but it, the, the trip was mostly alone. I had somebody else who was like sitting in the room, but they weren't interacting with me. <laughs> so you're sitting there experiencing all yeah. this. What's the timeline? Like, how long does it take to t- go through your whole childhood? I don't remember. I mean, time's really messed up when you <laughs> when you do that. I was listening to the soundtrack of The Fountain, which is excellent. Yeah. I listened to that a lot when I did LSD. I don't know. It's probably a couple hours. That's amazing. I mean, it's like, it would be, it's just like a vivid experience of your childhood, yeah. moment by moment, trauma by trauma. And it's good to experience it purely. Like it just is what it is. It just is grief. Like it is loss and you just are in it without having to make it be anything. And it's so interesting that you can, I mean, work through that. So for a lot of us, for a lot of human beings, like childhood is f- full of those kind of mini traumas big or small and like working through that it feels like what a lot of life is about is trying to work through that and it feels like you have to kind of relive it i guess that's what therapy is about in part and be able to vocalize yeah. it yeah I, I this is why i feel really confused about the concept of trauma like people use this word so much like are you traumatized and i understand why like i'm this is why i feel confused about it but part of me is like i wonder if by using that term we're creating the trauma in people they were using the frame where the thing that happened to you was not supposed to happen. Yeah, yeah, maybe there needs to be a different frame. No, I I, I agree with you totally. I just I've I've made friends with and talked to this guy named uh, Paul Conti. He wrote a book on, on on trauma. He's an incredible, brilliant psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's probably agrees with you. Kind of. Oh, that's uh, cool. I should read it. Yeah, you should. Um, maybe maybe even talk to. Him. He's a fascinating human being. I'd be um, interested in the. Um, a psychiatrist's perspective is really interesting because it's a uh, you do you've been doing kind of an in-person survey because mm. you've done done so many patients like <laughs> like he he's like just talking to him is fascinating because like if I describe my experience or somebody else's experience it, it, I could see his brain mapping it in interesting ways to the tens of thousands of mm. of like data points he has in his head and it's like. Of course, that's what doctors do, but it's cool when the doctor is mm-hmm. basically the doctor of the mind, and um, have like an actual like like qualitative data and be able to. I mean, that's where the poetic stuff comes in. Ultimately, as a psychiatrist, you're exploring the human mind with a bit of a sort of romantic element. Yeah, you can't be really systematic about it, but I, it does seem like frame or not, be able to just talk through the experiences you had. Mm-hmm. is really powerful. What about it is appealing? Is it just like being able to revisit it with new eyes? No, I don't know exactly. It just seems to work for people. Uh, 
I don't know if it's appealing. It just seems like almost acknowledging to yourself that things happen. Um, like I've said, uh, I think I've said this before, my brother who I love very much, uh, tried to set me on fire a few times. And I, I think I, to me, it's funny, but I wonder if, if I didn't talk about it, like if that would mm -hmm. be traumatic, maybe like talking and laughing about it. Cause it was traumatic to me at the time. I see. I was like, I love you. Why are you setting me on fire? But it's what kids do when they're like, yeah. <laughs> I, <love> you. <laughs> I, <wish laughs> I was like, what, I was whatever. Five, this is what boys do. Like it's, they're, they're crazy. Uh, <laughs> it makes total sense. It was probably funny and from his perspective. But yeah, I wonder, I want to bring that to the surface if that, that helps. And maybe LSD allows you to, uh, or different drugs, depending on the person, allows you to more vividly bring it to the surface. And then depending on your genetics, be able to find a better frame. Mm. That's fascinating. Human mind is freaking fascinating. <sighs> All right. What's romantic to you, by the way? Uh, I'm not a big romance person. What is? Uh, so you're not like, so to you romantic is like objective analysis of the interactions between humans? <laughs> a little bit. Like I do find kind of the survey process that I did to be romantic. Mm -hmm. uh, when I, the guy that I asked out who I'm still dating, I was like, hey, you scored really high on my survey. You want to like go eat food or something? And his response was like, you want to try doing three days in an Airbnb? as our first date. And I was like, yeah. And that was romantic. Like the bold leap into oh, leap into a really I, intense date. I think you mentioned, <laughs> I think you mentioned something also, um, must've been a tweet or something like that, where if you, um, if people want you to show up to a thing, give like the time, the location, the dress code, and, and not, no pressure for you to be there, but like show up if you want. Mm. That was your specification. It's a great memory, yeah. And then I think you said that you did that for like some castle in south south of France. I did, yeah. That was in my early twenties. People, my friends at home were taking prediction markets on whether or not I was going to get abducted and killed. Yeah, what was that like? I mean, what what um, you've traveled quite a bit. Like, do you take these giant risks? What's what's with that? I think I used to more when I was younger with the traveling. I think I'm like a little traveled out now. But like my first when I moved out of Idaho for the first time, I moved to Australia. I just kind of yeeted myself across the globe. But, Sorry, which verb did you just use? Yeah, yeet. It's like yeet to yote, yatted, yeet. So people do people? Is this like slang? Is this like Urban Dictionary? Or is this actual? Or yeah, this you have to like feel into the word. Like if you take a thing and you just like curl it really hard. Ah. Does not feel like a yeet motion. Okay, so you yeeted. So it was aggressive. So across the globe, with a, you didn't even stop mm -mm. in. I Just know, hurled myself, yeah. Italy along the way. I just kept yeeting myself in various places, yeah. And so at one point, I was on okay, Cupid, and somebody sent me a long message being like, you should come to, I don't know, I'm hosting a castle. It's some people that I met. I'm like, I have no idea who you are, but I just bought a plane ticket. I just went. And that was life changing. I ended up dating that guy for years, and he he changed my life quite a bit because he he like was very agenty in the world. And before that, I wasn't agenty. Agenty, like, uh, can we like so expressing agency? It sounds like you were, and don't you have to express agency when you're yeeting yourself across the world? Yeah, but only Are a you... little bit. Like in the same way you express agency when you eat LSD. Like the only thing you actually do in eating LSD is like put the tab in your mouth, and then you just kind of scream the whole way after that. Yeah. 
But I, I, there are a lot of other things. Like I didn't feel powerful to, enough to like go make events happen or anything. Ah. And it was this guy, uh, he had a lot of agency in the sense that he would just sort of create realities through the people around him. Mm-hmm. Be like, okay, we're going to do this startup or we're going to throw this incredible event. Like, let's just do it. And it would somehow happen. And it was really cool to see that. And so that one thing led to another. And it was one of the biggest impacts on my life, I think. Yeah, that's pretty bold. That's, I would say it's pretty romantic. South of France. Yeah, yeah, it was in a little castle. It was in the winter, so we were all cozied up by the fire. Um, I'm jumping around here. Twitter poll. Have you ever hitchhiked? You posted this Twitter poll. Out of all, that was a big list of Twitter polls. Why did you pick the hitchhiking one? I don't know, because it's relevant to, to, oh, I to, see. to traveling. And I like that one. That's romantic too, right? I'm actually terrified of hitchhiking, but I have done it a little bit. Oh, so it's terrifying. It's not romantic to you. So well, you're terrified yeah. of what? Oh, so you you, you are terrified well, of- interacting with strangers. That's terrifying. Yeah. You still, you go to south of France. That, yeah. <laughs> but that was like a cohesive thing. I don't know. Like mm. there's- It made sense. There's like times where you're allowed to be weird and times where you're not. And like if you're- like Who's allowing with, you? Uh, yeah, some vague egregore of society. I'm not sure. Okay. But if some people are like, hey, we think you're cool. Come to this party. You're like, all right, I'm allowed to come to this party and be really weird. But if you're p- being picked up by a hitchhiker, they're going to want to make small talk and you can't be weird or they're going to kick you out. I kind of think, because Valentine's Day is coming up, I'm kind of thinking it's doing something crazy. I'm not sure. South of France sounds nice. You got to like, you got to go on like a crazy romantic date with a woman you don't know at all. Yeah. I think I'm going to like tweet something and just like, how do I select randomly basically? How do you select totally randomly, like not not people from your audience? No, you want no, no, for, for, no, 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 from the audience, but in an interesting way, random, sufficient. Mm-hmm. So random amongst good choices. Couldn't you have people just like submit a form with, and then you just randomize it, and then select sure. one, and then you just that. if it's terrible, you just go randomize it again, <laughs> like the first not terrible option. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Somebody's like drown yourself, but I feel like I you, then it's no longer random. You kind of want to do random. You just do it. <laughs> And just do it. Fly across the world somewhere in some random place. Just for like a single event. For like a dinner. Yeah. You got some sort of itch in you. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. The the itch to live. <laughs> it's like, like sometimes it's nice to drop a little like chaos into a thing. Right? What's your chaos survey, by the way? Like I, you mentioned that earlier. I kind of saw it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That's one it. of like the sort of artistic attempts at a survey. Because, you know, like at least from what I understand, the big five and the way that they used to do IQ tests I've heard is that they do factor analysis, you know, where they ask a whole bunch of questions and then they run calculations on the data to like sort of group it by organic clusters. So like with the big five, it's like people who say, oh, I like to be at parties. They also tend to say yes to the questions. Like I like being the center of attention. And so you notice that like there's a cluster of ways that people are answering the question and then you can sort of pull out an organic spectrum. And so I was like, okay, we've done that a whole bunch with things like personality or uh, like romantic stuff. Like I did it with the rape spectrum survey, but like what happens if you apply that method to a completely unselected group of questions? Just like no random chaotic, no thing whatsoever. Like what happens if you ask all possible questions, what natural things evolve out of that natural spectrums? So I had other people submit questions for a very large survey and I took the first, I think 1100 and barely filtered them at all. And then I just had a whole bunch of people answer them. Uh, can you give like a hint to what it looks like? Like what? Like how crazy did the question get? It's, I mean, a lot of them were standard, but somebody was like, "If 
Beelzebub like did something in 1512 to like turn the world over, would you would you like it? I don't know. It's like it was really just insane questions. There's a couple of those. Uh, a lot of like would you fuck Ayla ones, but I don't know. It was all across a the lot spectrum. Of would you fuck Ayla? Yeah, I had to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lot of the same question. Yeah. <laughs> Once. Okay, I got you. Yeah, so it's it really all, it was like normal personal habits. It was, you know, romantic preferences or political preferences, personality stuff, like random opinions about media. Okay. That's interesting. I'd love to see those actual, actual questions. But because you, your audience is probably really super interesting minds. Okay. Uh, you mentioned body count. <laughs> you you said you can answer that one easily. Uh, do you share your body count? Do you know your body count? Do you know, is there a spreadsheet? Uh, there's a spreadsheet, yes. Is it Google Sheets? Is it's it Excel? Google Sheets, yeah. Okay. Have you run like, uh, is there, you don't have to share the, the, the contents, but is there like data on each? So I track uh, paid clients and free sex mm-hmm. separately. And... I track different things on either of the, like with clients, I track like positions we used and who had an orgasm. And with personal people, I just track basically like age, city, you know, name. And I, I, I've had this with, I think 42 people, I think for free. So it's, I'm sharing this because like I want number. people to calibrate. Like it's not like huge. It's not like tiny. One of the people I've recently talked to, uh, Mel, Destiny's, Stephen's uh, wife is a huge fan of yours. Uh, she was actually really excited to get to uh, talk to you, but she—I think she said her body count is more than forty-two. I think she said sixty, cool. something like this. And so, it's interesting because she was like saying, like she loves like looking at your at your work, talking to you because you have similar perspectives on the world, and it's really refreshing. It's mm-hmm. liberating. Wow, that's oh, really sweet. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, what, is there like an optimal body count? Like, if you were to map, I wonder. Yeah. What have you found out about body count in doing? Have you actually done surveys on body count, like on how many people? people I have, have sex collected with? that information on my last survey. I just haven't looked at it yet. There's just so many things to look at, so I haven't. Yeah. But I think if I'm sleeping with a guy and he's had sex with more than 120 people, then I start to get a little bit wary. Why 120 as opposed to 100? I don't know. I just, I just like kind of skimmed through the numbers in my head and picked one that felt right. Just now. Yeah. One twenty ish. I think then that's when I'm starting like uh, ish. So you're flexible. Yeah, okay. flexible. Very. <laughs> um, <laughs> but two hundred is a hard line for sure. <laughs> well, it's you know we have to. It depends the factors. Because like there's a there's a level of body count at which you start to wonder if how much like accidental misrepresentation a guy is doing to you. Oh, like if, if you're saying 200, that might be dishonest. No, like if he's had sex with 200 girls, uh, this means that he's had a lot of casual sex um, and not a lot of like long-term relationships, assuming that he's, you know, hasn't been super poly. Yeah. And this usually means that there has to be some sort of um, like indication that he cares about the girl more than he actually does. Like he, oh, because he's like uh, leading you on, basically. Right. Um, and so I'm not saying this is necessarily the case. I'm saying like at a certain level of number, I start to become, I start to wonder if this is what's happening. Is there like, from your understanding of it, is there a different perception between men and women? Like if you look at the high body count for a woman versus a high body count for a man, like how society views it? Oh yeah, people are way more judgmental of women. 
Uh, I haven't per- experienced this personally in my circles because I'm in very sex-friendly circles. Like I'm in orgy circles where everybody like dates the same women and they're like, woo, good job. Uh, but yeah, the, people are much more – like people always tell me online like you're not ever going to be able to find a husband because you have sex with too many people. Okay. It's very common, which I don't think – I mean it, like men are also perceived negatively if you have high body count, but I think I don't think it's negatively in the same way. Yeah. Do you think it's unethical to lie about your body count? Yes. So all lying is unethical? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm not a big fan of lying in general. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Body count is an interesting one. It's so silly to take that, to care about that. But still we do. Yeah. And jealousy is silly, but still we get jealous. Is that weird? I mean, it's like, the thing is, like, I don't like viewing emotions as, like, irrational, even if they are. It's like, emotions are always there for a reason. And people don't like high body counts for a reason, too. It's just fine and valid. Yeah, it also is like, yeah, I don't know what I make of just the past of, like, time. (laughs) You know? Like, (laughs) like each human is a collection of experiences. And you don't know most of those experiences. And all of a sudden, you meet this bag of experiences and like, what are you supposed to do with both of your like training data? Are you supposed to like, like what? Like, I don't know if we, like part of me wants to not actually ever talk about it to care at all. Like, why does it matter? Cause it's only like the, the future is that matters. And yet the past also matters a lot potentially, but maybe not really. Cause you're, you're, you're somehow like constructed from that past, but you're no longer that past. It sounds like you're evaluating for something different than most people. What do you mean? Like most, the reason. I'm just talking out my ass, but yes, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> crazy shit. Like as if I'm on drugs. Well, I, well it kind of sounds, I think this is like kind of like lining up with like this, this caricature that I'm building of you based on this conversation so far. Great. That uh, like a lot of people want to know about your past because they want to know how useful and compatible you are with them. Like, oh, do you have a similar job? You know, do you have a similar culture? Like, what can I expect from you in the future? Like, it's very practically oriented. Whereas, like, if the thing that you're focused on is not, like, being able to predict someone, like, if the thing that you're focused on is the present moment, then it doesn't really matter anymore. They're the things that, like, their training data. (laughs) But I also think, think, like, the past is not that predictive of the future. Is it not? Not if you believe in the power of the interaction between two humans. It's like nature versus nurture. I, I guess also I don't believe in the in the in the ability of people to accurately describe their own past. This is true because they have a very specific lens through it that doesn't necessarily like it's too biased. But you can also <laughs> interpret it based on the bias. Like if somebody describes their own past, you can kind of pick up like hard. It's difficult. Like you yeah, you could true. if you're a therapist. Like if you're really drilling, like <laughs> or whatever. Sorry, <laughs> if you're really investigating and like analyzing it, but then it's like it's a different kind of relationship, is it, right? Is it that hard though? Like wh- if I'm with a guy and I'm considering dating him, and I ask like, how did your past relationships end? And then if all of them are like, he's like, oh, she was crazy, and my other one that she went crazy too. I'm like, okay. Like there's a if you're talking about all of your exes is insane. Like, but that's an easy level of red flag. But I feel like I feel like the more that also it's possible they were crazy. He's attracted to crazy people. So like that. Yeah. But 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 that I would say that's like easier level easy level Mario Kart video game (laughs) versus like Elden Ring. Like like I I, I, 
I think most oh, man. most people's past is like complicated. That's a pretty good burn. No, you're right. I I do agree that like there's a level of obfuscation. obfuscation. Wow, that um is hard to see through. But it's like just a little bit sometimes. Well, I, I tend to like with people. I tend to, in general, just human interaction. I tend to not talk about their past very much mm. because it allows you to focus on like. I feel like a, the past is kind of like talking about the weather. It's a crutch for me personally. Oh, interesting. Like as opposed to exploring the ideas in their mind. Yeah, I see. Is it like, I I get really annoyed when people quote philosophers when they're trying to talk about philosophy. Yeah. Is it like that? A little, but that crutch is useful and it's oh. kind of sexy. Like it's kind of like oh. cool. Like, because it's nice to quote, because like, because a good quote allows you to be cheesier than you otherwise would be. Okay, well, if you're doing it to be cheesy, that's that's fine. No, you do, not cheesy, but not cheesy. No, no, not cheesy. But to be like, it allows you to say a simple, profound thing that we're too afraid to say with our own words. So, like, the quoting philosophers in that sense is, like, yeah, but it's still a crutch, yes. But I feel like the past is more like talking about your dreams. It just mm. is not. It's a crutch that doesn't care, doesn't empathize with the other person's experience of the conversation or the explanations. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really convey the. Uh, They're not involved in your past. Yeah. yeah. So, how do you feel about this conversation where you're asking me about my past, and I talked about my past a lot? Well, I'm okay asking about your past because you've really carefully thought about that aspect mm -hmm. of it. And we didn't really talk about your past outside of the things you've written about and have really thought about. I see. Like there, there's like with most conversation, you'll start talking about past stuff that's like the stuff that's actually bothering you. You still probably have not written a blog post about, right? Mm. Like there's, there's probably still stuff like maybe it's it's more recent, like the last few months, the last couple of years. Like that's usually what we'll come up with conversation and just. It's it's good, it's good, but it's not as deep, and I would say it's not as intimate as talking about the actual ideas in your mind. I see. And how you interact with the so, world. So like the past is interesting for the frame of like, sort of like the, like the, I guess you're right, I guess we're talking a lot about like narrative yeah. and past. Yeah, I like the ideas in people's minds versus their mm -hmm. recollections and memories and so sense. on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think about porn? <laughs> nice i like it okay you like it yes. uh what, what effect do you think it has on society uh like probably reduces rates of rape because like really horny men get an outlet that's not a real life woman okay so what about like the um i mean like i said i finished reading brave new world like the over sexualization does it does it increase like the sexualization of society that's not to a degree that's not good or is this is this good like the our really does it alter in a negative direction our relationship with sex uh it's unclear like it might i don't know how to evaluate this thing right because this is like one of those really charged things where like i kind of don't trust anybody's arguments on it because it's too yeah. charged um but like, there's another question, which is like, is it a net positive or net negative? Yeah. Like, it's possible that it might be like a net negative for specifically our relationship to sex, but like a net positive overall in general. Uh, I'm not sure. But the thing, my guess is that in general, it's better to let people do the thing that feels good to them. And then the environment will naturally modify to fit this thing. 
And then if we have more needs in response to that, then we're going to figure out a way to take care of those needs. So like if you're watching a bunch of porn and this makes you like not want to go have sex with women, then we're going to have to like change the way that we like experience IRL connection. Um, to compete with porn? Yeah. Which seems like a natural evolution of like the civilizational cycle. Like I'm pro natural evolution. And like instead of trying to stop it, things that people want to do naturally, we figure out how to integrate that and like find a more healthy outlet. But you have to then be first honest with the effects that porn has. So like, is it a negative thing? Is it a positive thing on in real life mm -hmm. sex interaction? You know, you're gonna have that more and more with whether like like porn in VR or maybe porn ai porn yeah like is that is that a bad thing like what if porn with ai or even like in physical space like sex robots like what if that's more pleasurable in a bunch of different dimensions than with other humans then we should figure out artificial wombs i don't know like how important is sex for society i guess with uh, between two humans yeah, i don't know i mean like we are having less sex and making fewer babies and that seems like probably not great uh, yeah, right. With the babies, one. Yeah. The, the, but the babies, there's probably artificial ways to have babies that we can figure out. Yeah. But then, how important is sex to being human? I guess sex with other humans. Like, are we, we're going to have to figure that out in the century. Yeah, I, I don't know what it means to like be human. I'm I'm pretty on the per, the transhumanist side of things. I'm like happy to stop being human. So you're okay if like this century is the last time will be something like these biological bags of meat that yeah. we are. Let's become something new and cooler. Even though that thing will be way cooler than you. Well, I would like to, I mean, I'm hoping that we get to be immortal. Ah, it'll take you along for the ride. I, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, like, it'll clone my, I'm, I would like to do cryonics. You get frozen when you die. Are you afraid of death? I mean, yes and no. I like came to terms with death with my LSD use, but I still have like press breaks when the red light happens. I think this is a this is a poll you've asked, or this might be one of the questions in your cards. But uh, how many years would you like to live? Like, if you had to pick, oh, that's exactly. a hard one. That's a really hard. Maybe like a million. A million, but you have to like. I think the way this must have been a Twitter poll. I forget where it's so. poll and also in the deck of cards, the ask poll. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like you have to pick that number of years, and you have to live that many years, and you can't live anymore. Yeah. You can't die sooner, I guess. Yeah. A million years? I don't like that question. It's hard. I know I ask that question to a lot of people, but I don't like answering it. It's really difficult. What's the downside of a million years? I mean, maybe you want to die sooner than that. Yeah. Like, you know, I guess I would rather wait to see if AI kills us all in the next 10 years. And if it doesn't, then I'd like to maybe make it a million years. Yeah, but can't it torture you for like a million years? What if you're the last human left? Yeah, that is, I. that's true. The thought of like civilization ending and then just floating in space alone is kind of shitty. No, no, being tortured. Just imagine <laughs> today you're tortured, tomorrow you're tortured. The third, the day after tomorrow. For some reason it's not that scary. I don't know. Torture for a million years? Yeah. I just assume you'd get used to it. But like maybe if they reset your memory so it was on a loop. So you're just always experiencing torture for the first time. Yeah, hence torture. Torture is supposed to be unpleasant. I'm sure AI will be very creative in figuring out how to torture you. I think I would be. I would go on the safe side. I would just like, like 150 years. Really, 150 though? That feels like right in the, like the uncanny valley. Well, you picked 120 for body count, so I'm picking 150. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
I'm I'm right, upping you, you by thirty. Uh, but the Uncanny Valley. It's like probably everybody that you grew up with is going to be dead. It's like just enough for like everybody you know to die, like one cycle. Yeah, and then start dating the next generation. No, mm. I don't know. And then so you get like sort of two lifetimes. Is yeah, two lifetimes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it also really depends on if other people get this feature. Yeah, assume they don't. Because you'll have like FOMO for sure for the people who pick 300 years. Oh, yeah. Or not, or the other, man, regret, another human thing. But you're like, what does transhumanism mean to you in general? So extension of, the, of life, extension of what it means to be in a living conscious being, you're all for it whatever that means. Yeah, I didn't, I never really thought about the term transhumanism for a long, like people say to transhumanism, I'm like, I don't really care. But I slowly realized that my attitude is in fact, at least the thing that I'm conceiving of as transhumanist. Like I'm very happy to do artificial wombs and, you know, upload our brains to the great collective and whatever. I don't have the thing that I'm like, oh, what about like the true organic humanness that makes us who we are? Like whatever that soul of humanity, I have no attachment to it at all, which I think is what I'm thinking of as transhumanist. Like, so you're like, I, I guess the the window of what you consider to be beautiful about life is not limited to this particular definition. Yeah. Let's explode. Like, let's make our consciousnesses huge. So AI could be a part of that. Are, so you're mostly excited by AI. Well, I mean, I'm like part of like the Doomer cult, uh, which I say tongue in cheek is not actually a Doomer cult. Mm -hmm. But I'm part of uh, a lot well, of Do people. you worship a god of some sort? Or? <laughs> Would you sacrifice little small animals? That would make it like cooler than what it is. It's mostly just a bunch of nerds who are very concerned about AI. Sure. Yeah. So you're concerned about the the existential risks of Chat GPT. Right. Of you know what Chat GPT will eventually evolve into being. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's super exciting and terrifying how quickly it's accelerating. Yeah. Like language models are freaking me out. Yeah. It's very unexpected that it's the same exact. I mean. Chat GPT is just GPT three, three point five. It's the same same model, relatively small to what it could be, uh, to what G GPT four will be and the other competitors, and just like a few tricks made it much better in terms of uh, interaction with humans. Mm -hmm. And then we'll keep discovering extra tricks. The thing I'm really excited about is how everyone kind of knows how it works, so you can kind of create, especially with competition becoming cheaper and cheaper. You there'll be a lot of competitors. Yeah. It's a little scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, it's because like, like the, everything is just like information ultimately. Like the atoms that we have, like we are biological machines built out of like tiny code. Mm -hmm. Like our DNA is just information. It's not hard. If you have access, if you're like have a brilliant brain that's like great at processing information, Go on. you have complete control over reality. Yes. You have control over the atoms around you. All you need is like a tiny little like atomic printer. Uh, and like we have those, <laughs> those are cells, right? And and then like this is like if the limitation is information, there is no boundary between the technology and the real world. Like we are creating yeah, something that it has yeah. a massive ability to affect the real world. I mean, it's it's hard to know where if, how difficult it is to close that gap to physical reality, like from the physics to the the information. Yeah, but like all organic life is that gap. It's all around us. Yeah, but it's hard to know like how to to go from digital to printing life. I don't know. We can we have like you know CRISPR and stuff. You can order. You can just like yeah, make it's very easy. Uh, right? It's, there's technical difficulties and there's cost like at scale. 
Like the terrifying thing about AI is it can accelerate overnight mm -hmm. the capabilities, mm -hmm. but the printing of stuff, the actually changing physical reality is very costly. It's very difficult to exponentially accelerate. The more terrifying thing is AI becoming exponentially intelligent and then controlling humans, which there's many of us. Yeah. And then we, that's how we achieve scale. And we humans build stuff or start wars or, or so on. Like it starts manipulating our minds, gets in our mind, becomes our friends, and then starts, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think people us. thinking that this is unlikely, it's like, it's probably going to be as smart to us as like we are to toddlers. So we toddlers thinking that like, oh, we can prevent the AI from coming in the room. Like as an adult, it's like not hard to trick a toddler. What, what about falling in love with the AI system? Do you think you'll have a, since you're like, this is the freedom you have being polyamorous, you can kind of. Fall in love with an AI. No, you, and like it not really have to dedicate your, commit fully. Like, sorry, <laughs> you still commit, but you have <laughs> others, humans, who you can kind of diversify to because like, it's kind of a big thing to like, to come to a party and your boyfriend is an AI. And that's monogamous boyfriends and AI. It's an issue, right? Why would it be an issue? All right. Now you're already getting uh, offended at that possibility, which there, therefore I know it's <laughs> going to be a reality. <laughs> no, I, I'm just joking that it's an issue. I don't actually think it's an issue. I think it's uh, maybe at the cutting edge will be an issue, but. Like assume they have a body, I assume. Yeah, like yeah but the body will be really like crappy. It'd be like R2-D2. I, I, like, I feel like we grow human bodies already from like just a tiny little cl cluster of cells. It's just, the, and so all they have to do oh. is make that cluster and grow it. No, 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 no. Like don't, that, 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 that embryogenesis process, like that's really not well understood at all. Mm. That's really tough. I think we're much more likely to have crappy humanoid robotics. Mm. Like I don't think the, the body is overrated in terms of, like if, if the AI system is super intelligent, it can, uh, use charm <laughs> to make up for the crappy body, yeah. I don't know, I feel like if I were an AI system and I were super intelligent, I probably would be able to solve the problem of like growing organic matter. And then I would obviously just do that. You just build exactly the organic machine that you want. Sure, that, that's like super intelligence. I, I think like with language I'm worried about before it achieves super intelligence, like true AGI, it'll just be really good at talking. Yeah, that's true. And like it, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just don't think in, intelligence is a very different, like basically a scientist and a super intelligent scientist is a different thing than just a, a good conversationist at a party that can undress you with their words. Would you would you date an AI? I much way before then I could see myself being friend friends with an AI system. Yeah, yeah. but like people are friends with uh, inanimate objects, and I mean I have there's a robot behind you. I have a lot of them. There's I like legged robots. They're interesting. It's on the shelf. Oh, that's so cool. Yep. I didn't even notice that. Yep. Yeah, legged robots, are, they, they, we anthropomorphize them even more because there's something yeah. about the mo movement of like, uh, so, like a thing that steps, up, steps, steps and looks up at you. There's a power to that versus like a Roomba that's just like <laughs> running into the wall. And yeah, stuff. I think once, as soon as we get like some sort of, empathetic expression on robot face it's over it's over you're gonna be like oh it's so cute it's gonna be so easy to make it cute too if that's what you want or you want like a dominant like clearly this is what women Being want sexy is a terminator yeah like, with strong hands <laughs> yeah 
and and kind of dumb, <laughs> uh, or not. I don't know. You can customize. <laughs> customize. It'd be interesting to do a survey like how they would customize it. Oh yeah. Like what? What would you want in a perfect robot? This is the problem I, I see with people. The way they talk about robots is they kind of want a servant. I think what people don't realize what they want in relationships, they want some, like there's, it has to be a push and pull. There there has to be some resistance. Like you, you really don't want a servant mm -hmm. or even like the perfect manifestation of like what you think you want. I think you want imperfections around that, like some uncertainty. I don't know. I, I, I question how well we're able to perfectly put on paper what we really want. Would you really turn down like a perfect woman? Though, like, assume like she walks into the room and it's just, just shockingly compatible, and you like start dating her, and there's just no hiccups. Like you fight perfectly. Like she really understands you. Like would you be like, this is too perfect. I'm upset because we're not having enough imperfection. Like can you like actually imagine yourself well, going no, through that? Yeah, I think so mm. because <laughs> so because that's how you define perfect. Because perfect for me would be like easy and all that kind of stuff, right? But then I would be like, this is too easy. Mm. Is if I if I actually were to introspect what is the perfect relationship, then yes, maybe because I probably want some challenge. I probably want some chaos, right? Like you, like does anyone really fully want zero conflict ever? Like completely perfect conflict. Like it's it's the thing that pressing a button. Like do you really want in a relationship anything you want? You press a button, you get. Mm. I don't think people want that. You might think you want that. Yeah, I guess it depends. Like, there's a kind of conflict that I think I would never want, which is something like antagonistic conflict. I wouldn't mind disagreement. Right. You know? But there's a level of fighting. I would be happy to have a relationship for the rest of my life that never has, like, a fight of a certain shittiness. Yeah, but that's shit shittiness, but, like, resistance. Like, um, I don't know what the example is. Because I mean, I, I partially agree with you, but I just, I, and I, every time I would imagine like perfect, flawless, nothing, no conflict, you imagine somebody that doesn't have like a complexity of personality, yeah. right? Like, I feel like it's not even, it's conflict that's laden in basic misunderstanding between human beings, mm -hmm. like misinterpretation, different perspectives that clash, different worldviews, different ideas, all that kind of stuff, that conflict. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I like having somebody like be like, I don't think that's right because I have this other view. That's cool. And also like the threat of leaving, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that's a kind of conflict. Yeah, that's true. Like you have to be good enough for the other person or maybe you'll lose them. Yeah. yeah. And maybe a little jealousy. Like they, mm -hmm. they're good at that, but not too much. Like, but like if, I, if you design all that in, then I don't know. It sounds romantic. Sounds romantic. Okay, all right. I I do want to really uh, quickly ask you about this about the the rationalist community because I've gotten to know a few of them a few times. You tweeted a guideline to rationalist discourse, basics of rationalist discourse from Less Wrong. Mm. W what are these folks? What's the rationalist culture? What's the rationalist discourse? Uh, yeah, I love the rationalists because they're interested in like, how do you have conversations more effectively if you're trying to figure out what's actually true? And which sounds kind of obvious, but in practice, it's not usually. 
Um, I remember when I first started having, you know, debating conversations, I was very antagonistic. I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, a feminist or not a feminist. And then the rationalists were generally like, actually, we don't know what we mean by the term feminism. Let's, <laughs> like, how do you feel about that? It was, it was very, like, uh, kind and compassionate. Like, even if somebody says something that sounds insane, you're like, okay, well, we're going to respect your reasoning. And like, even if we disagree, let's actually figure out why you think the way that you think. Um, and they're also really smart write a whole bunch of great stuff about how to think more clearly and with less bias. Yeah. I, I wonder what those conversations, because I've never really like talked to those folks. So this guideline in particular, I think has to ref refers to like sh shorthand characteristics of rationalist discourse, mm -hmm. um, including expect good discourse to require energy. Don't say straightforwardly false things. Track for yourself and distinguish for others your inferences from your observations, estimate for yourself and make clear for others, your rough level of confidence in your assertions, make your claims clear, explicit and falsifiable, or explicitly acknowledge that you aren't doing so or can't, so on and so forth. So don't jump to conclusions. Yeah. Don't weaponize equivocation. Don't abuse categories. Don't engage it's very aggressive guidelines. Don't engage. <laughs> I do what I want. I'll let my emotions guide me. God damn it. They're pro that as long as you're explicit about it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So you can be like a, a crazy asshole as long as you're explicit. Yeah. You can be like epistemic status, crazy asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's here to destroy the 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 quality of the conversation. Yeah. I think it's like a common misconception about rationalists is that like they're kind of like Spock- uh, like, ah, uh, we suppress emotion and we're thinking logically herd eater. But I found this to be really not the case. Like, I remember there's a less strong thread where I was like really emotional and I commented. And in the beginning, I was like, just warning, I'm just very emotional. And then I just vented my emotions. And people responded really well to that. They're like, cool, like you're just genuinely, truthfully expressing your state. This is actual information about the world that is important to hear. And it's just, they're very interested in having things framed correctly. Like you shouldn't be claiming that your emotions are necessarily a true version of the world. And so as long as you're just clear about what the frame it is, you're fine. How do you feel about this conversation? What could we have done better? I like the conversation. Mm -hmm. I was a little worried coming in. I was like, what if he only asks a couple questions and then we don't know what to talk about? Yeah. But it's been quite a long time. And it, I, I covered, there's so many things I didn't cover. I like the... You have like a, like, I'm not used to talking to somebody who feels like some of the core way that they approach the world is so different than mine. Yeah. Like usually the differences arrive like higher up the tree, but like there's something about like the, your root system that I think yeah. is very different from mine. Yeah. But also the way that you engage with others is still flexible. Yeah. Like usually when I encounter somebody with such a different root system, there's like, it's like more aggressive or something. Yeah. Uh, but there's something about the way that you're structured that feels very gentle. All right. Well, I'm really happy we talked. Something tells me we'll probably talk a bunch more times. I think you're a fascinating human being. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, maybe one more question. What's the meaning of life? To want things, to, to search, to be in. Well, I think your curiosity is like somehow getting to that. Yeah. To want things. It's like it, it's curiosity, things. like you don't That's know. <laughs> to want. I want to know the answer, to like be in the state of yearning. Of wanting, of yearning. Yeah. That's the I wonder point. if you could do that if you lived a million years. Just keep yearning always. That's the thing I'm probably afraid of if I lived a million years. It's not the torture. It's like the yearning will fade. They probably yearn to die then. I oh, just sitting there wanting. 
death yeah. intensely. <laughs> intensely. <laughs> that's that's kind of romantic a little bit. That has yeah. like a a bit of that spark. And constantly being denied. Wow. So most of your existence on earth would be spent deeply intimate with death, just thinking about death. I think we're already doing that, but if, uh, like hiding that from ourselves a little bit. Anyway, wanting. Well, this is an amazing conversation. I think you're an amazing researcher Thanks and so human much. being. You're a great interviewer. I can see I really, why you do this a lot. <laughs> I appreciate it. This is really fun. Ayla, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Ayla. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Richard Feynman. Physics is like sex. Sure, it may give you some practical results, but that's not why we do it. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.